This is Heisenberg. Macmillan Audio presents Children of Dune by Frank Herbert. Muad'Dib's teachings have become the playground of scholastics, of the superstitious and the corrupt. He taught a balanced way of life, a philosophy with which a human can meet problems arising from an ever-changing universe. He said humankind is still evolving in a process which will never end. He said this evolution moves on changing principles which are known only to eternity. How can corrupted reasoning play with such an essence? Words of the Mentat, Duncan, Idaho A spot of light appeared on the deep red rug which covered the raw rock of the cave floor. The light glowed without apparent source, having its existence only on the red fabric surface woven of spice fiber. A questing circle, about two centimeters in diameter, it moved erratically, now elongated, now an oval. Encountering the deep green side of a bed, it leaped upward, folded itself across the bed's surface. Beneath the green covering lay a child with rusty hair, face still round with baby fat, a generous mouth, a figure lacking the lean sparseness of Fremen tradition, but not as water-fat as an off-worlder. As the light passed across closed eyelids, the small figure stirred. The light winked out. Now there was only the sound of even breathing and, faint behind it, a reassuring drip, drip, drip of water collecting in a catch basin from the wind still far above the cave. Again the light appeared in the chamber, slightly larger, a few lumens brighter. This time there was a suggestion of source and movement to it. A hooded figure filled the arched doorway at the chamber's edge and the light originated there. Once more the light flowed around the chamber, testing, questing. There was a sense of menace in it, a restless dissatisfaction. It avoided the sleeping child, paused on the gridded air inlet at an upper corner, probed a bulge in the green and gold wall hangings which softened the enclosing rock. Presently the light winked out. The hooded figure moved with a betraying swish of fabric, took up a station at one side of the arched doorway. Anyone aware of the routine here in Siech Tabur would have suspected at once that this must be Stilgar, Naib of the Siech, guardian of the orphaned twins who would one day take up the mantle of their father, Paul Muad'Dib. Stilgar often made night inspections of the twins' quarters, always going first to the chamber where Ganima slept and ending here in the adjoining room where he could reassure himself that Leto was not threatened. I'm an old fool, Stilgar thought. He fingered the cold surface of the light projector before restoring it to the loop in his belt sash. The projector irritated him even while he depended upon it. The thing was a subtle instrument of the Imperium, a device to detect the presence of large living bodies. It had shown only the sleeping children in the royal bedchambers. Stilgar knew his thoughts and emotions were like the light. He could not still a restless inner projection. Some greater power controlled that movement. It projected him into this moment where he sensed the accumulated peril. 
Here lay the magnet for dreams of grandeur throughout the known universe. Here lay temporal riches, secular authority, and that most powerful of all mystic talismans, the divine authenticity of Muad'Dib's religious bequest. In these twins, Leto and his sister Ganima, an awesome power focused. While they lived, Muad'Dib, though dead, lived in them. These were not merely nine-year-old children. They were a natural force, objects of veneration and fear. They were the children of Paul Atreides, who had become Muad'Dib, the Mahdi of all the Fremen. Muad'Dib had ignited an explosion of humanity. Fremen had spread from this planet in a jihad, carrying their fervor across the human universe in a wave of religious government whose scope and ubiquitous authority had left its mark on every planet. Yet these children of Muad'Dib are flesh and blood, Stilgar thought. Two simple thrusts of my knife would still their hearts. Their water would return to the tribe. His wayward mind fell into turmoil at such a thought. To kill Muad'Dib's children. But the years had made him wise in introspection. Stilgar knew the origin of such a terrible thought. It came from the left hand of the damned not from the right hand of the blessed. The Ayat and Burhan of life held few mysteries for him. Once he'd been proud to think of himself as Fremen, to think of the desert as a friend, to name his planet Dune in his thoughts and not Arrakis, as it was marked on all the imperial star charts. How simple things were when our Messiah was only a dream, he thought. By finding our Mahdi, we loosed upon the universe countless messianic dreams. Every people subjugated by the jihad now dreams of a leader to come. Stilgar glanced into the darkened bedchamber. If my knife liberated all those people, would they make a messiah of me? Leto could be heard stirring restlessly in his bed. Stilgar sighed. He had never known the Atreides' grandfather, whose name this child had taken, but many said the moral strength of Muad'Dib had come from that source. Would that terrifying quality of rightness skip a generation now? Stilgar found himself unable to answer this question. He thought, Siech Tabur is mine. I rule here. I am a Naib of the Fremen. Without me there would have been no Muad'Dib. These twins now, through Cheney, their mother and my kinswoman, my blood flows in their veins. I am there with Muad'Dib and Cheney and all the others. What have we done to our universe? Stilgar could not explain why such thoughts came to him in the night and why they made him feel so guilty. He crouched within his hooded robe. Reality was not at all like the dream. The friendly desert, which once had spread from pole to pole, was reduced to half its former size. The mythic paradise of spreading greenery filled him with dismay. It was not like the dream, and as his planet changed, he knew he had changed. He had become a far more subtle person than the one-time Siech chieftain. He was aware now of many things, of statecraft and profound consequences in the smallest decisions. 
Yet he felt this knowledge and subtlety as a thin veneer covering an iron core of simpler, more deterministic awareness, and that older core called out to him, pleaded with him for a return to cleaner values. The morning sounds of the sea edge began intruding upon his thoughts. People were beginning to move about in the cavern. He felt a breeze against his cheeks. People were going out through the door seals into the pre-dawn darkness. The breeze spoke of carelessness as it spoke of the time. Warren dwellers no longer maintained the tight water discipline of the old days. Why should they? When rain had been recorded on this planet, when clouds were seen, when eight Fremen had been inundated and killed by a flash flood in a wadi. Until that event, the word drowned had not existed in the language of Dune. But this was no longer Dune. This was Arrakis and it was the morning of an eventful day. He thought, Jessica, mother of Muad'Dib and grandmother of these royal twins, returns to our planet today. Why does she end her self-imposed exile at this time? Why does she leave the softness and security of Caladan for the dangers of Arrakis? And there were other worries. Would she sense Stilgar's doubts? She was a Bene Gesserit witch, graduate of the Sisterhood's deepest training, and a reverend mother in her own right. Such females were acute, and they were dangerous. Would she order him to fall upon his own knife, as the Uma protector of Liet Kynes had been ordered? Would I obey her? he wondered. He could not answer that question. But now he thought about Liet Kynes, the planetologist who had first dreamed of transforming the planet-wide desert of Dune into the human supportive green planet which it was becoming. Liet Kynes had been Cheney's father. Without him there would have been no dream, no Cheney, no royal twins. The workings of this fragile chain dismayed Stilgar. How have we met in this place? he asked himself. How have we combined? For what purpose? Is it my duty to end it all, to shatter that great combination? Stilgar admitted the terrible urging within him now. He could make that choice, denying love and family to do what a naive must do on occasion, make a deadly decision for the good of the tribe. By one view, such a murder represented ultimate betrayal and atrocity. To kill mere children, yet they were not mere children. They had eaten melange, had shared in the Siech orgy, had probed the desert for sand trout and played the other games of Fremen children. And they sat in the royal council. Children of such tender years, yet wise enough to sit in the council. They might be children in flesh, but they were ancient in experience, born with a totality of genetic memory, a terrifying awareness which set their Aunt Aaliyah and themselves apart from all other living humans. Many times in many nights had Stilgar found his mind circling this difference shared by the twins and their aunt. Many times had he been awakened from sleep by these torments, coming here to the twins' bedchambers with his dreams unfinished. But now his doubts came to focus. Failure to make a decision was in itself a decision. He knew this. These twins and their aunt had awakened in the womb, knowing there all of the memories passed on to them by their ancestors. 
Spice addiction had done this. Spice addiction of the mothers, the Lady Jessica and Cheney. The Lady Jessica had borne a son, Muad'Dib, before her addiction. Aliyah had come after the addiction. That was clear in retrospect. The countless generations of selective breeding directed by the Bene Gesserits had achieved Muad'Dib, but nowhere in the Sisterhood's plans had they allowed for Melange. Oh, they knew about this possibility, but they feared it and called it abomination. That was the most dismaying fact. Abomination. They must possess reasons for such a judgment. And if they said Aliyah was an abomination, then that must apply equally to the twins, because Cheney too had been addicted, her body saturated with spice, and her genes had somehow complemented those of Muad'Dib. Stilgar's thoughts moved in ferment. There could be no doubt these twins went beyond their father, but in which direction? The boy spoke of an ability to be his father, and had proved it. Even as an infant, Leto had revealed memories which only Muad'Dib should have known. Were there other ancestors waiting in that vast spectrum of memories, ancestors whose beliefs and habits created unspeakable dangers for living humans? Abominations, the holy witches of the Bene Gesserit said, yet the sisterhood coveted the genophase of these children. The witches wanted sperm and ovum without the disturbing flesh which carried them. Was that why the Lady Jessica returned at this time? She had broken with the sisterhood to support her ducal mate, but rumor said she had returned to the Bene Gesserit ways. I could end all these dreams, Stilgar thought. How simple it would be. And yet again he wondered at himself that he could contemplate such a choice. Were Muad'Dib's twins responsible for the reality which obliterated the dreams of others? No. They were merely the lens through which light poured to reveal new shapes in the universe. In torment, his mind reverted to primary Fremen beliefs, and he thought, God's command comes, so seek not to hasten it. God's it is to show the way, and some do swerve from it. It was the religion of Muad'Dib which upset Stilgar most. Why did they make a god of Muad'Dib? Why deify a man known to be flesh? Muad'Dib's golden elixir of life had created a bureaucratic monster which sat astride human affairs. Government and religion united, and breaking a law became sin. A smell of blasphemy arose like smoke around any questioning of governmental edicts. The guilt of rebellion invoked hellfire and self-righteous judgments. Yet it was men who created these governmental edicts. Stilgar shook his head sadly, not seeing the attendants who had moved into the royal antechamber for their morning duties. He fingered the Chris knife at his waist, thinking of the past it symbolized, thinking that more than once he had sympathized with rebels whose abortive uprisings had been crushed by his own orders. Confusion washed through his mind and he wished he knew how to obliterate it, returning to the simplicities represented by the knife. But the universe would not turn backward. It was a great engine projected upon the grey void of non-existence. 
His knife, if it brought the deaths of the twins, would only reverberate against that void, weaving new complexities to echo through human history, creating new surges of chaos, inviting humankind to attempt other forms of order and disorder. Stilgar sighed, growing aware of the movements around him. Yes, these attendants represented a kind of order which was bound around Muad'Dib's twins. They moved from one moment to the next, meeting whatever necessities occurred there. Best to emulate them, Stilgar told himself. Best meet what comes when it comes. I am an attendant yet, he told himself, and my master is God, the merciful, the compassionate. And he quoted to himself, Surely we have put on their necks fetters up to the chin, so their heads are raised, and we have put before them a barrier, and behind them a barrier, and we have covered them, so they do not see. Thus was it written in the old Fremen religion. Stilgar nodded to himself. To see, to anticipate the next moment as Muad'Dib had done with his awesome visions of the future, added a counterforce to human affairs. It created new places for decisions. To be unfettered, yes, that might well indicate a whim of God. Another complexity beyond ordinary human reach. Stilgar removed his hand from the knife. His fingers tingled with remembrance of it. But the blade which once had listened in a sandworm's gaping mouth remained in its sheath. Stilgar knew he would not draw this blade now to kill the twins. He had reached a decision. Better to retain that one old virtue which he still cherished. Loyalty. Better the complexities one thought he knew than the complexities which defied understanding. Better than now than the future of a dream. The bitter taste in his mouth told Stilgar how empty and revolting some dreams could be. No, no more dreams. Challenge. Have you seen the preacher? Response. I have seen a sandworm. Challenge. What about that sandworm? Response. It gives us the air we breathe. Challenge. Then why do we destroy its land? Response. Because Shai Hulud, sandworm deified, orders it. Riddles of Arrakis by Hak Aladar. As was the Fremen custom, the Atreides twins arose an hour before dawn. They yawned and stretched in secret unison in their adjoining chambers, feeling the activity of the cave warren around them. They could hear attendants in the antechamber preparing breakfast, a simple gruel with dates and nuts blended in liquid skimmed from partially fermented spice. There were glow globes in the antechamber and a soft yellow light entered through the open archways of the bedchambers. The twins dressed swiftly in the soft light, each hearing the other nearby. As they had agreed, they donned still suits against the desert's parching winds. Presently the royal pair met in the antechamber, noting the sudden stillness of the attendants. Later, it was observed, wore a black-edged tan cape over his stillsuit's grey slickness. His sister wore a green cape. The neck of each cape was held by a clasp in the form of an Atreides hawk, gold with red jewels for eyes. Seeing this finery, Hera, who was one of Stilgar's wives, said, I see you have dressed to honour your grandmother. 
Alato picked up his breakfast bowl before looking at Hera's dark and wind-creased face. He shook his head. Then, how do you know it's not ourselves we honor? Hera met his taunting stare without flinching, said, My eyes are just as blue as yours. Ganima laughed aloud. Hera was always an adept at the Fremen challenge game. In one sentence, she had said, Don't taunt me, boy. You may be royalty, but we both bear the stigma of melange addiction, eyes without whites. What Fremen needs more finery or more honor than that? Leto smiled, shook his head ruefully. Hera, my love, if you were but younger and not already Stilgars, I'd make you my own. Hera accepted the small victory easily, signaling the other attendants to continue preparing the chambers for this day's important activities. Eat your breakfasts, she said. You'll need the energy today. Then you agree that we're not too fine for our grandmother? Ganima asked, speaking around a mouthful of gruel. Don't fear her, Gani, Hera said. Leto gulped a mouthful of gruel, sent a probing stare at Hera. The woman was infernally folk-wise, seeing through the game of finery so quickly. Will she believe we fear her? Leto asked. Like as not, Hera said. She was our reverend mother, remember? I know her ways. How was Aliyah dressed? Ganima asked. I've not seen her. Hera spoke shortly, turning away. Leto and Ganima exchanged a look of shared secrets, bent quickly to their breakfast. Presently they went out into the great central passage. Ganima spoke in one of the ancient languages they shared in genetic memory. So today we have a grandmother. It bothers Alia greatly, Leto said. Who likes to give up such authority? Ganima asked. Leto laughed softly, an oddly adult sound from flesh so young. It's more than that. Will her mother's eyes observe what we have observed? And why not? Leto asked. Yes, that could be what Alia fears. Who knows abomination better than abomination? Leto asked. We could be wrong, you know, Ganima said. But we're not, and he quoted from the Bene Gesserit Ajar book. It is with reason and terrible experience that we call the pre-born abomination, for who knows what lost and damned persona out of our evil past may take over the living flesh. I know the history of it, Ganima said. But if that's true, why don't we suffer from this inner assault? Perhaps our parents stand guard within us, Leto said. Then why not guardians for Aaliyah as well? I don't know. It could be because one of her parents remains among the living. It could be simply that we are still young and strong, perhaps when we are older and more cynical. We must take great care with this grandmother, Ganima said, and not discuss this preacher who wanders our planet speaking heresy. You don't really think he's our father. I make no judgment on it, but Alia fears him. Ganima shook her head sharply. I don't believe this abomination nonsense. You've just as many memories as I have, Leto said. You can believe what you want to believe. You think it's because we haven't dared the spice trance, and Alia has, Ganima said. That's exactly what I think. They fell silent, moving out into the flow of people in the central passage. It was cool in Siech Tabor, but the still suits were warm and the twins kept their condenser hoods thrown back from their red hair. Their faces betrayed the stamp of shared genes, generous mouths, widely set eyes of spice addict blue on blue. Leto was first to note the approach of their aunt Aaliyah. 
Here she comes now, he said, shifting to Atreides' battle language as a warning. Ganima nodded to her aunt as Alia stopped in front of them, said, A spoil of war greets her illustrious relative. Using the same Jacobsa language, Ganima emphasized the meaning of her own name, spoil of war. You see, beloved aunt, Boleto said, we prepare ourselves for today's encounter with your mother. Alia, the one person in the teeming royal household who harbored not the faintest surprise at adult behavior from these children, glared from one to the other. Then, hold your tongues, both of you. Alia's bronze hair was pulled back into two golden water rings. Her oval face held a frown. The wide mouth, with its downturned hint of self-indulgence, was held in a tight line. Worry wrinkles fanned the corners of her blue-on-blue eyes. I've warned both of you how to behave today, Alia said. You know the reasons as well as I. We know your reasons, but you may not know ours, Ganima said. Gani, Alia growled. Leto glared at his aunt, said, Today of all days we will not pretend to be simpering infants. No one wants you to simper, Alia said, but we think it unwise for you to provoke dangerous thoughts in my mother. Irulan agrees with me. Who knows what role the Lady Jessica will choose? She is, after all, Bene Gesserit. Leto shook his head, wondering, Why does Alia not see what we suspect? Is she too far gone? and he made special note of the subtle gene markers on Alia's face which betrayed the presence of her maternal grandfather. The Baron Vladimir Harkonnen had not been a pleasant person. At this observation, Leto felt the vague stirrings of his own disquiet, thinking, my own ancestor too. He said, the Lady Jessica was trained to rule. Ganima nodded. Why does she choose this time to come back? Alia scowled, then... Is it possible she merely wants to see her grandchildren? Ganima thought, That's what you hope, my dear aunt, but it's damned well not likely. She cannot rule here, Alia said. She has Caladan. That should be enough. Ganima spoke placatingly. When our father went into the desert to die, he left you as regent. He- Have you any complaint? Alia demanded. It was a reasonable choice. Later said, following his sister's lead. You were the one person who knew what it was like to be born as we were born. It's rumored that my mother has returned to the sisterhood, Alia said, and you both know what the Bene Gesserit think about abomination, Later said. Yes, Alia bit the word off. Once a witch, always a witch, so it's said, Ganima said. Sister, you play a dangerous game, Leto thought. But he followed her lead, saying, Our grandmother was a woman of greater simplicity than others of her kind. You share her memories, Alia. Surely you must know what to expect. Simplicity, Alia said, shaking her head, looking around her at the thronged passage, then back to the twins. If my mother were less complex, neither of you would be here, nor I. I would have been her firstborn, and none of this. A shrug, half-shudder, moved her shoulders. I warn you two, be very careful what you do today. Alia looked up. Here comes my guard. And you still don't think it's safe for us to accompany you to the spaceport? Leto asked. Wait here, Alia said. I'll bring her back. Leto exchanged a look with his sister. 
You've told us many times that the memories we hold from those who've passed before us lack a certain usefulness until we've experienced enough with our own flesh to make them reality. My sister and I believe this. We anticipate dangerous changes with the arrival of our grandmother. Don't stop believing that, Alia said. She turned away to be enclosed by her guards and they moved swiftly down the passage toward the state entrance where ornithopters awaited them. Ganima wiped a tear from her right eye. Water for the dead, Plato whispered, taking his sister's arm. Ganima drew in a deep, sighing breath, thinking of how she had observed her aunt, using the way she knew best from her own accumulation of ancestral experiences. Spice trance did it? she asked, knowing what Leto would say. Do you have a better suggestion? For the sake of argument, why didn't our father or even our grandmother succumb? He studied her a moment, then... You know the answer as well as I do. They had secure personalities by the time they came to Arrakis. The spice trance? Well, he shrugged. They weren't born into this world already possessed of their ancestors. Alia, though. Why didn't she believe the Bene Gesserit warnings? Ganima chewed her lower lip. Alia had the same information to draw upon that we do. They already were calling her abomination, Leto said. Don't you find it tempting to find out if you're stronger than all of those? No, I don't. Ganima looked away from her brother's probing stare, shuddered. She had only to consult her genetic memories, and her sisterhood's warnings took on vivid shape. The pre-born observably tended to become adults of nasty habits, and the likely cause. Again, she shuddered. Pity we don't have a few pre-born in our ancestry, Leto said. Perhaps we do. But we... Ah, yes. The old unanswered question. Do we really have open access to every ancestor's total file of experiences? From his own inner turmoil, Leto knew how this conversation must be disturbing his sister. They'd considered this question many times, always without conclusion. He said, We must delay and delay and delay every time she urges the trance upon us. Extreme caution with a spice overdose, that's our best course. An overdose would have to be pretty large, Ganima said. Our tolerance is probably high, he agreed. Look how much Alia requires. I pity her, Ganima said. The lure of it must have been subtle and insidious, creeping up on her until... She's a victim, yes, Leto said. Abomination. We could be wrong. True. I always wonder, Ganima mused, if the next ancestral memory I seek will be the one which... The past is no farther away than your pillow, Leto said. We must make the opportunity to discuss this with our grandmother. So her memory within me urges, Leto said. Ganima met his gaze, then... Too much knowledge never makes for simple decisions. The Sietch at the desert's rim was Lietz, was Kainz's, was Stilgar's, was Muad'Dib's, and once more was Stilgar's. The Naib's one by one sleep in the sand, but the Sietch endures. From a Fremen song. Alia felt her heart pounding as she walked away from the twins. For a few pulsing seconds, she had felt herself near compulsion to stay with them and beg their help. What a foolish weakness. Memory of it sent a warning stillness through Alia. Would these twins dare practice prescience? 
The path which had engulfed their father must lure them. Spice trance, with its visions of the future wavering like gauze blown on a fickle wind. Why cannot I see the future? Alia wondered. Much as I try, why does it elude me? The twins must be made to try, she told herself. They could be lured into it. They had the curiosity of children, and it was linked to memories which traversed millennia. Just as I have, Alia thought. Her guards opened the moisture seals at the state entrance of the Siege, stood aside as she emerged onto the landing lip where the ornithopters waited. There was a wind from the desert blowing dust across the sky, but the day was bright. Emerging from the glow globes of the Siege into the daylight sent her thoughts outward. Why was the Lady Jessica returning at this moment? Had stories been carried to Caladan? Stories of how the Regency was... We must hurry, my lady, one of her guards said, raising his voice above the wind sounds. Alia allowed herself to be helped into her ornithopter and secured the safety harness, but her thoughts went leaping ahead. Why now? As the ornithopter's wings dipped and the craft went skidding into the air, she felt the pomp and power of her position as physical things. But they were fragile. Oh, how fragile. Why now, when her plans were not completed? The dust mists drifted, lifting, and she could see the bright sunlight upon the changing landscape of the planet, broad reaches of green vegetation where parched earth had once dominated. Without a vision of the future, I could fail. Oh, what magic I could perform if only I could see as Paul saw. Not for me the bitterness which prescient visions brought. A tormenting hunger shuddered through her, and she wished she could put aside the power. Oh, to be as others were, blind in that safest of all blindnesses, living only the hypnoidal half-life into which birth shock precipitated most humans. But no, she had been born an Atreides, victim of that eon's deep awareness inflicted by her mother's spice addiction. Why does my mother return today? Gurney Halleck would be with her, ever the devoted servant, the hired killer of ugly mean, loyal and straightforward, a musician who played murder with a slip-tip, or entertained with equal ease upon his nine-string ballisette. Some said he'd become her mother's lover. That would be a thing to ferret out. It might prove a most valuable leverage. The wish to be as others were left her. Leto must be lured into the spice trance. He recalled asking the boy how he would deal with Gurney Halleck, and Leto, sensing undercurrents in her question, had said Halleck was loyal to a fault, adding, he adored my father. She'd noted the small hesitation. Leto had almost said, me, instead of my father. Yes, it was hard at times to separate the genetic memory from the cord of living flesh. Gurney Halleck would not make that separation easier for Leto. A harsh smile touched Alia's lips. Gurney had chosen to return to Caladan with the Lady Jessica after Paul's death. His return would tangle many things. Coming back to Arrakis, he would add his own complexities to the existing lines. He had served Paul's father, and thus the succession went. Leto one to Paul to Leto two and out of the Bene Gesserit breeding program, Jessica to Alia to Ganima, a branching line. Gurney, adding to the confusion of identities, might prove valuable. 
What would he do if he discovered we carry the blood of Harkonnens, the Harkonnens he hates so bitterly? The smile on Alia's lips became introspective. The twins were, after all, children. They were like children with countless parents whose memories belonged both to others and to self. They would stand at the lip of Siech Tabor and watch the track of their grandmother's ship landing in the Arakeen Basin, that burning mark of a ship's passage visible on the sky. Would it make Jessica's arrival more real for her grandchildren? My mother will ask me about their training, Alia thought. Do I mix Pranabindu disciplines with a judicious hand? And I will tell her that they trained themselves just as I did. I will quote her grandson to her. Among the responsibilities of command is the necessity to punish, but only when the victim demands it. It came to Alia then that if she could only focus the Lady Jessica's attention sharply enough onto the twins, others might escape a closer inspection. Such a thing could be done. Later was very much like Paul. And why not? He could be Paul whenever he chose. Even Ganima possessed this shattering ability. Just as I can be my mother or any of the others who've shared their lives with us. She veered away from this thought, staring out at the passing landscape of the shield wall. Then, how was it to leave the warm safety of water-rich Caladan and return to Arrakis, to this desert planet where her duke was murdered and her son died a martyr? Why did the Lady Jessica come back at this time? Aaliyah found no answer, nothing certain. She could share another's ego awareness, but when experiences went their separate ways, then motives diverged as well. The stuff of decisions lay in the private actions taken by individuals. For the pre-born, the many-born Atreides, this remained the paramount reality, in itself another kind of birth. It was the absolute separation of living, breathing flesh when that flesh left the womb which had afflicted it with multiple awareness. Aaliyah saw nothing strange in loving and hating her mother simultaneously. It was a necessity, a required balance without room for guilt or blame. Where could loving or hating stop? Was one to blame the Bene Gesserit because they set the Lady Jessica upon a certain course? Guilt and blame grew diffuse when memory covered millennia. The sisterhood had only been seeking to breed a Kwisatz Haderach, the male counterpart of a fully developed reverend mother. And more, a human of superior sensitivity and awareness, the Kwisatz Haderach who could be many places simultaneously. And the Lady Jessica, merely a pawn in that breeding program, had the bad taste to fall in love with a breeding partner to whom she had been assigned. Responsive to her beloved duke's wishes, she produced a son instead of the daughter which the sisterhood had commanded as the firstborn. Leaving me to be born after she became addicted to the spice. And now they don't want me. Now they fear me. With good reason. They'd achieved Paul, their Kwisatz Haderach, one lifetime too early. A minor miscalculation in a plan that extended. And now they had another problem, the abomination who carried the precious genes they'd sought for so many generations. Alia felt a shadow pass across her, glanced upward. Her escort was assuming the high guard position preparatory to landing. She shook her head in wonderment at her wandering thoughts. What good was served by calling up old lifetimes and rubbing their mistakes together? 
This was a new lifetime. Duncan Idaho had put his mentat awareness to the question of why Jessica returned at this time, evaluating the problem in the human-computer fashion which was his gift. He said she returned to take over the twins for the sisterhood. The twins, too, carried those precious genes. Duncan could well be right. That might be enough to take the Lady Jessica out of her self-imposed seclusion on Caladan. If the sisterhood commanded, well... Why else would she come back to the scenes of so much that must be shatteringly painful to her? We shall see, Aaliyah muttered. She felt the ornithopter touch down on the roof of her keep, a positive and jarring punctuation which filled her with grim anticipation. Melange, also melange. Origin uncertain thought to derive from ancient Terran French. A. Mixture of spices. B. Spice of Arrakis, Dune, with geriatric properties first noted by Jan Shuf Ashkoko, royal chemist in the reign of Shakad the Wise. Arrakin melange found only in deepest desert sands of Arrakis, linked to prophetic visions of Paul Muad'Dib, Atreides, first Fremen Mahdi also employed by Spacing Guild Navigators and the Bene Gesserit. Dictionary Royal, 5th edition The two big cats came over the rocky ridge in the dawn light, loping easily. They were not really into the passionate hunt as yet, merely looking over their territory. They were called laser tigers, a special breed brought here to the planet Seleucus Secundus almost 8,000 years past. Genetic manipulation of the ancient Terran stock had erased some of the original tiger features and refined other elements. The fangs remained long. Their faces were wide, eyes alert and intelligent. The paws were enlarged to give them support on uneven terrain, and their sheathed claws could extend some ten centimeters, sharpened at the ends into razor tips by abrasive compression of the sheath. Their coats were a flat and even tan, which made them almost invisible against sand. They differed in another way from their ancestors. Servo-stimulators had been implanted in their brains while they were cubs. The stimulators made them pawns of whoever possessed the transmitter. It was cold, and as the cats paused to scan the terrain, their breath made fog on the air. Around them lay a region of Seleucus Secundus, left sere and barren a place which harboured a scant few sand trout smuggled from Arrakis and kept precariously alive in the dream that the melange monopoly might be broken. Where the cats stood, the landscape was marked by tan rocks and a scattering of sparse bushes, silvery green in the long shadows of the morning sun. With only the slightest movement, the cats grew suddenly alert. Their eyes turned slowly left, then their heads turned. Far down in the scarred land, two children struggled up a dry wash, hand in hand. The children appeared to be of an age, perhaps nine or ten standard years. They were red-haired and wore still suits partly covered by rich white borkas, which bore all around the hem and at the forehead the hawk crest of the house Atreides worked in flame-jewel threads. As they walked, the children chattered happily and their voices carried clearly to the hunting cats. The laser tigers knew this game. They had played it before. But they remained quiescent, awaiting the triggering of the chase signal in their servo-stimulators. 
Now a man appeared on the ridgetop behind the cats. He stopped and surveyed the scene. Cats, children. The man wore a sadhaka working uniform in grey and black with insignia of a levenbrech, aid to a basha. A harness passed behind his neck and under his arms to carry the servo transmitter in a thin package against his chest, where the keys could be easily reached by either hand. The cats did not turn at his approach. They knew this man by sound and smell. He scrambled down to stop two paces from the cats, mopped his forehead. The air was cold, but this was hot work. Again his pale eyes surveyed the scene. Cats, children. He pushed a damp strand of blonde hair back under his black working helmet, touched the implanted microphone in his throat. The cats have them in sight. The answering voice came to him through receivers implanted behind each ear. We see them. This time? the Levenbreck asked. Will they do it without a chase command? the voice countered. They're ready, the Levenbreck said. Very well. Let us see if four conditioning sessions will be enough. Tell me when you're ready. Any time. Now then, the Levenbreck said. He touched a red key on the right-hand side of his servo transmitter, first releasing a bar which shielded the key. Now the cats stood without any transmitted restraints. He held his hand over a black key below the red one, ready to stop the animals should they turn on him. But they took no notice of him, crouched, and began working their way down the ridge toward the children. Their great paws slid out in smooth, gliding motions. The Levenbreck squatted to observe, knowing that somewhere around him a hidden trans-eye carried this entire scene to a secret monitor within the keep where his prince lived. Presently the cats began to lope, then to run. The children, intent on climbing through the rocky terrain, still had not seen their peril. One of them laughed, a high and piping sound in the clear air. The other child stumbled and, recovering balance, turned and saw the cats. The child pointed. Look! Both children stopped and stared at the interesting intrusion into their lives. They were still standing when the laser tigers hit them, one cat to each child. The children died with a casual abruptness, necks broken swiftly. The cats began to feed. Shall I recall them? the Levenbreck asked. Let them finish. They did well. I knew they would. This pair is superb. Best I've ever seen, the Levenbreck agreed. Very good, then. Transport is being sent for you. We will sign off now. The Levenbreck stood and stretched. He refrained from looking directly off to the high ground on his left, where a tell-tale glitter had revealed the location of the trans-eye, which had relayed his fine performance to his bashar far away in the green lands of the capital. The Levenbreck smiled. There would be a promotion for this day's work. Already he could feel a bator's insignia at his neck, and some day, Bursek, even one day, Bashar. People who served well in the cause of Faradun, grandson of the late Shaddam IV, earned rich promotions. One day, when the prince was seated on his rightful throne, there would be even greater promotions. Abasha's rank might not be the end of it. There were baronies and earldoms to be had on the many worlds of this realm, once the twin Atreides were removed. The Fremen must return to his original faith, 
to his genius in forming human communities, he must return to the past, where that lesson of survival was learned in the struggle with Arrakis. The only business of the Fremen should be that of opening his soul to the inner teachings. The worlds of the Imperium, the Lansrat, and the Chom Confederacy have no message to give him. They will only rob him of his soul. The Preacher at Arakeen All around the Lady Jessica, reaching far out into the dun flatness of the landing plane upon which her transport rested, crackling and sighing after its dive from space, stood an ocean of humanity. She estimated half a million people were there and perhaps only a third of them pilgrims. They stood in awesome silence, attention fixed on the transport's exit platform, whose shadowy hatchway concealed her and her party. It lacked two hours until noon, but already the air above that throng reflected a dusty shimmering in promise of the day's heat. Jessica touched her silver-flecked copper hair where it framed her oval face beneath the arbor hood of a reverend mother. She knew she did not look her best after the long trip, and the black of the arbor was not her best color. But she had worn this garment here before. The significance of the arbor robe would not be lost upon the Fremen. She sighed. Space travel did not agree with her, and there had been that added burden of memories, the other trip from Caradan to Arrakis, when her duke had been forced into this fief against his better judgment. Slowly, probing with her Bene Gesserit-trained ability to detect significant minutiae, she scanned the sea of people. There were still suit hoods of dull grey, garments of Fremen from the deep desert. There were white-robed pilgrims with penitence marks on their shoulders. There were scattered pockets of rich merchants, hoodless in light clothing to flaunt their disdain for water loss in Arakeen's parching air. And there was the delegation from the Society of the Faithful, green-robed and heavily hooded, standing aloof within the sanctity of their own group. Only when she lifted her gaze from the crowd did the scene take on any similarity to that which had greeted her upon her arrival with her beloved duke. How long ago had that been? More than twenty years. She did not like to think of those intervening heartbeats. Time lay within her like a dead weight, and it was as though her years away from this planet had never been. Once more into the dragon's mouth, she thought. Here, upon this plain, her son had wrested the Imperium from the late Shaddam IV. A convulsion of history had imprinted this place into men's minds and beliefs. She heard the restless stirring of the entourage behind her, and again she sighed. They must wait for Alia, who had been delayed. Alia's party could be seen now approaching from the far edge of the throng, creating a human wave as a wedge of royal guards opened a passage. Jessica scanned the landscape once more. Many differences submitted to her searching stare. A prayer balcony had been added to the landing field's control tower, and visible far off to the left across the plain stood the awesome pile of plasteel which Paul had built as his fortress, his Sietch above the sand. It was the largest integrated single construction ever to rise from the hand of man. Entire cities could have been housed within its walls and room to spare. Now it housed the most powerful governing force in the Imperium, Alia's Society of the Faithful, which she had built upon her brother's body. That place must go, Jessica thought. Alia's delegation had reached the foot of the exit ramp and stood there expectantly. 
Jessica recognized Stilgar's craggy features, and God forfend, there stood the Princess Irulan hiding her savagery in that seductive body with its cap of golden hair exposed by a vagrant breeze. Irulan seemed not to have aged a day. It was an affront. And there, at the point of the wedge, was Alia, her features impudently youthful, her eyes staring upward into the hatchway's shadows. Jessica's mouth drew into a straight line and she scanned her daughter's face. A leaden sensation pulsed through Jessica's body and she heard the surf of her own life within her ears. The rumors were true. Horrible. Horrible. Alia had fallen into the forbidden way. The evidence was there for the initiate to read. Abomination! In the few moments it took her to recover, Jessica realized how much she had hoped to find the rumors false. What of the twins? she asked herself. Are they lost too? Slowly, as befitted the mother of a god, Jessica moved out of the shadows and onto the lip of the ramp. Her entourage remained behind as instructed. These next few moments were the crucial ones. Jessica stood alone in full view of the throng. She heard Gurney Halleck cough nervously behind her. Gurney had objected. Not even a shield on you? Gods below, woman, you're insane! But among Gurney's most valuable features was a core of obedience. He would say his piece and then he would obey. Now he obeyed. The human sea emitted a sound like the hiss of a giant sandworm as Jessica emerged. She raised her arms in the benedictory to which the priesthood had conditioned the Imperium. With significant pockets of tardiness, but still like one giant organism, the people sank to their knees. Even the official party complied. Jessica had marked out the places of delay, and she knew that other eyes behind her and among her agents in the throng had memorized a temporary map with which to seek out the tardy. As Jessica remained with her arms upraised, Gurney and his men emerged. They moved swiftly past her down the ramp, ignoring the official party's startled looks, joining the agents who identified themselves by hand sign. Quickly they fanned out through the human sea, leaping knots of kneeling figures dashing through narrow lanes. A few of their targets saw the danger and tried to flee. They were the easiest. A thrown knife, a garrote loop, and the runners went down. Others were herded out of the press, hands bound, feet hobbled. Through it all, Jessica stood with arms outstretched, blessing by her presence, keeping the throng subservient. She read the signs of spreading rumors, though, and knew the dominant one because it had been planted. The Reverend Mother returns to weed out the slackers. Bless the Mother of our Lord. When it was over, a few dead bodies sprawled on the sand, captives removed to holding pens beneath the landing tower. Jessica lowered her arms. Perhaps three minutes had elapsed. She knew there was little likelihood Gurney and his men had taken any of the ringleaders, the ones who posed the most potent threat. They would be the alert and sensitive ones, but the captives would contain some interesting fish as well as the usual culls and dullards. Jessica lowered her arms, and cheering, the people surged to their feet. As though nothing untoward had happened, Jessica walked alone down the ramp, avoiding her daughter, singling out Stilgar for concentrated attention. 
The black beard which fanned out across the neck of his still-suit hood like a wild delta contained flecks of grey, but his eyes carried that same whiteless intensity they'd presented to her on their first encounter in the desert. Stilgar knew what had just occurred, and approved. Here stood a true Fremen naive, a leader of men and capable of bloody decisions. His first words were completely in character. Welcome home, my lady. It's always a pleasure to see direct and effective action. Jessica allowed herself a tiny smile. Close the port still. No one leaves until we've questioned those we took. It's already done, my lady, Stilgar said. Gurney's men and I planned this together. Those were your men, then, the ones who helped? Some of them, my lady. She read the hidden reservations, nodded. You studied me pretty well in those old days, still. As you once were at pains to tell me, my lady, one observes the survivors and learns from them. Alia stepped forward then, and Stilgar stood aside, while Jessica confronted her daughter. Knowing there was no way to hide what she had learned, Jessica did not even try concealment. Alia could read the minutiae when she needed, could read as well any adept of the sisterhood. She would already know by Jessica's behavior what had been seen and interpreted. They were enemies for whom the word mortal touched only the surface. Alia chose anger as the easiest and most proper reaction. How dare you plan an action such as this without consulting me, she demanded, pushing her face close to Jessica's. Jessica spoke mildly. As you've just heard, Gurney didn't even let me in on the whole plan. It was thought, and you, Stilgar, Alia said, rounding on him, to whom are you loyal? My oath is to Muad'Dib's children, Stilgar said, speaking stiffly. We have removed a threat to them. And why doesn't that fill you with joy, daughter? Jessica asked. Alia blinked, glanced once at her mother, suppressed the inner tempest, and even managed a straight-toothed smile. I am filled with joy, mother, she said. And to her own surprise, Alia found that she was happy, experiencing a terrible delight that it was all out in the open at last between herself and her mother. The moment she had dreaded was past, and the power balance had not really been changed. We will discuss this in more detail at a more convenient time, Alia said, speaking both to her mother and Stilgar. But of course, Jessica said, turning with a movement of dismissal to face the Princess Irulan. For a few brief heartbeats, Jessica and the Princess stood silently studying each other, two Bene Gesserits who had broken with the sisterhood for the same reason, love, both of them for love of men who now were dead. This princess had loved Paul in vain, becoming his wife but not his mate, and now she lived only for the children given to Paul by his Fremen concubine Cheney. Jessica spoke first. Where are my grandchildren? At Siech Tabur. Too dangerous for them here, I understand. Irulan permitted herself a faint nod. She had observed the interchange between Jessica and Alia, but put upon it an interpretation for which Alia had prepared her. Jessica has returned to the sisterhood, and we both know they have plans for Paul's children. Irulan had never been the most accomplished adept in the Bene Gesserit, valuable more for the fact that she was a daughter of Shaddam IV than for any other reason, 
often too proud to exert herself in extending her capabilities. Now she chose sides with an abruptness which did no credit to her training. Really, Jessica, Irulan said, the Royal Council should have been consulted. It was wrong of you to work only through... Am I to believe none of you trust Stilgar? Jessica asked. Irulan possessed the wit to realize there could be no answer to such a question. She was glad that the priestly delegates, unable to contain their impatience any longer, pressed forward. She exchanged a glance with Alia, thinking, Jessica's as haughty and certain of herself as ever. A Bene Gesserit axiom arose unbidden in her mind, though. The haughty do but build castle walls behind which they try to hide their doubts and fears. Could that be true of Jessica? Surely not. Then it must be a pose. But for what purpose? The question disturbed Irulan. The priests were noisy in their possession of Muad'Dib's mother. Some only touched her arms, but most bowed low and spoke greetings. At last, the leaders of the delegation took their turn with the most holy reverend mother, accepting the ordained role, the first shall be last, with practiced smiles, telling her that the official lustration ceremony awaited her at the keep, Paul's old fortress stronghold. Jessica studied the pair, finding them repellent. One was called Javid, a young man of surly features and round cheeks, shadowed eyes which could not hide the suspicions lurking in their depths. The other was Zebatalev, second son of a naive she'd known in her Fremen days, as he was quick to remind her. He was easily classified, jollity linked with ruthlessness, a thin face with blonde beard, an air about him of secret excitements and powerful knowledge. Javid, she judged far more dangerous of the two, a man of private counsel, simultaneously magnetic and, she could find no other word, repellent. She found his accents strange, full of old Fremen pronunciations as though he'd come from some isolated pocket of his people. Tell me, Javid, she said, whence come you? I am but a simple Fremen of the desert, he said, every syllable giving the lie to the statement. Zebatalev intruded with an offensive deference, almost mocking. We have much to discuss of the old days, my lady. I was one of the first, you know, to recognize the holy nature of your son's mission. But you weren't one of his Fadaikin, she said. No, my lady, I possessed a more philosophic bent. I studied for the priesthood. And ensured the preservation of your skin, she thought. Javid said, They await us at the keeper, my lady. Again she found the strangeness of his accent an open question demanding an answer. Who awaits us? she asked. The convocation of the faith, or those who keep bright the name and the deeds of your holy son, Javid said. Jessica glanced around her, saw Alia smiling at Javid, asked, Is this man one of your appointees, daughter? Alia nodded. A man destined for great deeds. But Jessica saw that Javid had no pleasure in this attention, marked him for Gurney's special study. And there came Gurney, with five trusted men, signalling that they had the suspicious laggards under interrogation. He walked with the rolling stride of a powerful man, glance flicking left, right, all around, every muscle flowing through the relaxed alertness she had taught him out of the Bene Gesserit Pranabindu manual. 
It was an ugly lump of trained reflexes, a killer and altogether terrifying to some, but Jessica loved him and prized him above all other living men. The scar of an ink-vine whip rippled along his jaw, giving him a sinister appearance, but a smile softened his face as he saw Stilgar. Well done, Stil, he said, and they gripped arms in the Fremen fashion. The illustration, Javid said, touching Jessica's arm. Jessica drew back, chose her words carefully in the controlled power of voice, her tone and delivery calculated for a precise emotional effect upon Javid and Zebatalev. I returned to Dune to see my grandchildren. Must we take time for this priestly nonsense? Zabatalev reacted with shock, his mouth dropping open, eyes alarmed, glancing about at those who had heard. The eyes marked each listener. Priestly nonsense? What effect would such words have, coming from the mother of their messiah? Javid, however, confirmed Jessica's assessment. His mouth hardened, then smiled. The eyes did not smile, nor did they waver to mark the listeners. Javid already knew each member of this party. He had an earshot map of those who would be watched with special care from this point onward. Only seconds later, Javid stopped smiling with an abruptness which said he knew how he had betrayed himself. Javid had not failed to do his homework. He knew the observational powers possessed by the Lady Jessica. A short, jerking nod of his head acknowledged those powers. In a lightning flash of mentation, Jessica weighed the necessities. A subtle hand signal to Gurney would bring Javid's death. It could be done here for effect, or in quiet later and be made to appear an accident. She thought, when we try to conceal our innermost drives, the entire being screams betrayal. Bene Gesserit training turned upon this revelation, raising the adepts above it and teaching them to read the open flesh of others. She saw Javid's intelligence as valuable, a temporary weight in the balance. If he could be won over, he could be the link she needed, the line into the Arakeen priesthood. And he was Alia's man. Jessica said, My official party must remain small. We have room for one addition, however. Javid, you will join us. Zabatalev, I am sorry. And Javid, I will attend this, this ceremony, if you insist. Javid allowed himself a deep breath and a low-voiced, as Muad'Dib's mother commands. He glanced to Alia, to Zabatalev, back to Jessica. It pains me to delay the reunion with your grandchildren, but there are, ah, uh, Reasons of state. Jessica thought, good, he's a businessman above all else. Once we've determined the proper coinage, we'll buy him. And she found herself enjoying the fact that he insisted on his precious ceremony. This little victory would give him power with his fellows, and they both knew it. Accepting his lustration could be a down payment on later services. I presume you've arranged transportation, she said. I give you the desert chameleon, whose ability to blend itself into the background tells you all you need to know about the roots of ecology and the foundations of a personal identity. Book of Diatribes, from the Hate Chronicle
Leto sat playing a small baliset which had been sent to him on his fifth birthday by that consummate artist of the instrument, Gurney Halleck. In four years of practice, Leto had achieved a certain fluency, although the two bass side strings still gave him trouble. He had found the baliset soothing, however, for particular feelings of upset, a fact which had not escaped Ganima. He sat now in twilight on a rock shelf at the southernmost extremity of the craggy outcropping which sheltered Siech Tabur. Softly he strummed the baliset. Ganima stood behind him, her small figure radiating protest. She had not wanted to come here into the open after learning from Stilgar that their grandmother was delayed in Arakeen. She particularly objected to coming here with nightfall near. Attempting to hurry her brother, she asked, Well, what is it? For an answer, he began another tune. For the first time since accepting the gift, Leto felt intensely aware that this baliset had originated with a master craftsman on Caladan. He possessed inherited memories which could inflict him with profound nostalgia for that beautiful planet where House Atreides had ruled. Leto had but to relax his inner barriers in the presence of this music, and he would hear memories from those times when Gurney had employed the baliset to beguile his friend and charge Paul Atreides. With the baliset sounding in his own hands, Leto felt himself more and more dominated by his father's physical presence. Still he played, relating more strongly to the instrument with every second that passed. He sensed the absolute idealized summation within himself which knew how to play this baliset, though nine-year-old muscles had not yet been conditioned to that inner awareness. Ganima tapped her foot impatiently, unaware that she matched the rhythm of her brother's playing. Setting his mouth in a grimace of concentration, Leto broke from the familiar music and tried a song more ancient than any even Gurney had played. It had been old when Fremen migrated to their fifth planet. The words echoed a Zen Sunni theme, and he heard them in his memory while his fingers elicited a faltering version of the tune. Nature's beauteous form contains a lovely essence, called by some decay. By this lovely presence, new life finds its way. Tears shed silently are but water of the soul, they bring new life to the pain of being, a separation from that seeing which death makes whole. Ganima spoke behind him as he strummed the final note. That's a mucky old song. Why that one? Because it fits. Will you play it for Gurney? Perhaps. He'll call it moody nonsense. I know. Leto peered back over his shoulder at Ganima. There was no surprise in him that she knew the song and its lyrics, but he felt a sudden onset of awe at the singleness of their twinned lives. One of them could die and yet remain alive in the other's consciousness, every shared memory intact, they were that close. He found himself frightened by the timeless web of that closeness, broke his gaze away from her. The web contained gaps, he knew. His fear arose from the newest of those gaps. He felt their lives beginning to separate and wondered, how can I tell her of this thing which has happened only to me? He peered out over the desert, seeing the deep shadows behind the Barakans, those high crescent-shaped migratory dunes which moved like waves around Arrakis. This was Kadem, the inner desert, 
and its dunes were rarely marked these days by the irregularities of a giant worm's progress. Sunset drew bloody streaks over the dunes, imparting a fiery light to the shadow edges. A hawk falling from the crimson sky captured his awareness as it captured a rock partridge in flight. Directly beneath him on the desert floor, plants grew in a profusion of greens, watered by a canard which flowed partly in the open, partly in covered tunnels. The water came from giant wind-trap collectors behind him on the highest point of rock. The green flag of the Atreides flew openly there. Water and green. The new symbols of Arrakis, water and green. A diamond-shaped oasis of planted dunes spread beneath his high perch, focusing his attention into sharp Fremen awareness. The bell call of a nightbird came from the cliff below him, and it amplified the sensation that he lived this moment out of a wild past. Nous avons changé tout cela, he thought, falling easily into one of the ancient tongues which he and Ganima employed in private. We have altered all of that, he sighed. Oublié je ne puis, I cannot forget. Beyond the oasis, he could see, in this failing light, the land Fremen called the emptiness, the land where nothing grows, the land never fertile. Water and the great ecological plan were changing that. There were places now on Arrakis where one could see the plush green velvet of forested hills. Forests on Arrakis. Some in the new generation found it difficult to imagine dunes beneath those undulant green hills. To such young eyes there was no shock value in seeing the flat foliage of rain trees. But Leto found himself thinking now in the old Fremen manner, wary of change, fearful in the presence of the new. He said, The children tell me they seldom find sand trout here near the surface any more. What's that supposed to indicate? Ganima asked. There was petulance in her tone. Things are beginning to change very swiftly, he said. Again the bird chimed in the cliff, and night fell upon the desert as the hawk had fallen upon the partridge. Night often subjected him to an assault of memories, all of those inner lives clamouring for their moment. Ganima didn't object to this phenomenon in quite the way he did. She knew his disquiet, though, and he felt her hand touch his shoulder in sympathy. He struck an angry chord from the balisette. How could he tell her what was happening to him? Within his head were wars, uncounted lives parceling out their ancient memories, violent accidents, love's languor, the colours of many places and many faces, the buried sorrows and leaping joys of multitudes. He heard elegies to springs on planets which no longer existed, green dances and firelight, wails and halloos, a harvest of conversations without number. Their assault was hardest to bear at nightfall in the open. Shouldn't we be going in? she asked. He shook his head, and she felt the movement, realizing at last that his troubles went deeper than she had suspected. Why do I so often greet the night out here? he asked himself. He did not feel Ganima withdraw her hand. You know why you torment yourself this way, she said. He heard the gentle chiding in her voice. Yes, he knew. The answer lay there in his awareness. Obvious. 
because that great known unknown within moves me like a wave. He felt the cresting of his past, as though he rode a surfboard. He had his father's time-spread memories of prescience superimposed upon everything else, yet he wanted all of those pasts. He wanted them, and they were so very dangerous. He knew that completely now with this new thing which he would have to tell Ganima. The desert was beginning to glow under the rising light of first moon. He stared out at the false immobility of sand furls reaching into infinity. To his left, in the near distance, lay the attendant, a rock outcropping which sandblast winds had reduced to a low, sinuous shape like a dark worm striking through the dunes. Some day the rock beneath him would be cut down to such a shape, and Siech Tabor would be no more, except in the memories of someone like himself. He did not doubt that there would be someone like himself. Why are you staring at the attendant? Ganima asked. He shrugged. In defiance of their guardian's orders, he and Ganima often went to the attendant. They had discovered a secret hiding place there, and Leto knew now why that place lured them. Beneath him, its distance foreshortened by darkness, an open stretch of Kanat gleamed in moonlight, its surface rippled with movements of predator fish which Fremen always planted in their stored water to keep out the sand trout. I stand between fish and worm, he murmured. What? He repeated it louder. She put a hand to her mouth, beginning to suspect the thing which moved him. Her father had acted thus. She had but to peer inward and compare. Leto shuddered. Memories which fastened him to places his flesh had never known presented him with answers to questions he had not asked. He saw relationships and unfolding events against a gigantic inner screen. The sandworm of Dune would not cross water. Water poisoned it. Yet water had been known here in prehistoric times. White gypsum pans attested to bygone lakes and seas. Wells deep-drilled found water which sand trout sealed off. As clearly as if he'd witnessed the events, he saw what had happened on this planet, and it filled him with foreboding for the cataclysmic changes which human intervention was bringing. His voice barely above a whisper, he said, I know. What happened, Ganima? She bent close to him. Yes, the sand trout. He fell silent, and she wondered why he kept referring to the haploid phase of the planet's giant sandworm, but she dared not prod him. The sand trout, he repeated, was introduced here from some other place. This was a wet planet then. They proliferated beyond the capability of existing ecosystems to deal with them. Sand trout insisted the available free water made this a desert planet, and they did it to survive. In a planet sufficiently dry, they could move to their sandworm phase. The sand trout? She shook her head, not doubting him, but unwilling to search those depths where he gathered such information, and she thought, Sand trout? Many times in this flesh and other had she played the childhood game, polling for sand trout, teasing them into a thinned love membrane before taking them to the death still for their water. 
It was difficult to think of this mindless little creature as a shaper of enormous events. Plato nodded to himself. Fremen had always known to plant predator fish in their water cisterns. The haploid sand trout actively resisted great accumulations of water near the planet's surface. Predators swam in that canat below him. Their sandworm vector could handle small amounts of water, the amounts held in cellular bondage by human flesh, for example. But confronted by large bodies of water, their chemical factories went wild, exploded in the death transformation which produced the dangerous melange concentrate, the ultimate awareness drug employed in a diluted fraction for the Siech orgy. That pure concentrate had taken Paul Muad'Dib through the walls of time, deep into the well of dissolution which no other male had ever dared. Ganima sensed her brother trembling where he sat in front of her. What have you done? she demanded. But he would not leave his own train of revelation. Fewer sand trout, the ecological transformation of the planet. They resist it, of course she said, and now she began to understand the fear in his voice, drawn into this thing against her will. When the sand trout go, so do all the worms, he said. The tribes must be warned. No more spice, she said. Words merely touched high points of the system danger which they both saw hanging over human intrusion into Dune's ancient relationships. It's the thing Alia knows, he said. It's why she gloats. How can you be sure of that? I'm sure. Now she knew for certain what disturbed him, and she felt the knowledge chill her. The tribes won't believe us if she denies it, he said. His statement went to the primary problem of their existence. What Fremen expected wisdom from a nine-year-old? Alia, growing farther and farther from her own inner sharing each day, played upon this. We must convince Stilgar, Ganima said. As one, their heads turned and they stared out over the moonlit desert. It was a different place now, changed by just a few moments of awareness. Human interplay with that environment had never been more apparent to them. They felt themselves as integral parts of a dynamic system held in delicately balanced order. The new outlook involved a real change of consciousness which flooded them with observations. As Liet Kynes had said, the universe was a place of constant conversation between animal populations. The haploid sand trout had spoken to them as human animals. The tribes would understand a threat to water, Plato said. But it's a threat to more than water. It's a... She fell silent, understanding the deeper meaning of his words. Water was the ultimate power symbol on Arrakis. At their roots, Fremen remained special application animals, desert survivors, governance experts under conditions of stress. And as water became plentiful, a strange symbol transfer came over them, even while they understood the old necessities. You mean a threat to power, she corrected him. Of course. But will they believe us? If they see it happening, if they see the imbalance. Balance, she said, and repeated her father's words from long ago. It's what distinguishes a people from a mob. Her words called up their father in him, and he said, Economics versus beauty, a story older than Sheba. He sighed, looked over his shoulder at her. 
I'm beginning to have prescient dreams, Gani. A sharp gasp escaped her. He said, when Stilgar told us our grandmother was delayed, I already knew that moment. Now my other dreams are suspect. Leto, she shook her head, eyes damp. It came later for our father. Don't you think it might be? I've dreamed myself enclosed in armor and racing across the dunes, he said. And I've been to Jakarutu. Jaku, she cleared her throat. That old myth. A real place. Gani. I must find this man they call the Preacher. I must find him and question him. You think he's our father? Ask yourself that question. It'll be just like him, she agreed. But I don't like the things I know I'll do, he said. For the first time in my life, I understand my father. She felt excluded from his thoughts, said, The Preacher's probably just an old mystic. I pray for that he whispered. Oh, how I pray for that. He rocked forward, got to his feet. The baliset hummed in his hand as he moved. Would that he were only Gabriel without a horn. He stared silently at the moonlit desert. She turned to look where he looked, saw the foxfire glow of rotting vegetation at the edge of the C.H. plantings, then the clean blending into lines of dunes. That was a living place out there. Even when the desert slept, something remained awake in it. She sensed that wakefulness, hearing animals below her drinking at the canat. Leto's revelation had transformed the night. This was a living moment, a time to discover regularities within perpetual change, an instant in which to feel that long movement from their tyrannic past, all of it encapsulated in her memories. Why, Jakarutu? she asked, and the flatness of her tone shattered the mood. Why, I don't know. When Stilgar first told us how they killed the people there and made the place taboo, I thought what you thought. But danger comes from there now. And the preacher. She didn't respond, didn't demand that he share more of his prescient dreams with her, and she knew how much this told him of her terror. That way led to abomination, and they both knew it. The word hung unspoken between them as he turned and led the way back over the rocks to the Siech entrance. Abomination The universe is God's. It is one thing, a wholeness against which all separations may be identified. Transient life even that self-aware and reasoning life which we call sentient holds only fragile trusteeship on any portion of the wholeness. Commentaries from the CET, Commission of Ecumenical Translators Halleck used hand signals to convey the actual message while speaking aloud of other matters. He didn't like the small anteroom the priests had assigned for this report, knowing it would be crawling with spy devices. Let them try to break the tiny hand signals, though. The Atreides had used this means of communication for centuries without anyone the wiser. Night had fallen outside, but the room had no windows, depending upon glow globes at the upper corners. Many of those we took were Alia's people, Halleck signaled, watching Jessica's face as he spoke aloud, telling her the interrogation still continued. It was as you anticipated, then. Jessica replied, her fingers winking. 
She nodded and spoke an open reply. I'll expect a full report when you're satisfied, Gurney. Of course, my lady, he said, and his fingers continued. There is another thing quite disturbing. Under the deep drugs, some of our captives talked of Jakarutu, and as they spoke the name, they died. A conditioned heart stopper? Jessica's fingers asked, and she said, Have you released any of the captives? A few, my lady, the more obvious culls. And his fingers darted. We suspect a heart compulsion, but are not yet certain. The autopsies aren't completed. I thought you'd know about this thing of Jakarutu, however, and came immediately. My duke and I always thought Jakarutu an interesting legend, probably based on fact. Jessica's fingers said, and she ignored the usual tug of sorrow as she spoke of her long-dead love. Do you have orders? Halleck asked, speaking aloud. Jessica answered in kind, telling him to return to the landing field and report when he had positive information. But her fingers conveyed another message. Resume contacts with your friends among the smugglers. If Jakarutu exists, they'll support themselves by selling spice. There'd be no other market for them except the smugglers. Halleck bowed his head briefly while his fingers said, I've already set this course in motion, my lady. And because he could not ignore the training of a lifetime, added, Be very careful in this place. Alia is your enemy, and most of the priesthood belongs to her. Not Javid, Jessica's fingers responded. He hates the Atreides. I doubt anyone but an adept could detect it, but I'm positive of it. He conspires, and Alia doesn't know of it. I'm assigning additional guards to your person, Halleck said, speaking aloud, avoiding the light spark of displeasure which Jessica's eyes betrayed. There are dangers, I'm certain. Will you spend the night here? We'll go later to Siech Tabor, she said, and hesitated, on the point of telling him not to send more guards, but she held her silence. Gurney's instincts were to be trusted. More than one Atreides had learned this, both to his pleasure and his sorrow. I have one more meeting— with the master of novitiates this time, she said. That's the last one, and I'll be happily shut of this place. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the sand, and he had two horns like a lamb, but his mouth was fanged and fiery as the dragon, and his body shimmered and burned with great heat while it did hiss like the serpent. Revised Orange Catholic Bible he called himself the Preacher, and there had come to be an awesome fear among many on Arrakis that he might be Muad'Dib returned from the desert, not dead at all. Muad'Dib could be alive, for who had seen his body? For that matter, who saw any body that the desert took? But still, Muad'Dib? Points of comparison could be made, although no one from the old days came forward and said, Yes, I see that this is Muad'Dib, I know him. Still, like Muad'Dib, the preacher was blind, his eye sockets black and scarred in a way that could have been done by a stone burner, and his voice conveyed that crackling penetration, that same compelling force which demanded a response from deep within you. Many remarked this. He was lean, this preacher, his leathery face seamed, his hair grizzled. But the deep desert did that to many people. You had only to look about you and see this proven. And there was another fact for contention. 
The preacher was led by a young Fremen, a lad without known Sietch who said, when questioned, that he worked for hire. It was argued that Muad'Dib, knowing the future, had not needed such a guide except at the very end when his grief overcame him. But he'd needed a guide then. Everyone knew it. The preacher had appeared one winter morning in the streets of Arikin, a brown and ridge-veined hand on the shoulder of his young guide. The lad, who gave his name as Asan Tariq, moved through the flint-smelling dust of the early swarming, leading his charge with the practiced agility of the Warren-born, never once losing contact. It was observed that the blind man wore a traditional burka over a still suit which bore the mark about it of those once made only in the Siech caves of the deepest desert. It wasn't like the shabby suits being turned out these days. The nose tube, which captured moisture from his breath for the recycling layers beneath the burka, was wrapped in braid, and it was the black vine braid so seldom seen any more. The suit's mask across the lower half of his face carried green patches etched by the blown sand. All in all, this preacher was a figure from Dune's past. Many among the early crowds of that winter day had noted his passage. After all, a blind Fremen remained a rarity. Fremen law still consigned the blind to Shaihulud. The wording of the law, although it was less honoured in these modern, water-soft times, remained unchanged from the earliest days. The blind were a gift to Shai Hulud. They were to be exposed in the open bled for the great worms to devour. When it was done, and there were stories which got back to the cities, it was always done out where the largest worms still ruled, those called old men of the desert. A blind Fremen then was a curiosity, and people paused to watch the passing of this odd pair. The lad appeared about fourteen standard, one of the new breed who wore modified still suits. It left the face open to the moisture-robbing air. He had slender features, the all-blue spice-tinted eyes, a nubbin nose, and that innocuous look of innocence which so often masks cynical knowledge in the young. In contrast, the blind man was a reminder of times almost forgotten, long in stride and with a wariness that spoke of many years on the sand with only his feet or a captive worm to carry him. He held his head in that stiff-necked rigidity which some of the blind cannot put off. The hooded head moved only when he cocked an ear at an interesting sound. Through the day's gathering crowds the strange pair came, arriving at last on the steps which led up like terraced hectares to the escarpment which was Alia's temple, a fitting companion to Paul's keep. Up the steps the preacher went, until he and his young guide came to the third landing, where pilgrims of the Hajj awaited the morning opening of those gigantic doors above them. They were doors large enough to have admitted an entire cathedral from one of the ancient religions. Passing through them was said to reduce a pilgrim's soul to motedom, sufficiently small that he could pass through the eye of a needle and enter heaven. At the edge of the third landing the preacher turned, and it was as though he looked about him, seeing with his empty eye sockets the foppish city dwellers, some of them Fremen, with garments which simulated still suits but were only decorative fabrics seeing the eager pilgrims fresh off the guild space transports and awaiting that first step on the devotion which would ensure them a place in paradise. The landing was a noisy place. 
There were Mahdi spirit cultists in green robes and carrying live hawks trained to screech a call to heaven. Food was being sold by shouting vendors. Many things were being offered for sale, the voices shouting in competitive stridents. There was the Dune Tarot with its booklets of commentaries imprinted on Shigawa. One vendor had exotic bits of cloth. Guaranteed to have been touched by Muad'Dib himself. Another had vials of water. Certified to have come from Siech Tabor, where Muad'Dib lived. Through it all, there were conversations in a hundred or more dialects of Galak, interspersed with harsh gutturals and squeaks of Utrine languages which were gathered under the Holy Imperium. Face dancers and little people from the suspected artisan planets of the Tleilaxu bounced and gyrated through the throng in bright clothing. There were lean faces and fat, water-rich faces. The susurration of nervous feet came from the gritty plasteel which formed the wide steps, and occasionally a keening voice would rise out of the cacophony in prayer. Mwadib! Muad'Dib, greet my soul's entreaty. You who are a god's anointed, greet my soul. Muad'Dib. Nearby among the pilgrims, two mummers played for a few coins, reciting the lines of the currently popular Disputation of Armistead and Leongra. The preacher cocked his head to listen. The mummers were middle-aged city men with bored voices. At a word of command, the young guy described them for the preacher. They were garbed in loose robes, not even deigning to simulate still suits on their water-rich bodies. Asantarik thought this amusing, but the preacher reprimanded him. The mummer who played the part of Leandra was just concluding his oration. Bah! The universe can be grasped only by the sentient hand. That hand is what drives your precious brain, and it drives everything else that derives from the brain. You see what you have created, you become sentient, only after the hand has done its work. A scattering of applause greeted his performance. The preacher sniffed, and his nostrils recorded the rich odours of this place, uncapped esters of poorly adjusted stillsuits, masking musks of diverse origin, the common flinty dust, exhalations of uncounted exotic diets, and the aromas of rare incense, which already had been ignited within Aliyah's temple, and now drifted down over the steps in cleverly directed currents. The preacher's thoughts were mirrored on his face as he absorbed his surroundings. We have come to this, we Fremen. A sudden diversion rippled through the crowd on the landing. Sand dancers had come into the plaza at the foot of the steps, half a hundred of them tethered to each other by ilaka ropes. They obviously had been dancing thus for days, seeking a state of ecstasy. Foam dribbled from their mouths as they jerked and stamped to their secret music. A full third of them dangled unconscious from the ropes, tugged back and forth by the others like dolls on strings. One of these dolls had come awake, though, and the crowd apparently knew what to expect. I have seen, the newly awakened dancer shrieked. I have seen. He resisted the pull of the other dancers, darted his wild gaze right and left. Where this city is, there will be only sand. I have seen. A great swelling laugh went up from the onlookers. Even the new pilgrims joined it. This was too much for the preacher. 
He raised both arms and roared in a voice which surely had commanded worm riders, Silence! The entire throng in the plaza went still at that battle cry. The preacher pointed a thin hand toward the dancers, and the illusion that he actually saw them was uncanny. Did you not hear that, man? Blasphemers and idolaters, all of you! The religion of Muad'Dib is not Muad'Dib. He spurns it as he spurns you. Sand will cover this place. Sand will cover you. Saying this, he dropped his arms, put a hand on his young guide's shoulder and commanded, Take me from this place. Perhaps it was the preacher's choice of words. He spurns it as he spurns you. Perhaps it was his tone. Certainly something more than human, a vocality trained surely in the arts of the Bene Gesserit voice, which commanded by mere nuances of subtle inflection. Perhaps it was only the inherent mysticism of this place where Muad'Dib had lived and walked and ruled. Someone called out from the landing, shouting at the preachers receding back in a voice which trembled with religious awe. Is that Muad'Dib come back to us? The preacher stopped, reached into the purse beneath his borka, and removed an object which only those nearby recognized. It was a desert-mummified human hand, one of the planet's jokes on mortality which occasionally turned up in the sand and were universally regarded as communications from Shaihulud. The hand had been desiccated into a tight fist, which ended in white bone scarred by sandblast winds. I bring the hand of God, and that is all I bring, the preacher shouted. I speak for the hand of God. I am the preacher. Some took him to mean that the hand was Muad'Dib's, but others fastened on that commanding presence and the terrible voice. And that was how Arrakis came to know his name. But it was not the last time his voice was heard. It is commonly reported, my dear Gerard, that there exists great natural virtue in the melange experience. Perhaps this is true. There remain within me, however, profound doubts that every use of melange always brings virtue. Meseems that certain persons have corrupted the use of melange in defiance of God. In the words of the Ecumenon, they have disfigured the soul. They skim the surface of melange and believe thereby to attain grace. They deride their fellows, do great harm to godliness, and they distort the meaning of this abundant gift maliciously, surely a mutilation beyond the power of man to restore. To be truly at one with the virtue of the spice, uncorrupted in all ways, full of goodly honor, a man must permit his deeds and his words to agree. When your actions describe a system of evil consequences, you should be judged by those consequences and not by your explanations. It is thus that we should judge Muad'Dib, the pedant heresy. It was a small room, tinged with the odor of ozone, and reduced to a shadowy grayness by dimmed glow-globes and the metallic blue light of a single trans-eye monitoring screen. The screen was about a meter wide and only two-thirds of a meter in height. It revealed in remote detail a barren, rocky valley with two laser tigers feeding on the bloody remnants of a recent kill. 
On the hillside above the tigers could be seen a slender man in Sadukha working uniform, Levenbreck insignia at his collar. He wore a servo-control keyboard against his chest. One very form suspenser chair faced the screen, occupied by a fair-haired woman of indeterminate age. She had a heart-shaped face and slender hands which gripped the chair arms as she watched. The fullness of a white robe trimmed in gold concealed her figure. A pace to her right stood a blocky man dressed in the bronze and gold uniform of a basha aide in the old imperial sadhuka. His greying hair had been closely cropped over square, emotionless features. The woman coughed, said, It went as you predicted, Jekanik. Assuredly, princess, the basha aide said, his voice hoarse. She smiled at the tension in his voice, asked, Tell me, Tjekanik, how will my son like the sound of Emperor Fardin I? The title suits him, princess. That was not my question. He might not approve some of the things done to gain him that, ah, uh, title. Then again, she turned, peered up through the gloom at him. You served my father well. It was not your fault that he lost the throne to the Atreides. But surely the sting of that loss must be felt as keenly by you as by any... Does the princess Wincisia have some special task for me? Tjekanik asked. His voice remained hoarse, but there was a sharp edge to it now. You have a bad habit of interrupting me, she said. Now he smiled, displaying thick teeth which glistened in the light from the screen. At times you remind me of your father, he said. Always these circumlocutions before a request for a delicate, uh, assignment. She jerked her gaze away from him to conceal anger, asked, Do you really think those lasers will put my son on the throne? It's distinctly possible, princess. You must admit that the bastard get of Paul Atreides would be no more than juicy morsels for those two. And with those twins gone, he shrugged. The grandson of Shaddam IV becomes the logical successor, she said. That is if we can remove the objections of the Frem and the Lanthrot and Chom, not to mention any surviving Atreides who might. Javid assures me that his people can take care of Alia quite easily. I do not count the Lady Jessica as an Atreides. Who else remains? Lanthrot and Chom will go where the prophet goes, she said. But what of the Fremen? We'll drown them in their Muad'Dib's religion. Easier said than done, my dear Tjekanik. I see, he said. We're back to that old argument. House Corino has done worse things to gain power, she said. But to embrace this, this Mahdi's religion. My son respects you, she said. Princess, I long for the day when House Corino returns to its rightful seat of power. So does every remaining Saduka here on Salusa. But if you... Tjekanik, this is the planet Salusa Secundus. Do not fall into the lazy ways which spread through our Imperium. Full name, complete title, attention to every detail. Those attributes will send the Atreides' lifeblood into the sands of Arrakis. Every detail, Tjekanik. He knew what she was doing with this attack. It was part of the shifty trickiness she'd learned from her sister Irulan, but he felt himself losing ground. Do you hear me, Tjekanik? I hear, princess. 
I want you to embrace this Muad'Dib religion, she said. Princess, I would walk into fire for you, but this- That is an order, Tiekanik. He swallowed, stared into the screen. The laser tigers had finished feeding, and now lay on the sand completing their toilet, long tongues moving across their forepaws. An order, Tiekanik. Do you understand me? I hear and obey, princess. His voice did not change tone. She sighed. Oh, if my father were only alive. Yes, princess. Don't mock me, Tiekanik. I know how distasteful this is to you, but if you set the example... He may not follow, princess. He'll follow. She pointed at the screen. It occurs to me that the Lievenbreck out there could be a problem. A problem? How is that? How many people know this thing of the tigers? That Lievenbreck who is their trainer, one transport pilot, you, and of course... He tapped his own chest. What about the buyers? They know nothing. What is it you fear, princess? My son is, well, sensitive. Saduka do not reveal secrets, he said. Neither do dead men. She reached forward and depressed a red key beneath the lighted screen. Immediately the laser tigers raised their heads. They got to their feet and looked up the hill at the Lievenbreck. Moving as one, they turned and began a scrambling run up the hillside. Appearing calm at first, the Lievenbreck depressed a key on his console. His movements were assured, but... As the cats continued their dash toward him, he became more frenzied, pressing the key harder and harder. A look of startled awareness came over his features, and his hand jerked toward the working knife at his waist. The movement came too late. A raking claw hit his chest and sent him sprawling. As he fell, the other tiger took his neck in one great fanged bite and shook him. His spine snapped. Attention to detail the princess said. She turned, stiffened as Tiekanik drew his knife, but he presented the blade to her, handle foremost. Perhaps you'd like to use my knife to attend to another detail, he said. Put that back in its sheath and don't act the fool, she raged. Sometimes, Tiekanik, you try me to the- That was a good man out there, princess. One of my best. One of my best, she corrected him. He drew a deep, trembling breath, sheathed his knife. And what of my transport pilot? This will be ascribed to an accident, she said. You will advise him to employ the utmost caution when he brings those tigers back to us. And, of course, when he has delivered our pets to Javid's people on the transport. She looked at his knife. Is that an order, princess? It is. Shall I then fall on my knife, or will you take care of that, uh, detail? She spoke with a false calm, her voice heavy. Dear Kanik, were I not absolutely convinced that you would fall on your knife at my command, you would not be standing here beside me, armed. He swallowed, stared at the screen. The tigers once more were feeding. She refused to look at the scene, continued to stare at Tiekanik as she said, You will as well tell our buyers not to bring us any more matched pairs of children who fit the necessary description. 
As you command, princess. Don't choose that tone with me, Tiekanik. Yes, princess. Her lips drew into a straight line, then, how many more of those paired costumes do we have? Six sets of the robes, complete with still suits and the sand shoes, all with the Atreides insignia worked into them. Fabrics as rich as the ones on that pair? She nodded toward the screen. Fit for royalty, princess. Attention to detail, she said. The garments will be dispatched to Arrakis as gifts for our royal cousins. They will be gifts from my son. Do you understand me, Tekanik? Completely, princess. Have him inscribe a suitable note. It should say that he sends these few paltry garments as tokens of his devotion to House Atreides, something on that order. And the occasion? There must be a birthday or holy day or something, Jekanik. I leave that to you. I trust you, my friend. He stared at her silently. Her face hardened. Surely you must know that. Who else can I trust since the death of my husband? He shrugged, thinking how closely she emulated the spider. It would not do to get on intimate terms with her, as he now suspected his Lievenbrack had done. And Tiekanik, she said, one more detail. Yes, princess. My son is being trained to rule. There will come a time when he must grasp the sword in his own hands. You will know when that moment arrives. I wish to be informed immediately. As you command, princess. She leaned back, peered knowingly at Tiekanik. You do not approve of me, I know that. It is unimportant to me as long as you remember the lesson of the Levenbreck. He was very good with animals, but disposable. Yes, princess. That is not what I mean. It isn't? Then I don't understand. An army, she said, is composed of disposable, completely replaceable parts. That is the lesson of the Levenbreck. Replaceable parts, he said, including the supreme command? Without the supreme command, there is seldom a reason for an army, Tekanik. That is why you will immediately embrace this Mahdi religion and at the same time begin the campaign to convert my son. At once, princess. I presume you don't want me to stint his education in the other martial arts at the expense of this, ah, uh, religion. She pushed herself out of the chair, strode around him, paused at the door and spoke without looking back. Someday you will try my patience once too often, Tiekanik. With that, she let herself out. Either we abandon the long-honored theory of relativity, or we cease to believe that we can engage in continued accurate prediction of the future. Indeed, knowing the future raises a host of questions which cannot be answered under conventional assumptions unless one first projects an observer outside of time, and second nullifies all movement. If you accept the theory of relativity, it can be shown that time and the observer must stand still in relationship to each, or inaccuracies will intervene. This would seem to say that it is impossible to engage in accurate prediction of the future. How then do we explain the continued seeking after this visionary goal by respected scientists? How then do we explain Muad'Dib? Lectures on Prescience by Haq Aladar I must tell you something, Jessica said, even though I know my telling will remind you of many experiences from our mutual past, and that this will place you in jeopardy. She paused to see how Ganima was taking this. 
They sat alone, just the two of them, occupying low cushions in a chamber of Siech Tabor. It had required considerable skill to maneuver this meeting, and Jessica was not at all certain that she had been alone in the maneuvering. Ganima had seemed to anticipate and augment every step. It was almost two hours after daylight, and the excitements of greeting and all of the recognitions were past. Jessica forced her pulse back to a steady pace and focused her attention into this rock-walled room with its dark hangings and yellow cushions. To meet the accumulated tensions, she found herself for the first time in years recalling the litany against fear from the Bene Gesserit rite. I must not fear. Fear is the mind-killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. She did this silently and took a deep, calming breath. It helps at times, Ganima said. The litany, I mean. Jessica closed her eyes to hide the shock of this insight. It had been a long time since anyone had been able to read her that intimately. The realization was disconcerting, especially when it was ignited by an intellect which hid behind a mask of childhood. Having faced her fear, though, Jessica opened her eyes and knew the source of turmoil. I fear for my grandchildren. Neither of these children betrayed the stigmata of abomination which Aaliyah flaunted, although Leto showed every sign of some terrifying concealment. It was for that reason he'd been deftly excluded from this meeting. On impulse, Jessica put aside her ingrained emotional masks, knowing them to be of little use here, barriers to communication. Not since those loving moments with her duke had she lowered these barriers, and she found the action both relief and pain. There remained facts which no curse or prayer or litany could wash from existence. Flight would not leave such facts behind. They could not be ignored. Elements of Paul's vision had been rearranged, and the times had caught up with his children. They were a magnet in the void, evil and all the sad misuses of power collected around them. Ganima, watching the play of emotions across her grandmother's face, marveled that Jessica had let down her controls. With catching movements of their heads remarkably synchronized, both turned, eyes met, and they stared deeply, probingly at each other. Thoughts without spoken words passed between them. Jessica, I wish you to see my fear. Ganima, now I know you love me. It was a swift moment of utter trust. Jessica said, When your father was but a boy, I brought a reverend mother to Caladan to test him. Ganima nodded. The memory of it was extremely vivid. We Bene Gesserits were already cautious to make sure that the children we raised were human and not animal. One cannot always tell by exterior appearances. It's the way you were trained, Ganima said, and the memory flooded into her mind. That old Bene Gesserit, Gaius Helen Mohayam. She'd come to Castle Caladan with her poisoned Gom Jabbar and her box of burning pain. Paul's hand, Ganima's own hand in the shared memory, screamed with the agony of that box while the old woman talked calmly of immediate death if the hand were withdrawn from the pain. And there had been no doubt of the death in that needle held ready against the child's neck while the aged voice droned its rationale. 
You've heard of animals chewing off a leg to escape a trap. There's an animal kind of trick. A human would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper and remove a threat to his kind. Ganima shook her head against the remembered pain. The burning, the burning. Paul had imagined his skin curling black on that agonized hand within the box, flesh crisping and dropping away until only charred bones remained. And it had been a trick, the hand unharmed. But sweat stood out on Gunima's forehead at the memory. Of course you remember this in a way that I cannot, Jessica said. For a moment, memory-driven, Ganima saw her grandmother in a different light. What this woman might do out of the driving necessities of that early conditioning in the Bene Gesserit schools. It raised new questions about Jessica's return to Arrakis. It would be stupid to repeat such a test on you or your brother, Jessica said. You already know the way it went. I must assume you are human, that you will not misuse your inherited powers. But you don't make that assumption at all, Ganima said. Jessica blinked, realized that the barriers had been creeping back in place, dropped them once more. She asked, Will you believe my love for you? Yes, Ganima raised a hand as Jessica started to speak. But that love wouldn't stop you from destroying us. Oh, I know the reasoning. Better the animal-human die than it recreate itself. And that's especially true if the animal-human bears the name Atreides. You at least are human, Jessica blurted. I trust my instinct on this. Ganima saw the truth in this, said. But you're not sure of Leto. I'm not. Abomination? Jessica could only nod. Ganima said, Not yet, at least. We both know the danger of it, though. We can see the way of it in Alia. Jessica cupped her hands over her eyes, thought, even love can't protect us from unwanted facts. And she knew then that she still loved her daughter, crying out silently against fate. Aaliyah, oh Aaliyah, I am sorry for my part in your destruction. Ganima cleared her throat loudly. Jessica lowered her hands, thought, I may mourn my poor daughter, but there are other necessities now. She said, so you've recognized what happened to Aaliyah? Leto and I watched it happen. We were powerless to prevent it, although we discussed many possibilities. You're sure that your brother is free of this curse? I'm sure. The quiet assurance in that statement could not be denied. Jessica found herself accepting it. Then, how is it you've escaped? Ganima explained a theory upon which she and Leto had settled, that their avoiding of the spice trance while Aaliyah entered it often made the difference. She went on to reveal his dreams and the plans they'd discussed, even Jakarutu. Jessica nodded. Aaliyah is an Atreides, though, and that poses enormous problems. Ganima fell silent before the sudden realization that Jessica still mourned her duke as though his death had been but yesterday that she would guard his name and memory against all threats. Personal memories from the Duke's own lifetime fled through Ganima's awareness to reinforce this assessment, to soften it with understanding. Now, Jessica said, voice brisk, what about this preacher? I heard some disquieting reports yesterday after that damnable lustration. Ganima shrugged. 
He could be. Paul? Yes, but we haven't seen him to examine. Javid laughs at the rumors, Jessica said. Ganima hesitated. Then, do you trust this Javid? A grim smile touched Jessica's lips. No more than you do. Leto says Javid laughs at the wrong things, Ganima said. So much for Javid's laughter, Jessica said. But do you actually entertain the notion that my son is still alive? That he has returned in this guise? We say it's possible. And Leto... Ganima found her mouth suddenly dry, remembered fears clutching her breast. She forced herself to overcome them, recounted Leto's other revelations of prescient dreams. Jessica moved her head from side to side as though wounded. Ganima said, Leto says he must find this preacher and make sure. Yes, of course. I should never have left here. It was cowardly of me. Why do you blame yourself? You had reached a limit, I know that. Leto knows it, even Aliyah may know it. Jessica put a hand to her own throat, rubbed it briefly, then, yes, the problem of Aliyah. She works a strange attraction on Leto, Ganima said. That's why I helped you meet alone with me. He agrees that she is beyond hope, but still he finds ways to be with her and study her. And it's very disturbing. When I try to talk against this, he falls asleep. He... Is she drugging him? No, Ganima shook her head. But he has this odd empathy for her, and in his sleep he often mutters, Jakarutu. That again. And Jessica found herself recounting Gurney's report about the conspirators exposed at the landing field. I sometimes fear Aliyah wants Leto to seek out Jakarutu, Ganima said, and I always thought it only a legend. You know it, of course. Jessica shuddered. Terrible story. Terrible. What must we do? Ganima asked. I fear to search all of my memories, all of my lives. Kani, I warn you against that. You mustn't risk. It may happen even if I don't risk it. How do we know what really happened to Aaliyah? No, you could be spared that, that possession. She ground the word out. Well, Jakarutu, is it? I've sent Gurney to find the place, if it exists. But how can he... Oh, of course, the smugglers. Jessica found herself silenced by this further example of how Ganima's mind worked in concert with what must be an inner awareness of others. Of me. How truly strange it was, Jessica thought, that this young flesh could carry all of Paul's memories, at least until the moment of Paul's spermal separation from his own past. It was an invasion of privacy against which something primal in Jessica rebelled. Momentarily she felt herself sinking into the absolute and unswerving Bene Gesserit judgment. Abomination. But there was a sweetness about this child, a willingness to sacrifice for her brother which could not be denied. We are one life, reaching out into a dark future, Jessica thought. We are one blood. And she girded herself to accept the events which she and Gurney Halleck had set in motion. Leto must be separated from his sister, must be trained as the sisterhood insisted. I hear the wind blowing across the desert.
and I see the moons of a winter night rising like great ships in the void. To them I make my vow. I will be resolute and make an art of government. I will balance my inherited past and become a perfect storehouse of my relic memories, and I will be known for kindliness more than for knowledge. My face will shine down the corridors of time for as long as humans exist. Plato's Vow, after Hark Aladar. When she had been quite young, Alia Atreides had practiced for hours in the Pranabindu trance, trying to strengthen her own private personality against the onslaught of all those others. She knew the problem. Melange could not be escaped in a C.H. Warren. It infested everything, food, water, air, even the fabrics against which she cried at night. Very early she recognized the uses of the C.H. orgy, where the tribe drank the death water of a worm. In the orgy, Fremen released the accumulated pressures of their own genetic memories, and they denied those memories. She saw her companions being temporarily possessed in the orgy. For her, there was no such release, no denial. She had possessed full consciousness long before birth. With that consciousness came a cataclysmic awareness of her circumstances. Womb locked into intense, inescapable contact with the personas of all her ancestors and of those identities death transmitted in spice Tao to the Lady Jessica. Before birth, Alia had contained every bit of the knowledge required in a Bene Gesserit reverend mother, plus much, much more from all those others. In that knowledge lay recognition of a terrible reality abomination. The totality of that knowledge weakened her. The pre-born did not escape. Still, she'd fought against the more terrifying of her ancestors, winning for a time a Pyrrhic victory which had lasted through childhood. She'd known a private personality, but it had no immunity against casual intrusions from those who lived their reflected lives through her. Thus will I be one day, she thought. This thought chilled her. To walk and dissemble through the life of a child from her own loins, intruding, grasping at consciousness to add a quantum of experience. Fear stalked her childhood. It persisted into puberty. She had fought it, never asking for help. Who would understand the help she required? Not her mother, who could never quite drive away that spectre of Bene Gesserit judgment, the pre-born were abomination. There had come that night when her brother walked alone into the desert seeking death, giving himself to Shai Hulud as blind Fremen were supposed to do. Within the month, Alia had been married to Paul's swordmaster, Duncan Idaho, a mentat brought back from the dead by the arts of the Tleilaxu. Her mother fled back to Caladan. Paul's twins were Alia's legal charge, and she controlled the regency. Pressures of responsibility had driven the old fears away, and she had been wide open to the inner lives, demanding their advice, plunging into spice trance in search of guiding visions. The crisis came on a day like many others in the spring month of Lab, a clear morning at Muad'Dib's keep with a cold wind blowing down from the pole. Alia still wore the yellow for morning, the color of the sterile sun. 
More and more these past few weeks she'd been denying the inner voice of her mother, who tended to sneer at preparation for the coming holy days to be centred on the temple. The inner awareness of Jessica faded, faded, sinking away at last with a faceless demand that Arlia would be better occupied working on the Atreides law. New lives began to clamour for their moment of consciousness. Alia felt that she had opened a bottomless pit, and faces arose out of it like a swarm of locusts, until she came at last to focus on one who was like a beast, the old Baron Harkonnen. In terrified outrage, she had screamed out against all of that inner clamor, winning a temporary silence. On this morning, Alia took her pre-breakfast walk through the keep's roof garden. In a new attempt to win the inner battle, she tried to hold her entire awareness within Choda's admonition to the Zen Sunni. Leaving the ladder, one may fall upward. But morning's glow along the cliffs of the shield wall kept distracting her. Plantings of resilient fuzzgrass filled the garden's pathways. When she looked away from the shield wall, she saw dew on the grass, the catch of all the moisture which had passed here in the night. It reflected her own passage as of a multitude. That multitude made her giddy. Each reflection carried the imprint of a face from the inner multitude. She tried to focus her mind on what the grass implied. The presence of plentiful dew told her how far the ecological transformation had progressed on Arrakis. The climate of these northern latitudes was growing warmer. Atmospheric carbon dioxide was on the increase. She reminded herself how many new hectares would be put under green plants in the coming year, and it required 37,000 cubic feet of water to irrigate just one hectare. Despite every attempt at mundane thoughts, she could not drive away the shark-like circling of all those others within her. She put her hands to her forehead and pressed. Her temple guards had brought her a prisoner to judge at sunset the previous day, one Essas Paimon a dark little man ostensibly in the pay of a house miner, the Nibiros, who traded in holy artifacts and small manufactured items for decoration. Actually, Paimon was known to be a chome spy whose task was to assess the yearly spice crop. Aliyah had been on the point of sending him into the dungeons when he'd protested loudly, The injustice of the Atreides! That could have brought him an immediate sentence of death on the hanging tripod, but Alia had been caught by his boldness. She'd spoken sternly from her throne of judgment, trying to frighten him into revealing more than he'd already told her inquisitors. Why are our spice crops of such interest to the Combine Onet? she demanded. Tell us, and we may spare you. I only collect something for which there is a market, Payman said. I know nothing of what is done with my harvest. And for this petty profit, you interfere with our royal plans? Alia demanded. Royalty never considers that we might have plans too, he countered. Alia, captivated by his desperate audacity, said, Esas, Paimon, will you work for me? At this, a grin whitened his dark face, and he said, You were about to obliterate me without a qualm. What is my new value that you should suddenly make a market for it? You've a simple and practical value, she said. You're bold and you're for hire to the highest bidder. I can bid higher than any other in the empire. At which he named a remarkable sum which he required for his services, but Alia laughed and countered with a figure she considered more reasonable and undoubtedly far more than he'd ever before received. She added, 
And, of course, I throw in the gift of your life, upon which I presume you place an even more inordinate value. A bargain, Paimon cried, and at a signal from Alia was led away by her priestly master of appointments, Zyarenko Javid. Less than an hour later, as Alia prepared to leave the judgment hall, Javid came hurrying to report that Paimon had been overheard to mutter the fateful lines from the orange Catholic Bible, Maleficos non patieris vivere. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, Alia translated. So that was his gratitude. He was one of those who plotted against her very life. In a flush of rage, such as she'd never before experienced, she ordered Paimon's immediate execution, sending his body to the temple death still, where his water at least would be of some value in the priestly coffers. And all night long, Paimon's dark face haunted her. She tried all of her tricks against this persistent, accusing image, reciting the bougie from the Fremen Book of Krios. Nothing occurs, nothing occurs. But Paimon took her through a wearing night into this giddy new day, where she could see that his face had joined those in the jeweled reflections from the dew. A female guard called her to breakfast from the roof door behind a low hedge of mimosa. Alia sighed. She felt small choice between hells. The outcry within her mind or the outcry from her attendants. All were pointless voices, but persistent in their demands. Hourglass noises that she would like to silence with the edge of a knife. Ignoring the guard, Alia stared across the roof garden toward the shield wall. A bahada had left its broad outwash like a detrital fan upon the sheltered floor of her domain. The delta of sand spread out before her gaze outlined by the morning sun. It came to her that an uninitiated eye might see that broad fan as evidence of a river's flow, but it was no more than the place where her brother had shattered the shield wall with the Atreides family atomics, opening a path from the desert for the sandworms which had carried his Fremen troops to shocking victory over his imperial predecessor, Shaddam IV. Now a broad canat flowed with water on the shield wall's far side to block off sandworm intrusions. Sandworms would not cross open water. It poisoned them. Would that I had such a barrier within my mind, she thought. The thought increased her giddy sensation of being separated from reality. Sandworms! Sandworms! Her memory presented a collection of sandworm images. Mighty Shai Hulud, the demiurge of the Fremen, deadly beast of the desert's depths, whose outpourings included the priceless spice. How odd it was, this sandworm, to grow from a flat and leathery sand trout, she thought. They were like the flocking multitude within her awareness, the sand trout, when linked edge to edge against the planet's bedrock, formed living cisterns. They held back the water that their sandworm vector might live. Alia could feel the analogy. Some of those others within her mind held back dangerous forces which could destroy her. Again, the guard called her to breakfast, a note of impatience apparent. Angrily, Alia turned, waved a dismissal signal. The guard obeyed, but the roof door slammed. At the sound of the slamming door, Alia felt herself caught by everything she had attempted to deny. The other lives welled up within her like a hideous tide. Each demanding life pressed its face against her vision centers, a cloud of faces. Some presented mange-spotted skin. 
Others were callous and full of sooty shadows. There were mouths like moist lozenges. The pressure of the swarm washed over her in a current which demanded that she float free and plunge into them. No, she whispered. No, no, no. She would have collapsed onto the path but for a bench beside her which accepted her sagging body. She tried to sit, could not, stretched out on the cold plastile, still whispering denial. The tide continued to rise within her. She felt attuned to the slightest show of attention, aware of the risk, but alert for every exclamation from those guarded mouths which clamoured within her. They were a cacophony of demand for her attention. Me, me, no me. And she knew that if she once gave her attention, gave it completely, she would be lost. To behold one face out of the multitude and follow the voice of that face would be to be held by the egocentrism which shared her existence. Prescience does this to you, a voice whispered. She covered her ears with her hands, thinking, I'm not prescient, the chance doesn't work for me. But the voice persisted. It might work if you had help. No, no, she whispered. Other voices wove around her mind. I, Agamemnon, your ancestor, demand audience. No, no, she pressed her hands against her ears until the flesh answered her with pain. An insane cackle within her head asked, What has become of Ovid? Simple, he's John Bartlett's Ibid. The names were meaningless in her extremity. She wanted to scream against them and against all the other voices, but could not find her own voice. Her guard, sent back to the roof by senior attendants, peered once more from the doorway behind the mimosa, saw Aaliyah on the bench, spoke to a companion. Ah, she is resting. You noted that she didn't sleep well last night. It is good for her to take the Zaha, the morning siesta. Aliyah did not hear her guard. Her awareness was caught by shrieks of singing. Merry old birds are we, hurrah! The voices echoed against the inside of her skull, and she thought, I'm going insane, I'm losing my mind. Her feet made feeble fleeing motions against the bench. She felt that if she could only command her body to run, she might escape. She had to escape, lest any part of that inner tide sweep her into silence, forever contaminating her soul but her body would not obey. The mightiest forces in the imperial universe would obey her slightest whim, but her body would not. An inner voice chuckled. Then, From one viewpoint, child, each incident of creation represents a catastrophe. It was a basso voice which rumbled against her eyes, and again that chuckle as though deriding its own pontification. My dear child, I will help you, but you must help me in return. Against the swelling background clamour behind that basso voice, Alia spoke through chattering teeth. Who? Who? A face formed itself upon her awareness. It was a smiling face, of such fatness that it could have been a baby's, except for the glittering eagerness of the eyes. She tried to pull back, but achieved only a longer view which included the body attached to that face. 
The body was grossly, immensely fat, clothed in a robe which revealed by subtle bulges beneath it that this fat had required the support of portable suspensors. You see, the basso voice rumbled, it is only your maternal grandfather. You know me. I was the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. You're, you're dead, she gasped. But of course, my dear, most of us within you are dead, but none of the others are really willing to help you. They don't understand you. Go away, she pleaded. Oh, please go away. But you need help, granddaughter, the Baron's voice argued. How remarkable he looks, she thought, watching the projection of the Baron against her closed eyelids. I'm willing to help you, the Baron wheedled. The others in here would only fight to take over your entire consciousness. Any one of them would try to drive you out. But me, I want only a little corner of my own. Again, the other lives within her lifted their clamor. The tide once more threatened to engulf her, and she heard her mother's voice screeching, and Alia thought, She's not dead. Shut up, the Baron commanded. Alia felt her own desires reinforcing that command, making it felt throughout her awareness. Inner silence washed through her like a cool bath, and she felt her hammering heart begin slowing to its normal pace. Soothingly, the Baron's voice intruded. You see, together we're invincible. You help me, and I help you. What? What do you want? She whispered. A pensive look came over the fat face against her closed eyelids. Ah, my darling granddaughter, he said. I wish only a few simple pleasures. Give me but an occasional moment of contact with your senses. No one else need ever know. Let me feel but a small corner of your life when, for example, you are enfolded in the arms of your lover. Is that not a small price to ask? Y yes. Good, good, the Baron chortled. In return, my darling granddaughter, I can serve you in many ways. I can advise you, help you with my counsel. You will be invincible within and without. You will sweep away all opposition. History will forget your brother and cherish you. The future will be yours. You won't let the, the others take over? They cannot stand against us. Singly we can be overcome, but together we command. I will demonstrate. Listen. And the Baron fell silent withdrawing his image, his inner presence. Not one memory, face, or voice of the other lives intruded. Aaliyah allowed herself a trembling sigh. Accompanying that sigh came a thought. It forced itself into her awareness as though it were her own, but she sensed silent voices behind it. The old baron was evil. He murdered your father. He would have killed you and Paul. He tried to and failed. The Baron's voice came to her without a face. Of course I would have killed you. Didn't you stand in my way? 
But that argument is ended. You've won it, child. You're the new truth. She felt herself nodding, and her cheek moved scratchingly against the harsh surface of the bench. His words were reasonable, she thought. A Bene Gesserit precept reinforced the reasonable character of his words. The purpose of argument is to change the nature of truth. Yes, that was the way the Bene Gesserit would have it. Precisely, the Baron said. And I am dead while you are alive. I have only a fragile existence. I am a mere memory self within you. I am yours to command. And how little I ask in return for the profound advice which is mine to deliver. What do you advise me to do now? she asked, testing. You're worried about the judgment you gave last night, he said. You wonder if Paimon's words were reported truthfully. Perhaps Javid saw in this Paimon a threat to his position of trust. Is this not the doubt which assails you? Yes. And your doubt is based on acute observation, is it not? Javid behaves with increasing intimacy toward your person. Even Duncan has noted it, hasn't he? You know he has. Very well, then. Take Javid for your lover and... No! You worry about Duncan? But your husband is a Mentat mystic. He cannot be touched or harmed by activities of the flesh. Have you not felt sometimes how distant he is from you? But he... Duncan's Mentat part would understand should he ever have need to know the device you employed in destroying Javid. Destroy? Certainly. Dangerous tools may be used, but they should be cast aside when they grow too dangerous. Then why should... I mean... Ah, you precious dunce. Because of the value contained in the lesson. I don't understand. Values, my dear grandchild, depend for their acceptance upon their success. Javid's obedience must be unconditional, his acceptance of your authority absolute, and his... The morality of this lesson escapes... Don't be dense, grandchild. Morality must always be based on practicality. Render unto Caesar and all that nonsense. A victory is useless unless it reflects your deepest wishes. Is it not true that you have admired Javid's manliness? Aliyah swallowed, hating the admission but forced to it by her complete nakedness before the inner watcher. Yes. Good. How jovial the word sounded within her head. Now we begin to understand each other. When you have him helpless, then, in your bed, convinced that you are his thrall, you will ask him about Paimon. Do it jokingly, a rich laugh between you. And when he admits the deception, you will slip a Chris knife between his ribs. Ah, the flow of blood can add so much to your satisfaction. No, she whispered, her mouth dry with horror. No, no, no. Then I will do it for you, the baron argued. It must be done, you admit that. If you but set up the conditions, I will assume temporary sway over... No! Your fear is so transparent, granddaughter. My sway of your senses cannot be else but temporary. 
There are others now who could mimic you to a perfection that... But you know this. With me, ah, people would spy out my presence immediately. You know the Fremen law for those possessed. You'd be slain out of hand. Yes, even you. And you know I do not want that to happen. I'll take care of Javid for you, and once it's done, I'll step aside. You need only... How is this good advice? It rids you of a dangerous tool. And, child, it sets up the working relationship between us, a relationship which can only teach you well about future judgments, which teach me? Naturally. Aaliyah put her hands over her eyes, trying to think, knowing that any thought might be known to this presence within her, that the thought might originate with that presence and be taken as her own. You worry yourself needlessly, the baron wheedled. This Paimon fellow now was... What I did was wrong. I was tired and acted hastily. I should have sought confirmation of... You did right. Your judgments cannot be based on any such foolish abstract as that Atreides notion of equality. That's what kept you sleepless, not Paimon's death. You made a good decision. He was another dangerous tool. You acted to maintain order in your society. Now there's a good reason for judgments, not this justice nonsense. There's no such thing as equal justice anywhere. It's unsettling to a society when you try to achieve such a false balance. Aliyah felt pleasure at this defense of her judgment against Paimon, but shocked at the amoral concept behind the argument. Equal justice was an Atreides? Was... She took her hands from her eyes, but kept her eyes closed. All of your priestly judges should be admonished about this error, the baron argued. Decisions must be weighed only as to their merit in maintaining an orderly society. Past civilizations without number have founded on the rocks of equal justice. Such foolishness destroys the natural hierarchies which are far more important. Any individual takes on significance only in his relationship to your total society. Unless that society be ordered in logical steps, no one can find a place in it, not the lowliest or the highest. Come, come, grandchild. You must be the stern mother of your people. It's your duty to maintain order. Everything Paul did was to- Your brother's dead, a failure. So are you. True, but with me it was an accident beyond my designing. Come now, let us take care of this Javid as I have outlined for you. She felt her body grow warm at the thought, spoke quickly. I must think about it, and she thought, if it's done, it'll be only to put Javid in his place. No need to kill him for that, and the fool might just give himself away in my bed. To whom do you talk, my lady? the voice asked. For a confused moment, Aliyah thought this another intrusion by those clamorous multitudes within, but recognition of the voice opened her eyes. Zyarenko Valafor, chief of Aliyah's guardian Amazons, stood beside the bench, a worried frown on her weathered Fremen features. I speak to my inner voices, Aliyah said, sitting up on the bench. She felt refreshed, buoyed up by the silencing of that distracting inner clamor. Your inner voices, my lady, yes. Ziarenko's eyes glistened at this information, 
Everyone knew the holy Aliyah drew upon inner resources available to no other person. Bring Javid to my quarters, Aliyah said. There's a serious matter I must discuss with him. To your quarters, my lady? Yes, to my private chamber. As my lady commands, the guard turned to obey. One moment, Alia said. Has Master Idaho already gone to Siech Tabor? Yes, my lady. He left before dawn, as you instructed. Do you wish me to send for- No, I will manage this myself. And Zia, no one must know that Javid is being brought to me. Do it yourself. This is a very serious matter. The guard touched the Chris knife at her waist. My lady, is there a threat to- Yes, there's a threat, and Javid may be at the heart of it. Oh, my lady, perhaps I should not bring- Zia, do you think me incapable of handling such a one? A lupine smile touched the guard's mouth. Forgive me, my lady. I will bring him to your private chamber at once, but with my lady's permission, I will mount guard outside your door. You only, Alia said. Yes, my lady, I go at once. Alia nodded to herself watching Ziarenka's retreating back. Javid was not loved among her guards then, another mark against him. But he was still valuable, very valuable. He was her key to Jakurutu, and with that place, well. Perhaps you were right, Baron, she whispered. You see? The voice within her chortled. Ah, this will be a pleasant service to you, child, and it's only the beginning. These are illusions of popular history which a successful religion must promote. Evil men never prosper. Only the brave deserve the fair. Honesty is the best policy. Actions speak louder than words. Virtue always triumphs. A good deed is its own reward. Any bad human can be reformed. Religious talismans protect one from demon possession. Only females understand the ancient mysteries. The rich are doomed to unhappiness. From the instruction manual, Missionaria Protectiva. I am called Maurice, the leathery Fremen said. He sat on cavern rock in the glow of a spice lamp whose fluttering light revealed damp walls and dark holes which were passages from this place. Sounds of dripping water could be heard down one of those passages, and although water sounds were essential to the Fremen paradise, the six bound men facing Maurice took no pleasure from the rhythmic dripping. There was the musty smell of a death still in the chamber. A youth of perhaps fourteen standard years came out of the passage and stood at Maurice's left hand. An unsheathed Chris knife reflected pale yellow from the spice lamp as the youth lifted the blade and pointed it briefly at each of the bound men. With a gesture toward the youth, Maurice said, This is my son, Asan Tariq, who is about to undergo his test of manhood. Maurice cleared his throat, stared once at each of the six captives. They sat in a loose semicircle across from him, tightly restrained with spice-fiber ropes which held their legs crossed, their hands behind them. The bindings terminated in a tight noose at each man's throat. Their still suits had been cut away at the neck. The bound men stared back at Maurice without flinching. Two of them wore loose, off-world garments which marked them as wealthy residents of an Arakeen city. 
These two had skin which was smoother, lighter than that of their companions, whose sere features and bony frames marked them as desert-born. Maurice resembled the desert-dwellers, but his eyes were more deeply sunken, whiteless pits which not even the glow of the spice-lamp touched. His son appeared an unformed copy of the man with a flatness of face which did not quite hide the turmoil boiling within him. Among the cast out we have a special test for manhood, Maurice said. One day my son will be a judge in Shulok. We must know that he can act as he must. Our judges cannot forget Jakurutu and our day of despair. Kralizek, the typhoon struggle, lives in our hearts. It was all spoken with a flat intonation of ritual. One of the soft-featured city dwellers across from Maurice stirred, said, You do wrong to threaten us and bind us captive. We came peacefully on Uma. Maurice nodded. You came in search of a personal religious awakening? Good. You shall have that awakening. The soft-featured man said, If we... Beside him a darker desert Fremen snapped. Be silent, fool. These are the water-stealers. These are the ones we thought we'd wiped out. That old story, the soft-featured captive said. Jakurutu is more than a story, Maurice said. Once more he gestured to his son. I have presented a son, Tariq. I am Arifa in this place, your only judge. My son, too, will be trained to detect demons. The old ways are best. That's why we came into the deep desert, the soft-featured man protested. We chose the old way, wandering in with paid guides, Maurice said, gesturing to the darker captives. You would buy your way into heaven? Maurice glanced up at his son. son, are you prepared? I have reflected long upon that night when men came and murdered our people, Asan said. His voice projected an uneasy straining. They owe us water. Your father gives you six of them, Maurice said. Their water is ours. Their shades are yours, your guardians forevermore. Their shades will warn you of demons. They will be your slaves when you cross over into the Alam Malmithal. What do you say, my son? I thank my father, Asan said. He took a short step forward. I accept manhood among the cast out. This water is our water. As he finished speaking, the youth crossed to the captives. Starting on the left, he gripped the man's hair and drove the Chris knife up under the chin into the brain. It was skillfully done to spill the minimum blood. Only the one soft-featured city Fremen protested, squalling as a youth grabbed his hair. The others spat at Asan Tariq in the old way, saying by this, see how little I value my water when it is taken by animals. When it was done, Maurice clapped his hands once. Attendants came and began removing the bodies, taking them to the death still, where they could be rendered for their water. Maurice arose, looked at his son, who stood breathing deeply, watching the attendants remove the bodies. Now you are a man, Maurice said. The water of our enemies will feed slaves. And my son? Asantarik turned an alert and pouncing look upon his father. 
The youth's lips were drawn back in a tight smile. The preacher must not know of this, Maurice said. I understand, father. You did it well, Maurice said. Those who stumble upon Shulok must not survive. As you say, father. You are trusted with important duties, Maurice said. I am proud of you. A sophisticated human can become primitive. What this really means is that the human's way of life changes. Old values change, become linked to the landscape with its plants and animals. This new existence requires a working knowledge of those multiplex and cross-linked events usually referred to as nature. It requires a measure of respect for the inertial power within such natural systems. When a human gains this working knowledge and respect, that is called being primitive. The converse, of course, is equally true. The primitive can become sophisticated, but not without accepting dreadful psychological damage. The Leto Commentary, after Hark Aladar How can we be sure? Ganima asked. This is very dangerous. We've tested it before, Leto argued. It may not be the same this time. What if... It's the only way open to us, Leto said. You agree we can't go the way of the spice. Ganima sighed. She did not like this thrust and parry of words, but knew the necessity which pressed her brother. She also knew the fearful source of her own reluctance. They had but to look at Alia and know the perils of that inner world. Well? Leto asked. Again she sighed. They sat cross-legged in one of their private places, a narrow opening from the cave to the cliff where often their mother and father had watched the sun set over the bled. It was two hours past the evening meal, a time when the twins were expected to exercise their bodies and their minds. They had chosen to flex their minds. I will try to loan if you refuse to help, Leto said. Ganima looked away from him toward the black hangings of the moisture seals which guarded this opening in the rock. Leto continued to stare out over the desert. They had been speaking for some time in a language so ancient that even its name remained unknown in these times. The language gave their thoughts a privacy which no other human could penetrate. Even Alia, who avoided the intricacies of her inner world, lacked the mental linkages which would allow her to grasp any more than an occasional word. Leto inhaled deeply, taking in the distinctive furry odor of a Fremen cavern sietch which persisted in this windless alcove. The murmurous hubbub of the sietch and its damp heat were absent here, and both felt this as a relief. I agree we need guidance, Ganima said, but if we... Gani, we need more than guidance. We need protection. Perhaps there is no protection. She looked directly at her brother met that gaze in his eyes like the waiting watchfulness of a predator. His eyes belied the placidity of his features. We must escape possession, Leto said. He used the special infinitive of the ancient language, a form strictly neutral in voice and tense, but profoundly active in its implications. Ganima correctly interpreted his argument. She intoned. The capture of my soul is the capture of a thousand souls. Much more than that, he countered. Knowing the dangers, you persist. She made it a statement, not a question. Wabun kwabunat, 
he said, rising thou risest. He felt his choice as an obvious necessity. Doing this thing, it was best done actively. They must wind the past into the present and allow it to unreal into their future. Muriat, she conceded, her voice low. It must be done lovingly. Of course. He waved a hand to encompass total acceptance. Then we will consult as our parents did. Ganima remained silent, tried to swallow past a lump in her throat. Instinctively, she glanced south toward the great open erg, which was showing a dim gray pattern of dunes in the last of the day's light. In that direction, her father had gone on his last walk into the desert. Leto stared downward over the cliff edge at the green of the Sietch oasis. All was dusk down there, but he knew its shapes and colors. Blossoms of copper, gold, red, yellow, rust, and russet spread right out to the rock markers which outlined the extent of the Kanat-watered plantings. Beyond the rock markers stretched a stinking band of dead Arakeen life, killed by foreign plants and too much water, now forming a barrier against the desert. Presently, Ganima said, I'm ready. Let us begin. Yes, damn all. He reached out, touched her arm to soften the exclamation, said, Please, Gani, sing that song. It makes this easier for me. Ganima hitched herself closer to him, circled his waist with her left arm. She drew in two deep breaths, cleared her throat, and began singing in a clear, piping voice the words her mother had so often sung for their father. Here I redeem the pledge thou gavest. I pour sweet water upon thee. Life shall prevail in this windless place. My love, thou shalt live in a palace. Thy enemies shall fall to emptiness. We travel this path together, which love has traced for thee. Surely well do I show the way, for my love is thy palace. Her voice fell into the desert silence which even a whisper might despoil, and Leto felt himself sinking, sinking, becoming the father, whose memories spread like an overlayer in the genes of his immediate past. For this brief space, I must be Paul, he told himself. This is not Gani beside me, it is my beloved Cheney, whose wise counsel has saved us both many a time. For her part, Ganima had slipped into the persona memory of her mother with frightening ease as she had known she would. How much easier this was for the female, and how much more dangerous. In a voice turned suddenly husky, Ganima said, Look there, beloved. First moon had risen, and against its cold light they saw an arc of orange fire falling upward into space. The transport which had brought the Lady Jessica, laden now with spice, was returning to its mother cluster in orbit. The keenest of remembrances ran through Leto then, bringing memories like bright bell sounds. For a flickering instant he was another Leto, Jessica's duke. Necessity pushed those memories aside, but not before he felt the piercing of the love and the pain. I must be Paul, he reminded himself. The transformation came over him with a frightening duality, as though Leto were a dark screen against which his father was projected. He felt both his own flesh and his father's, and the flickering differences threatened to overcome him. Help me, father, he whispered. 
The flickering disturbance passed, and now there was another imprint upon his awareness, while his own identity as Leto stood at one side as an observer. My last vision has not yet come to pass, he said, and the voice was Paul's. He turned to Ganima. You know what I saw. She touched his cheek with her right hand. Did you walk into the desert to die, beloved? Is that what you did? It may be that I did, but that vision, would that not be reason enough to stay alive? But blind? she asked. Even so. Where could you go? He took a deep, shuddering breath. Jakarutu. Beloved. Tears began flowing down her cheeks. Muad'Dib, the hero, must be destroyed utterly, he said. Otherwise this child cannot bring us back from chaos. The golden path, she said. It is not a good vision. It's the only possible vision. Aaliyah has failed then. Utterly, you see the record of it. Your mother has returned too late, she nodded. And it was Cheney's wise expression on the childish face of Ganima. Could there not be another vision? Perhaps if... No, beloved, not yet. This child cannot peer into the future yet and return safely. Again, a shuddering breath disturbed his body, and Leto Observer felt the deep longing of his father to live once more in vital flesh, to make living decisions, and how desperate the need to unmake past mistakes. Father, Leto called, and it was as though he shouted echoingly within his own skull. It was a profound act of will which Leto felt then, the slow, clinging withdrawal of his father's internal presence, the release of senses and muscles. Beloved, Cheney's voice whispered beside him, and the withdrawal slowed. What is happening? Don't go yet, Leto said, and it was his own voice, rasping and uncertain, still his own. Then, Cheney, you must tell us. How do we avoid what has happened to Aaliyah? It was Paul within who answered him, though, with words which fell upon his inner ear, halting and with long pauses. There is no certainty. You saw what almost happened with me. But Aaliyah, the damned baron has her. Leto felt his throat burning with dryness. Is he? Have I? He's in you, but I, we cannot, sometimes we sense, each other, but you. Can you not read my thoughts? Plato asked. Would you know then if he, sometimes I can feel your thoughts, but I, we live only through the reflection of your awareness. Your memory creates us. The danger, it is a precise memory, and those of us, those of us who loved power and gathered it at any price, those can be more precise. Stronger, Leto whispered. Stronger. I know your vision, Leto said. Rather than let him have me, I'll become you. Not that. Leto nodded to himself, sensing the enormous will force his father had required to withdraw, recognizing the consequences of failure. Any possession reduced the possessed to abomination. 
The recognition gave him a renewed sense of strength, and he felt his own body with abnormal acuteness and a deeply drawn awareness of past mistakes, his own and those of his ancestors. It was the uncertainties which weakened. He saw this now. For an instant, temptation warred with fear within him. This flesh possessed the ability to transform Melange into a vision of the future. With the spice he could breathe, the future shattered time's veils. He found the temptation difficult to shed, clasped his hands, and sank into the Pranabindu awareness. His flesh negated the temptation. His flesh wore the deep knowledge learned in blood by Paul. Those who sought the future hoped to gain the winning gamble on tomorrow's race. Instead, they found themselves trapped into a lifetime whose every heartbeat and anguished wail was known. Paul's final vision had shown the precarious way out of that trap, and Leto knew now that he had no other choice but to follow that way. The joy of living, its beauty, is all bound up in the fact that life can surprise you, he said. A soft voice whispered in his ear, I've always known that beauty. Leto turned his head, stared into Ganima's eyes which glistened in the bright moonlight. He saw Cheney looking back at him. Mother, he said, you must withdraw. Ah, the temptation, she said, and kissed him. He pushed her away. Would you take your daughter's life? he demanded. It's so easy, so foolishly easy, she said. A later feeling panic began to grip him, remembered what an effort of will his father's persona within had required to abandon the flesh. Was Ganima lost in that observer world where he had watched and listened, learning what he had required from his father? I will despise you, mother, he said. Others won't despise me, she said. Be my beloved. If I do, you know what you both will become, he said. My father will despise you. Never. I will. The sound was jerked out of his throat without his volition, and it carried all the old overtones of voice which Paul had learned from his witch mother. Don't say it, she moaned. I will despise you. Please, please don't say it. Later rubbed his throat, feeling the muscles become once more his own. He will despise you. He will turn his back on you. He will go into the desert again. No, no, she shook her head from side to side. You must leave, mother, he said. No, no. But the voice lacked its original force. Later watched his sister's face, how the muscles twitched. Emotions fled across the flesh at the turmoil within her. Leave, he whispered. Leave. No! He gripped her arm, felt the tremors which pulsed through her muscles, the nerves twitching. She writhed, tried to pull away, but he held tightly to her arm, whispering, Leave! Leave! And all the time, Leto berated himself for talking Gani into this parent game, which once they'd played often. But she had lately resisted. It was true that the female had more weakness in that inner assault, he realized. There lay the origin of the Bene Gesserit fear. Hours passed, and still Ganima's body trembled and twitched with the inner battle, but now his sister's voice joined the argument, 
He heard her talking to that imago within, the pleading. Mother, please. And once, you've seen Aaliyah, will you become another Aaliyah? And last Ganima leaned against him, whispered, she has accepted it, she's gone. He stroked her head. Ghani, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll never ask you to do that again. I was selfish, forgive me. There's nothing to forgive, she said, and her voice came panting as though after great physical exertion. We've learned much that we needed to know. She spoke to you of many things, he said. We'll share it later when... No, we'll do it now. You were right. My golden path? Your damned golden path. Logic's useless unless it's armed with essential data, he said. But I... Grandmother came back to guide our education and to see if we'd been... contaminated. That's what Duncan says. There's nothing new in... Prime computation, she agreed, her voice strengthening. She pulled away from him, looked out at the desert which lay in a pre-dawn hush. This battle, this knowledge had cost them a night. The royal guard beyond the moisture seal must have had much to explain. Later had charged that nothing disturbed them. People often learn subtlety as they age, Plato said. What is it we're learning with all of this agedness to draw upon? The universe as we see it is never quite the exact physical universe, she said. We mustn't perceive this grandmother just as a grandmother. That'd be dangerous, he agreed. But my quest, there's something beyond subtlety, she said. We must have a place in our awareness to perceive what we can't preconceive. That's why my mother spoke to me often of Jessica. At the last, when we were both reconciled to the inner exchange, she said many things. Ganima sighed. We know she's our grandmother, he said. You were with her for hours yesterday. Is that why, if we allow it, our knowing will determine how we react to her, Ganima said. That's what my mother kept warning me. She quoted our grandmother once and... Ganima touched his arm. I heard the echo of it within me in our grandmother's voice. Warning you, Plato said. He found this thought disturbing. Was nothing in this world dependable? Most deadly errors arise from obsolete assumptions, Ganima said. That's what my mother kept quoting. That's pure Bene Gesserit. If, if Jessica has gone back to the sisterhood completely, that'd be very dangerous to us, he said, completing the thought. We carry the blood of their Kwisatz Haderach, their male Bene Gesserit. They won't abandon that search, she said, but they may abandon us. Our grandmother could be the instrument. There's another way, he said. Yes, the two of us mated. But they know what recessives might complicate that pairing. It's a gamble they must have discussed. And with our grandmother at that, I don't like that way. Nor I. Still, it's not the first time a royal line has tried to it repels me, he said, shuddering. She felt the movement, fell silent. Power, he said. And in that strange alchemy of their similarities, she knew where his thoughts had been. The power of the Kwisatz Hadrach must fail, she agreed. Used in their way, he said. In that instant, day came to the desert beyond their vantage point. They sensed the heat beginning. 
Colors leaped forth from the plantings beneath the cliff. Gray-green leaves sent spiked shadows along the ground. The low morning light of Dune's silvery sun revealed the verdant oasis full of golden and purple shadows in the well of the sheltering cliffs. Leto stood, stretched. The golden path, then, Ganima said, and she spoke as much to herself as to him, knowing how their father's last vision met and melted into Leto's dreams. Something brushed against the moisture seals behind them, and voices could be heard murmuring there. Leto reverted to the ancient language they used for privacy. That was where the decision lodged itself in their awareness. Literally, we will accompany each other into deathliness, though only one may return to report it. Ganima stood then, and together they returned through the moisture seals to the Siege, where the guards roused themselves and fell in behind as the twins headed toward their own quarters. The throngs parted before them with a difference on this morning, exchanging glances with the guards. Spending the night alone above the desert was an old Fremen custom for the holy sages. All the Ummah had practiced this form of vigil. Paul Muad'Dib had done it, and Alia. Now the royal twins had begun. Leto noted the difference, mentioned it to Ganima. They don't know what we've decided for them, she said. They don't really know. Still in the private language, he said, it requires the most fortuitous beginning. Ganima hesitated a moment to form her thoughts, then, in that time, mourning for the sibling, it must be exactly real, even to the making of the tomb. The heart must follow the sleep, lest there be no awakening. In the ancient tongue, it was an extremely convoluted statement, employing a pronomial object separated from the infinitive. It was a syntax which allowed each set of internal phrases to turn upon itself, becoming several different meanings, all definite and quite distinct but subtly interrelated. In part, what she had said was that they risked death with Leto's plan and, real or simulated, it made no difference. The resultant change would be like death, literally funeral murder and there was an added meaning to the whole which pointed accusatively at whoever survived to report, that is, act out the living part. Any misstep there would negate the entire plan, and Leto's golden path would become a dead end. Extremely delicate, Leto agreed. He parted the hangings for them as they entered their own anteroom. Activity among their attendants paused only for a heartbeat as the twins crossed to the arched passage which led into the quarters assigned to the Lady Jessica. You are not Osiris, Ganima reminded him. Nor will I try to be. Ganima took his arm to stop him. Alia darsate haunus small, she warned. Leto stared into his sister's eyes. Indeed, Alia's actions did give off a foul smell which their grandmother must have noted. He smiled appreciatively at Ganima. She had mixed the ancient tongue with Fremen superstition to call up a most basic tribal omen, umsmal. The foul odor of a summer night was the harbinger of death at the hands of demons, and Isis had been the demon goddess of death to the people whose tongue they now spoke. We Atreides have a reputation for audacity to maintain, he said. So we'll take what we need, she said. 
It's that or become petitioners before our own regency, he said. Aaliyah would enjoy that. But our plan, she let it trail off. Our plan, he thought. She shared it completely now. He said, I think of our plan as the toil of the Shadouf. Ganima glanced back at the anteroom through which they'd passed, smelling the furry odors of morning with their sense of eternal beginning. She liked the way Leto had employed their private language. Toil of the Shadouf. It was a pledge. He'd called their plan agricultural work of a very menial kind, fertilizing, irrigating, weeding, transplanting, pruning, yet with the Fremen implication that this labor occurred simultaneously in another world, where it symbolized cultivating the richness of the soul. Ganima studied her brother as they hesitated here in the rock passage. It had grown increasingly obvious to her that he was pleading on two levels, one for the golden path of his vision and their father's, and two that she allow him free reign to carry out the extremely dangerous myth creation which the plan generated. This frightened her. Was there more to his private vision that he had not shared? Could he see himself as the potentially deified figure to lead humankind into a rebirth, like father, like son? The cult of Muad'Dib had turned sour, fermenting in Aliyah's mismanagement and the unbridled license of a military priesthood which rode the Fremen power. Later wanted regeneration. He's hiding something from me, she realized. She reviewed what he had told her of his dream. It held such iridescent reality that he might walk around for hours afterward in a daze. The dream never varied, he said. I am on sand in bright yellow daylight, yet there is no sun. Then I realize that I am the sun. My light shines out as a golden path. When I realize this, I move out of myself. I turn, expecting to see myself as the sun, but I am not the sun. I am a stick figure, a child's drawing with zigzag lightning lines for eyes, stick legs, and stick arms. There is a scepter in my left hand, and it's a real scepter much more detailed in its reality than the stick figure which holds it. The scepter moves, and this terrifies me. As it moves, I feel myself awaken, yet I know I'm still dreaming. I realize then that my skin is encased in something, an armor which moves as my skin moves. I cannot see this armor, but I feel it. My terror leaves me then, for this armor gives me the strength of ten thousand men. As Ganima stared at him, Leto tried to pull away, to continue their course toward Jessica's quarters. Ganima resisted. This golden path could be no better than any other path, she said. Leto looked at the rock floor between them, feeling the strong return of Ganima's doubts. I must do it, he said. Aaliyah is possessed, she said. That could happen to us. It could already have happened and we might not know it. No. He shook his head, met her gaze. Aaliyah resisted. That gave the powers within her their strength. By her own strength she was overcome. We've dared to search within, to seek out the old languages and the old knowledge. We're already amalgams of those lives within us. We don't resist, we ride with them. This was what I learned from our father last night. It's what I had to learn. He said nothing of that within me. You listened to our mother. It's what we... And I almost lost. Is she still strong within you? Fear tightened his face. Yes, but now I think she guards me with her love. You were very good when you argued with her. 
and Ganima thought about the reflected mother within, said, Our mother exists now for me in the Alam al-Mithal with the others, but she has tasted the fruit of hell. Now I can listen to her without fear. As to the others? Yes, he said, and I listen to my father, but I think I'm really following the counsel of the grandfather for whom I was named. Perhaps the name makes it easy. Are you counseled to speak to our grandmother of the Golden Path? Leto waited while an attendant pressed past them with a basket tray carrying the Lady Jessica's breakfast. A strong smell of spice filled the air as the attendant passed. She lives in us and in her own flesh, Leto said. Her counsel can be consulted twice. Not by me, Ganima protested. I'm not risking that again. Then by me. I thought we agreed that she's gone back to the sisterhood. Indeed, Bene Gesserit at her beginning, her own creature in the middle, and Bene Gesserit at the end. But remember that she too carries Harkonnen blood and is closer to it than we are, that she has experienced a form of this inner sharing which we have. A very shallow form, Ganima said, and you haven't answered my question. I don't think I'll mention the golden path. I may. Gani. We don't need any more Atreides gods. We need a space for some humanity. Have I ever denied it? No. She took a deep breath and looked away from him. Attendants peered in at them from the anteroom, hearing the argument by its tone, but unable to understand the ancient words. We have to do it, he said. If we fail to act, we might just as well fall upon our knives. He used the Fremen form, which carried the meaning of spill our water into the tribal cistern. Once more, Ganima looked at him. She was forced to agree. But she felt trapped within a construction of many walls. They both knew a day of reckoning lay across their path, no matter what they did. Ganima knew this with a certainty reinforced by the data garnered from those other memory lives. But now she feared the strength which she gave those other psyches by using the data of their experiences. They lurked like harpies within her, shadow demons waiting in ambush except for her mother, who had held the fleshly power and had renounced it. Ganima still felt shaken by that inner struggle, knowing that she would have lost but for Leto's persuasiveness. Leto said his golden path led out of this trap. Except for the nagging realization that he withheld something from his vision, she could only accept his sincerity. He needed her fertile creativity to enrich the plan. We'll be tested, he said knowing where her doubts led. Not in the spice. Perhaps even there. Surely in the desert and in the trial of possession. You never mentioned the trial of possession, she accused. Is that part of your dream? He tried to swallow in a dry throat, cursed this betrayal. Yes. Then we will be possessed? No. She thought about the trial, that ancient Fremen examination whose ending most often brought hideous death. Then this plan had other complexities. It would take them onto an edge where a plunge to either side might not be countenanced by the human mind and that mind remain sane. Knowing where her thoughts meandered, Leto said, Power attracts the psychotics, always. That's what we have to avoid within ourselves. You're sure we won't be possessed? Not if we create the golden path. Still doubtful, she said. I'll not bear your children, Leto. He shook his head, 
suppressing the inner betrayals, lapsed into the royal formal form of the ancient tongue. Sister mine, I love you more dearly than myself, but that is not the tender of my desires. Very well, then let us return to another argument before we join our grandmother. A knife slipped into Alia might settle most of our problems. If you believe that, you believe we can walk in mud and leave no tracks, he said. Besides, when has Aliyah ever given anyone an opportunity? There is talk about this Javid. Does Duncan show any signs of growing horns? Ganima shrugged. One poison, two poison. It was the common label applied to the royal habit of cataloguing companions by their threat to your person, a mark of rulers everywhere. We must do it my way, he said. The other way might be cleaner. By her reply, he knew she had finally suppressed her doubts and come around to agreement with his plan. The realization brought him no happiness. He found himself looking at his own hands, wondering if the dirt would cling. This was Muad'Dib's achievement. He saw the subliminal reservoir of each individual as an unconscious bank of memories going back to the primal cell of our common genesis. Each of us, he said, can measure out his distance from that common origin. Seeing this and telling of it, he made the audacious leap of decision. Muad'Dib set himself the task of integrating genetic memory into ongoing evaluation. Thus did he break through time's veils, making a single thing of the future and the past. That was Muad'Dib's creation embodied in his son and his daughter. Testament of Arrakis by Hark Aladar Faridun strode through the garden compound of his grandfather's royal palace, watching his shadow grow shorter as the son of Seleucus Secundus climbed toward noon. He had to stretch himself a bit to keep step with the tall Basha who accompanied him. I have no doubt, Chekanik, he said. Oh, there's no denying the attractions of a throne, but... He drew in a deep breath. I have so many interests. Chekanik, fresh from a savage argument with Faridun's mother, glanced sidelong at the prince, noting how the lad's flesh was firming as he approached his eighteenth birthday. There was less and less of Wencisia in him with each passing day, and more and more of old Shaddam, who had preferred his private pursuits to the responsibilities of royalty. That was what had cost him the throne in the end, of course. He'd grown soft in the ways of command. You have to make a choice, Jekonik said. Oh, doubtless there'll be time for some of your interests, but... Faridun chewed his lower lip. Duty held him here, but he felt frustrated. He would far rather have gone to the rock enclave where the sand trout experiments were being conducted. Now there was a project with enormous potential. Rest the spice monopoly from the Atreides and anything might happen. You're sure these twins will be... Eliminated? Nothing absolutely certain, my prince, but the prospects are good. Faridun shrugged. Assassination remained a fact of royal life. The language was filled with the subtle permutations of ways to eliminate important personages. By a single word, one could distinguish between poison in drink or poison in food. He presumed the elimination of the Atreides twins would be accomplished by a poison. It was not a pleasant thought. By all accounts, the twins were a most interesting pair. 
Would we have to move to Arrakis? Faridun asked. It's the best choice. Put us at the point of greatest pressure. Faridun appeared to be avoiding some question, and Tiekanik wondered what it might be. I'm troubled, Tiekanik, Faridun said, speaking as they rounded a hedge corner and approached a fountain surrounded by giant black roses. Gardeners could be heard snipping beyond the hedges. Yes, Tiekanik prompted. This, uh, religion which you've professed. Nothing strange about that, my prince, Tiekanik said, and hoped his voice remained firm. This religion speaks to the warrior in me. It's a fitting religion for a saduka. That at least was true. Yes, but my mother seems so pleased by it. Damn Wenzisha, he thought. She's made her son suspicious. I care not what your mother thinks, Tiekanik said. A man's religion is his own affair. Perhaps she sees something in this that may help to put you on the throne. That was my thought, Faridun said. Ah, this is a sharp lad, Tiekanik thought. He said, look into the religion for yourself. You'll see at once why I chose it. Still, Muad'Dib's preachings? He was an Atreides, after all. I can only say that the ways of God are mysterious, Tiekanik said. I see. Tell me, Tiek, why do you ask me to walk with you just now? It's almost noon, and usually you're off to some place or other at my mother's command this time of day. Tiekanik stopped at a stone bench which looked upon the fountain and the giant roses beyond. The splashing water soothed him, and he kept his attention upon it as he spoke. My prince, I've done something which your mother may not like. And he thought, if he believes that, her damnable scheme will work. Tiekanik almost hoped when Sisha's scheme would fail. Bringing that damnable preacher here, she was insane, and the cost. As Tiekanik remained silent, waiting, Faridun asked, All right, Tiek, what have you done? I've brought a practitioner of oniromancy, Tiekanik said. Faridun shot a sharp glance at his companion. Some of the older Sadukar played the dream interpretation game, had done so increasingly since their defeat by that supreme dreamer, Muad'Dib. Somewhere within their dreams, they reasoned, might lay a way back to power and glory. But Tiekanik had always eschewed this play. This doesn't sound like you, Tiek? Faridun said. Then I can only speak from my new religion, he said, addressing the fountain. To speak of religion was, of course, why they'd risked bringing the preacher here. Then speak from this religion, Faridun said. As my prince commands. He turned, looked at this youthful holder of all the dreams which now were distilled into the path which House Corino would follow. Church and state, my prince, even scientific reason and faith, and even more, progress and tradition. All of these are reconciled in the teachings of Muad'Dib. He taught that there are no intransigent opposites except in the beliefs of men and sometimes in their dreams. One discovers the future in the past and both are part of a whole. In spite of doubts which he could not dispel, Faridun found himself impressed by these words. 
He heard a note of reluctant sincerity in Chekhanik's voice, as though the man spoke against inner compulsions. And that's why you bring me this, this interpreter of dreams? Yes, my prince. Perhaps your dream penetrates time. You win back your consciousness of your inner being when you recognize the universe as a coherent whole. Your dreams, well. But I spoke idly of my dreams, Faradon protested. They are a curiosity no more. I never once suspected that you, my prince, nothing you can do can be unimportant. That's very flattering, Tyke. Do you really believe this fellow can see into the heart of great mysteries? I do, my prince. Then let my mother be displeased. You will see him? Of course, since you've brought him to displease my mother. Does he mock me? Chekhanik wondered. And he said, I must warn you that the old man wears a mask. It is an Ixian device which enables the sightless to see with their skin. He is blind? Yes, my prince. Does he know who I am? I told him, my prince. Very well, let us go to him. If my prince will wait a moment here, I will bring the man to him. Faradon looked around the fountain garden, smiled. As good a place as any for this foolishness. Have you told him what I dreamed? Only in general terms, my prince. He will ask you for a personal accounting. Oh, very well. I'll wait here. Bring the fellow. Faradon turned his back, heard Tjekanik retire in haste. A gardener could be seen working just beyond the hedge, at the top of a brown-capped head, the flashing of shears poking above the greenery. The movement was hypnotic. This dream business is nonsense, Faradon thought. It was wrong of Tjek to do this without consulting me. Strange that Tjek should get religion at his age. And now it's dreams. Presently he heard footsteps behind him. Chekhanik's familiar, positive stride and a more dragging gait. Faradon turned, stared at the approaching dream interpreter. The Ixian mask was a black, gauzy affair which concealed the face from the forehead to below the chin. There were no eye slits in the mask. If one were to believe the Ixian boasts, the entire mask was a single eye. Chekhanik stopped two paces from Faradon, but the masked old man approached to less than a pace. The interpreter of dreams, Chekhanik said. Faradon nodded. The masked old man coughed in a remote, grunting fashion, as though trying to bring something up from his stomach. Faradon was acutely conscious of a sour spice smell from the old man. It emanated from the long grey robe which covered his body. Is that mask truly a part of your flesh? Faradon asked, realizing he was trying to delay the subject of dreams. While I wear it, the old man said, and his voice carried a bitter twang and just a suggestion of Fremen accent. Your dream, he said. Tell me. Faradon shrugged. Why not? That was why Tjek had brought the old man. Or was it? Doubts gripped Faradon, and he asked, Are you truly a practitioner of oniromancy? I have come to interpret your dream, Puissant Lord. Again Faridun shrugged. This masked figure made him nervous, and he glanced at Tjekanik, who remained where he had stopped, arms folded, staring at the fountain. Your dream, then, the old man pressed. 
Faradon inhaled deeply, began to relate the dream. It became easier to talk as he got fully into it. He told about the water flowing upward in the well, about the worlds which were atoms dancing in his head, about the snake which transformed itself into a sandworm and exploded in a cloud of dust. Telling about the snake, he was surprised to discover, required more effort. A terrible reluctance inhibited him, and this made him angry as he spoke. The old man remained impassive as Faradon at last fell silent. The black gauze mask moved slightly to his breathing. Faradon waited. The silence continued. Presently, Faradon asked, Aren't you going to interpret my dream? I have interpreted it, he said, his voice seeming to come from a long distance. Well? Faradon heard his own voice squeaking, telling him the tension his dream had produced. Still, the old man remained impassively silent. Tell me then. The anger was obvious in his tone. I said I'd interpret, the old man said. I did not agree to tell you my interpretation. Even Tiekanik was moved by this, dropping his arms into bald fists at his sides. What? he grated. I did not say I'd reveal my interpretation, the old man said. You wish more pay? Faradon asked. I did not ask pay when I was brought here. A certain cold pride in the response softened Faradon's anger. This was a brave old man at any rate. He must know death could follow disobedience. Allow me, my prince, Tiekanik said as Faradon started to speak. Then, will you tell us why you want to reveal your interpretation? Yes, my lords. The dream tells me there would be no purpose in explaining these things. Faradon could not contain himself. Are you saying I already know the meaning of my dream? Perhaps you do, my lord, but that is not my gist. Tekanik moved up to stand beside Faradon. Both glared at the old man. Explain yourself, Tekanik said. Indeed, Faradon said. If I were to speak of this dream, to explore these matters of water and dust, snakes and worms, to analyze the atoms which dance in your head as they do in mine, ah, puissant lord, my words would only confuse you, and you would insist upon misunderstanding. Do you fear that your words might anger me? Faradon demanded. My lord, you're already angry. Is it that you don't trust us? Tiekanik asked. That is very close to the mark, my lord. I do not trust either of you, and for the simple reason that you do not trust yourselves. You walk dangerously close to the edge, Tiekanik said. Men have been killed for behavior less abusive than yours. Faradon nodded, said, Don't tempt us to anger. The fatal consequences of Carino anger are well known. My lord of Seleucia Secundus, the old man said. Tiakonik put a restraining hand on Faradon's arm, asked, Are you trying to goad us into killing you? Faradon had not thought of that, felt a chill now as he considered what such behavior might mean. Was this old man who called himself Preacher, was he more than he appeared? What might be the consequences of his death? Martyrs could be dangerous creations. I doubt that you'll kill me no matter what I say, 
the preacher said. I think you know my value, Basha, and your prince now suspects it. You absolutely refuse to interpret his dream, Tekanik asked. I have interpreted it. And you will not reveal what you see in it? Do you blame me, my lord? How can you be valuable to me? Faridun asked. The preacher held out his right hand. If I but beckon with this hand, Duncan Idaho will come to me, and he will obey me. What idle boast is this? Faridun asked. But Tiekanik shook his head, recalling his argument with Wenzishia. He said, My prince, it could be true. This preacher has many followers on Dune. Why didn't you tell me he was from that place? Faridun asked. Before Tiekanik could answer, the preacher addressed Faridun. My lord, you must not feel guilty about Arrakis. You are but a product of your times. This is a special pleading which any man may make when his guilts assail him. Guilts? Faridun was outraged. The preacher only shrugged. Oddly, this shifted Faridun from outrage to amusement. He laughed, throwing his head back, drawing a startled glance from Tiekanik. Then, I like you, preacher. This gratifies me, prince, the old man said. Suppressing a chuckle, Faridun said, We'll find you an apartment here in the palace. You will be my official interpreter of dreams, even though you never give me a word of interpretation. And you can advise me about Dune. I have a great curiosity about that place. This I cannot do, prince. An edge of his anger returned. Faridun glared at the black mask. And why not, pray tell? My prince, Tekanik said, again touching Faridun's arm. What is it, Tiek? We brought him here under bonded agreement with the guild. He is to be returned to Dune. I am summoned back to Arrakis, the preacher said. Who summons you? Faridun demanded. A power greater than thine, prince. Faridun shot a questioning glance at Tiekanik. Is he an Atreides spy? Not likely, my prince. Palia has put a price on his head. If it's not the Atreides, then who summons you? Faridun asked, returning his attention to the preacher. A power greater than the Atreides. A chuckle escaped Faridun. This was only mystic nonsense. How could Tiek be fooled by such stuff? This preacher had been summoned, most likely by a dream. Of what importance were dreams? This has been a waste of my time, Tiek, Faridun said. Why did you subject me to this, this farce? There is a double price here, my prince, Tiekanik said. This interpreter of dreams promised me to deliver Duncan Idaho as an agent of House Corino. All he asked was to meet you and interpret your dream. And Tiekanik added to himself, or so he told Wensishia. New doubts assailed the Basha. Why is my dream so important to you, old man? Faridun asked. Your dream tells me that great events move toward a logical conclusion, the preacher said. I must hasten my return. Mocking, Faridun said, And you will remain inscrutable, giving me no advice. Advice, prince, is a dangerous commodity, but I will venture a few words which you may take as advice or in any other way which pleases you. By all means. Faridun said.
The preacher held his masked face, rigidly confronting Faradon. Governments may rise and fall for reasons which appear insignificant, Prince. What small events! An argument between two women, which way the wind blows on a certain day, a sneeze, a cough, the length of a garment, or the chance collision of a fleck of sand and a courtier's eye. It is not always the majestic concerns of imperial ministers which dictate the course of history, nor is it necessarily the pontifications of priests which move the hands of God. Faridon found himself profoundly stirred by these words and could not explain his emotion. Tchekanik, however, had focused on one phrase. Why did this preacher speak of a garment? Tchekanik's mind focused on the imperial costumes dispatched to the Atreides twins, the tigers trained to attack. Was this old man voicing a subtle warning? How much did he know? How is this advice? Faridon asked. If you would succeed, the preacher said, you must reduce your strategy to its point of application. Where does one apply strategy? At a particular place and with a particular people in mind. But even with the greatest concern for minutiae, some small detail with no significance attached to it will escape you. Can your strategy, prince, be reduced to the ambitions of a regional governor's wife? His voice, cold, Tchekanik interrupted. Why do you harp upon strategy, preacher? What is it you think my prince will have? He is being led to desire a throne, the preacher said. I wish him good luck, but he will need much more than luck. These are dangerous words, Faridon said. How is it you dare such words? Ambitions tend to remain undisturbed by realities, the preacher said. I dare such words because you stand at a crossroad. You could become admirable, but now you are surrounded by those who do not seek moral justifications, by advisers who are strategy-oriented. You are young and strong and tough, but you lack a certain advanced training by which your character might evolve. This is sad because you have weaknesses whose dimensions I have described. What do you mean? Tchekanik demanded. Have a care when you speak, Faridon said. What is this weakness? You've given no thought to the kind of society you might prefer, the preacher said. You do not consider the hopes of your subjects. Even the form of the imperium which you seek has little shape in your imaginings. He turned his masked face toward Tchekanik. Your eye is upon the power, not upon its subtle uses and its perils. Your future is filled, thus, with manifest unknowns, with arguing women, with coughs and windy days. How can you create an epoch when you cannot see every detail? Your tough mind will not serve you. This is where you are weak. Faradon studied the old man for a long space, wondering at the deeper issues implied by such thoughts, at the persistence of such discredited concepts. Morality. Social goals. These were myths to put beside belief in an upward movement of evolution. Tchekanik said, We've had enough words. What of the price agreed upon, preacher? Duncan Idaho is yours, the preacher said. Have a care how you use him. He is a jewel beyond price. Oh, we've a suitable mission for him, Tchekanik said. He glanced at Faradun. By your leave, my prince? Send him packing before I change my mind, Faridon said. 
then glaring at Tiekanik, I don't like the way you've used me, Tiek. Forgive him, prince, the preacher said. Your faithful Basha does God's will without even knowing it. Bowing, the preacher departed, and Tiekanik hurried to see him away. Firedon watched the retreating backs, thought, I must look into this religion which Tiek espouses. And he smiled ruefully. What a dream interpreter. But what matter? My dream was not an important thing. And he saw a vision of armor. The armor was not his own skin. It was stronger than plasteel. Nothing penetrated his armor, not knife or poison or sand, not the dust of the desert or its desiccating heat. In his right hand he carried the power to make the Coriolis storm, to shake the earth and erode it into nothing. His eyes were fixed upon the golden path, and in his left hand he carried the scepter of absolute mastery. And beyond the golden path his eyes looked into eternity, which he knew to be the food of his soul and of his everlasting flesh. Heya, my brother's dream, from the book of Ganima. It'd be better for me never to become emperor, Leto said. Oh, I don't imply that I've made my father's mistake and peered into the future with a glass of spice. I say this thing out of selfishness. My sister and I desperately need a time of freedom when we can learn how to live with what we are. He fell silent, stared questioningly at the Lady Jessica. He'd spoken his piece as he and Ganima had agreed. Now, what would be their grandmother's response? Jessica studied her grandson in the low light of glow globes which illuminated her quarters in Siech Tabur. It was still early morning of her second day here, and she'd already had disturbing reports that the twins had spent a night of vigil outside the Siech. What were they doing? She had not slept well, and she felt fatigue acids demanding that she come down from the hyper level which had sustained her through all the demanding necessities since that crucial performance at the spaceport. This was the Siech of her nightmares. But outside, that was not the desert she remembered. Where have all the flowers come from? And the air around her felt too damp. Still suit discipline was lax among the young. What are you, child, that you need time to learn about yourself? She asked. He shook his head gently, knowing it to be a bizarre gesture of adulthood on a child's body, reminding himself that he must keep this woman off balance. First, I am not a child. Oh, he touched his chest. This is a child's body, no doubt of that, but I am not a child. Jessica chewed her upper lip, disregarding what this betrayed. Her duke, so many years dead on this accursed planet, had laughed at her when she did this. Your one unbridled response, he'd called that chewing of the lip. It tells me you're disturbed and I must kiss those lips to still their fluttering. Now this grandson, who bore the name of her duke, shocked her into heart-pounding stillness merely by smiling and saying, You are disturbed. I see it by the fluttering of those lips. It required the most profound discipline of her Bene Gesserit training to restore a semblance of calm. She managed. Do you taunt me? Taunt you? Never. But I must make it clear to you how much we differ. 
Let me remind you of that C.H. orgy so long ago, when the old Reverend Mother gave you her lives and her memories. She tuned herself to you and gave you that, that long chain of sausages, each one a person. You have them yet, so you know something of what Ganima and I experience. And Alia? Jessica asked, testing him. Didn't you discuss that with Gani? I wish to discuss it with you. Very well. Alia denied what she was and became that which she most feared. The past within cannot be relegated to the unconscious. That is a dangerous course for any human, but for us who are pre-born it is worse than death. And that is all I will say about Alia. So you're not a child, Jessica said. I'm millions of years old. That requires adjustments which humans have never before been called upon to make. Jessica nodded, calmer now, much more cautious than she'd been with Ganima. And where was Ganima? Why had Leto come here alone? Well, Grandmother, he said, are we abominations, or are we the hope of the Atreides? Jessica ignored the question. Where is your sister? She distracts Alia to keep us from being disturbed. It is necessary. But Gani would say nothing more to you than I've said. Didn't you observe that yesterday? What I observed yesterday is my affair. Why do you prattle about abomination? Prattle? Don't give me your Bene Gesserit cant, Grandmother. I'll feed it back to you word for word right out of your own memories. I want more than the fluttering of your lips. Jessica shook her head, feeling the coldness of this person who carried her blood. The resources at his disposal daunted her. She tried to match his tone, asked, What do you know of my intentions? He sniffed. You needn't inquire whether I've made the mistake my father made. I've not looked outside our garden of time, at least not by seeking it out. Leave absolute knowledge of the future to those moments of déjà vu which any human may experience. I know the trap of prescience. My father's life tells me what I need to know about it. No, Grandmother. To know the future absolutely is to be trapped into that future absolutely. It collapses time. Present becomes future. I require more freedom than that. Jessica felt her tongue twitch with unspoken words. How could she respond to him with something he didn't already know? This was monstrous. He's me. He's my beloved Leto. This thought shocked her. Momentarily she wondered if the childish mask might not lapse into those dear features and resurrect. No. Leto lowered his head, looked upward to study her. Yes, she could be maneuvered after all. He said, When you think of prescience, which I hope is rarely, you're probably no different from any other. Most people imagine how nice it would be to know tomorrow's quotation on the price of whale fur, or whether a Harkonnen will once more govern their home world of Gady Prime. But of course we know the Harkonnens without prescience, don't we, Grandmother? She refused to rise to his baiting. Of course he would know about the cursed Harkonnen blood in his ancestry. Who is a Harkonnen? he asked, goading. Who is Beast Raban? Any one of us, eh? But I digress. I speak the popular myth of prescience to know the future absolutely, all of it. What fortunes could be made and lost on such absolute knowledge, eh? The rabble believes this. They believe that if a little bit is good, more must be better. How excellent! And if you handed one of them the complete scenario of his life, the unvarying dialogue up to his moment of death, 
What a hellish gift that'd be. What utter boredom. Every living instant he'd be replaying what he knew absolutely. No deviation. He could anticipate every response, every utterance, over and over and over and over and over and... Leto shook his head. Ignorance has its advantages. A universe of surprises is what I pray for. It was a long speech, and as she listened, Jessica marveled at how his mannerisms, his intonations echoed his father, her lost son. Even the ideas, these were things Paul might have said. You remind me of your father, she said. Is that hurtful to you? In a way, but it's reassuring to know he lives on in you. How little you understand of how he lives on in me. Jessica found his tone flat, but dripping bitterness. She lifted her chin to look directly at him. Or how your duke lives in me, Leto said. Grandmother, Ganima is you. She's you to such an extent that your life holds not a single secret from her up to the instant you bore our father. And me? What a catalogue of fleshly recordings am I. There are moments when it is too much to bear. You come here to judge us? You come here to judge Aaliyah? Better that we judge you. Jessica demanded answer of herself and found none. What was he doing? Why this emphasis on his difference? Did he court rejection? Had he reached Aaliyah's condition? Abomination? This disturbs you, he said. It disturbs me. She permitted herself a futile shrug. Yes, it disturbs me. And for reasons you know full well. I'm sure you've reviewed my Bene Gesserit training. Ganima admits it. I know Aaliyah did. You know the consequences of your difference. He peered upward at her with disturbing intensity. Almost we did not take this tack with you, he said, and there was a sense of her own fatigue in his voice. We know the fluttering of your lips as your lover knew them. Any bedchamber endearment your duke whispered is ours to recall at will. You've accepted this intellectually, no doubt, but I warn you that intellectual acceptance is not enough. If any of us becomes abomination, it could be you within us who creates it. Or my father, or mother, your duke. Any one of you could possess us, and the condition would be the same. Jessica felt a burning in her chest, dampness in her eyes. Later, she managed, allowing herself to use his name at last. She found the pain less than she'd imagined it would be, forced herself to continue. What is it you want of me? I would teach my grandmother. Teach me what? Last night Ganny and I played the mother-father roles almost to our destruction, but we learned much. There are things one can know given an awareness of conditions. Actions can be predicted. Aaliyah, now, it's well-nigh certainty that she's plotting to abduct you. Jessica blinked, shocked by the swift accusation. She knew this trick well, had employed it many times, set a person up along one line of reasoning, then introduced the shocker from another line. She recovered with a sharp intake of breath. I know what Aaliyah has been doing, what she is, but, grandmother, pity her. Use your heart as well as your intelligence. You've done that before. You pose a threat, and Aaliyah wants the Imperium for her own, at least the thing she has become wants this. 
How do I know this isn't another abomination speaking? He shrugged. That's where your heart comes in. Ganny and I know how she fell. It isn't easy to adjust to the clamor of that inner multitude. Suppress their egos and they will come crowding back every time you invoke a memory. One day, he swallowed in a dry throat, a strong one from that inner pack decides it's time to share the flesh. And there's nothing you can do? She asked the question, although she feared the answer. We believe there is something, yes. We cannot succumb to the spice, that's paramount. And we must not suppress the past entirely, we must use it, make an amalgam of it. Finally, we will mix them all into ourselves. We will no longer be our original selves, but we will not be possessed. You speak of a plot to abduct me. It's obvious. When Sisha is ambitious for her son, Aaliyah is ambitious for herself, and Aaliyah and Faradun? That's not indicated, he said. But Aaliyah and Wenzishia run parallel courses right now. Wenzishia has a sister in Aaliyah's house. What simpler thing than a message to, you know of such a message? As though I'd seen it and read its every word. But you've not seen such a message. No need. I have only to know that the Atreides are all here together on Arrakis. All of the water in one cistern. He gestured to encompass the planet. House Corino wouldn't dare attack us here. Aaliyah would profit if they did. A sneer in his voice provoked her. I won't be patronized by my own grandson, she said. Then damn it, woman, stop thinking of me as your grandson. Think of me as your Duke Leto. Tone and facial expression, even the abrupt hand gesture, were so exact that she fell silent in confusion. In a dry, remote voice, Leto said, I tried to prepare you. Give me that at least. Why would Aaliyah abduct me? To blame it on House Corino, of course. I don't believe it. Even for her, this would be monstrous, too dangerous. How could she do it without... I cannot believe this. When it happens, you'll believe. Ah, grandmother. Gani and I have but to eavesdrop within ourselves, and we know it's simple self-preservation. How else can we even guess at the mistakes being made around us? I do not for a minute accept that abduction is part of Aaliyah's gods below. How can you, a Bene Gesserit, be this dense? The whole Imperium suspects why you're here. When Sishia's propagandists are all prepared to discredit you, Aaliyah can't wait for that to happen. If you go down, House Atreides could suffer a mortal blow. What does the whole Imperium suspect? She measured out the words as coldly as possible, knowing she could not sway this unchild with any wile of voice. The Lady Jessica plans to breed those twins together, he rasped. That's what the sisterhood wants, incest. She blinked. Idle rumor, she swallowed. The Bene Gesserits will not let such a rumor run wild in the Imperium. We still have some influence, remember that. Rumor? What rumor? You've certainly held your options open on interbreeding us. He shook his head as she started to speak. Don't deny it. Let us pass puberty still living in the same household and you in that household, and your influence will be no more than a rag waved in the face of a sandworm. Do you believe us to be such utter fools? Jessica asked. Indeed I do. Your sisterhood is nothing but a bunch of damn fool old women who haven't thought beyond their precious breeding program. Gunny and I know the leverage they have. 
Do you think us fools? Leverage? They know you're a Harkonnen. It'll be in their breeding records. Jessica out of Tanidia Nerus by the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. That record, accidentally made public, would pull your teeth to... You think the sisterhood would stoop to blackmail? I know they would. Oh, they coated it sweetly. They told you to investigate the rumors about your daughter. They fed your curiosity and your fears. They invoked your sense of responsibility, made you feel guilty because you'd fled back to Caladan, and they offered you the prospect of saving your grandchildren. Jessica could only stare at him in silence. It was as though he'd eavesdropped on the emotional meetings with her proctors from the sisterhood. She felt completely subdued by his words, and now began to accept the possibility that he spoke truth when he said Alia planned abduction. You see, Grandmother, I have a difficult decision to make, he said. Do I follow the Atreides mystique? Do I live for my subjects and die for them? Or do I choose another course, one which would permit me to live thousands of years? Jessica recoiled involuntarily. These words, spoken so easily, touched on a subject the Bene Gesserits made almost unthinkable. Many reverend mothers could choose that course, or try it. The manipulation of internal chemistry was available to initiates of the sisterhood, but if one did it, sooner or later all would try it. There could be no concealing such an accumulation of ageless women. They knew for a certainty that this course would lead them to destruction. Short-lived humanity would turn upon them. No, it was unthinkable. I don't like the trend of your thoughts, she said. You don't understand my thoughts, he said. Gani and I... He shook his head. Alia had it in her grasp and threw it away. Are you sure of that? I've already sent word to the sisterhood that Alia practices the unthinkable. Look at her. She's not aged a day since last I... Oh, that... He dismissed Bene Gesserit body balance with a wave of his hand. I'm speaking of something else, a perfection of being far beyond anything humans have ever before achieved. Jessica remained silent, aghast at how easily he'd lifted her disclosure from her. He'd know surely that such a message represented a death sentence on Aaliyah, and no matter how he changed the words, he could only be talking about committing the same offence. Didn't he know the peril of his words? You must explain, she said finally. How? he asked. Unless you understand that time isn't what it appears, I can't even begin to explain. My father suspected it. He stood at the edge of realization but fell back. Now it's up to Gani and me. I insist that you explain, Jessica said, and she fingered the poisoned needle she held beneath a fold of her robe. It was the Gomjabar, so deadly that the slightest prick of it killed within seconds, and she thought, they warned me I might have to use it. The thought sent the muscles of her arm trembling in waves, and she was thankful for the concealing robe. Very well, he sighed. First, as to time, there is no difference between ten thousand years and one year, no difference between one hundred thousand years and a heartbeat, no difference. That is the first fact about time. And the second fact. The entire universe, with all of its time, is within me. What nonsense is this? she demanded. You see, you don't understand. I will try to explain in another way, then. 
he raised his right hand to illustrate, moving it as he spoke. We go forward, we come back. Those words explain nothing. That is correct, he said. There are things which words cannot explain. You must experience them without words. But you are not prepared for such a venture, just as when you look at me you do not see me. But I'm looking directly at you. Of course I see you. She glared at him. His words reflected knowledge of the Zen Sunni Codex as she'd been taught it in the Bene Gesserit schools. Play of words to confuse one's understanding of philosophy. Some things occur beyond your control, he said. How does that explain this, this perfection which is so far beyond other human experiences? He nodded. If one delays old age or death by the use of melange, or by that learned adjustment of fleshly balance which you Bene Gesserits so rightly fear, such a delay invokes only an illusion of control. Whether one walks rapidly through the Sietch or slowly one traverses the Sietch, and that passage of time is experienced internally. Why do you bandy words this way? I cut my wisdom teeth on such nonsense long before even your father was born. But only the teeth grew, he said. Words, words, she said. Ah, you're very close. Ha! Grandmother? Yes? He held his silence for a long space. Then, you see, you can still respond as yourself. He smiled at her. But you cannot see past the shadows. I am here. Again he smiled. My father came very near to this. When he lived, he lived, but when he died, he failed to die. What are you saying? Show me his body. Do you think this preacher? Possible, but even so, that is not his body. You've explained nothing, she accused. Just as I warned you. Then why? You asked. You had to be shown. Now let us return to Alia and her plan of abduction for- Are you planning the unthinkable? she demanded holding the poisonous gomjabar at the ready beneath her robe. Will you be her executioner? he asked, his voice deceptively mild. He pointed a finger at the hand beneath her robe. Do you think she'll permit you to use that, or do you think I'd let you use it? Jessica found she could not swallow. In answer to your question, he said, I do not plan the unthinkable, I am not that stupid, but I am shocked at you. You dare judge Aaliyah. Of course she's broken the precious Bene Gesserit commandment. What do you expect? You ran out on her, left her as queen here in all but name. All of that power. So you ran back to Caladan to nurse your wounds in Gurney's arms. Good enough. But who are you to judge Aaliyah? I tell you, I will not dis- Oh, shut up! He looked away from her in disgust. But his words had been uttered in that special Bene Gesserit way, the controlling voice. It silenced her as though a hand had been clapped over her mouth. She thought, who'd know how to hit me with voice better than this one? It was a mitigating argument which eased her wounded feelings. As many times as she'd used voice on others, she'd never expected to be susceptible to it. Not ever again, not since the school days when... He turned back to her. I'm sorry. I just happen to know how blindly you can be expected to react when... Blindly? Me? She was more outraged by this than she'd been by his exquisite use of voice against her. You, he said, blindly. 
If you've any honesty left in you at all, you'll recognize your own reactions. I call your name and you say, yes, I silence your tongue. I invoke all your Bene Gesserit myths. Look in with the way you were taught. That at least is something you can do for your... How dare you? What do you know of... Her voice trailed off. Of course he knew. Look inward, I say. His voice was imperious. Again, his voice enthralled her. She found her senses stilled, felt a quickening of breath. Just beyond awareness lurked a pounding heart, the panting of... Abruptly, she realized that the quickened breath, the pounding heart, were not latent, not held at bay by her Bene Gesserit control. Eyes widening in shocked awareness, she felt her own flesh obeying other commands. Slowly, she recovered her poise, but the realization remained. This unchild had been playing her like a fine instrument throughout their interview. Now you know how profoundly you were conditioned by your precious Bene Gesserits, he said. She could only nod. Her belief in words lay shattered. Leto had forced her to look her physical universe squarely in the face, and she'd come away shaken, her mind running with a new awareness. Show me his body. He'd shown her her own body as though it were newborn. Not since her earliest schooling days on Wallach. Not since those terrifying days before the Duke's buyers came for her. Not since then had she felt such trembling uncertainty about her next moments. You will allow yourself to be abducted, Leto said. But I'm not asking for discussion on this point, he said. You will allow it. Think of this as a command from your duke. You'll see the purpose when it's done. You're going to confront a very interesting student. Leto stood, nodded. He said, some actions have an end, but no beginning. Some begin, but do not end. It all depends upon where the observer is standing. Turning, he left her chambers. In the second anteroom, Leto met Ganima hurrying into their private quarters. She stopped as she saw him, said, Aaliyah's busy with the convocation of the faith. She looked a question at the passage which led to Jessica's quarters. It worked, Leto said. Atrocity is recognized as such by victim and perpetrator alike, by all who learn about it at whatever remove. Atrocity has no excuses, no mitigating argument. Atrocity never balances or rectifies the past. Atrocity merely arms the future for more atrocity. It is self-perpetuating upon itself, a barbarous form of incest. Whoever commits atrocity also commits those future atrocities thus bred. The Apocrypha of Muad'Dib Shortly after noon, when most of the pilgrims had wandered off to refresh themselves in whatever cooling shade and source of libation they could find, the preacher entered the great square below Aliyah's temple. He came on the arm of his surrogate eyes, young Asan Tariq. In a pocket beneath his flowing robe, the preacher carried the black gauze mask he'd worn on Salusa Secundus. It amused him to think that the mask and the boy served the same purpose, disguise. While he needed surrogate eyes, doubts remained alive. Let the myth grow, but keep doubts alive, he thought. No one must discover that the mask was merely cloth, not an Ixian artifact at all. 
His hand must not slip from Asan Tariq's bony shoulder. Let the preacher once walk as the sighted despite his eyeless sockets, and all doubts would dissolve. The small hope he nursed would be dead. Each day he prayed for a change, something different over which he might stumble, but even Salusa Secundus had been a pebble, every aspect known. Nothing changed. Nothing could be changed. Yet. Many people marked his passage past the shops and arcades, noting the way he turned his head from side to side, holding it centered on a doorway or a person. The movements of his head were not always blind natural, and this added to the growing myth. Alia watched from a concealed slit in the towering battlement of her temple. She searched that scarred visage far below for some sign, a sure sign of identity. Every rumor was reported to her, each new one came with its thrill of fear. She thought her order to take the preacher captive would remain secret, but that too came back to her now as a rumor. Even among her guards, someone could not remain silent. She hoped now that the guards would follow her new orders and not take this robed mystery captive in a public place where it could be seen and reported. It was dusty hot in the square. The preacher's young guide had pulled the veil of his robe up around his nose, leaving only the dark eyes and a thin patch of forehead exposed. The veil bulged with the outline of a still-suit's catch-tube. This told Alia that they'd come in from the desert. Where did they hide out there? The preacher wore no veil protection from the searing air. He had even dropped the catch-tube flap of his still-suit. His face lay open to the sunlight and the heat shiverings which lifted off the square's paving blocks in visible waves. At the temple steps, there stood a group of nine pilgrims making their departure obeisance. The shadowed edge of the square held perhaps fifty more persons, mostly pilgrims devoting themselves to various penances imposed by the priesthood. Among the onlookers could be seen messengers and a few merchants who'd not yet made enough sales to close up for the worst of the day's heat. Watching from the open slit, Alia felt the drenching heat and knew herself to be caught between thinking and sensation, the way she'd often seen her brother caught. The temptation to consult within herself rang like an ominous humming in her head. The baron was there, dutiful, but always ready to play upon her terrors when rational judgment failed and the things around her lost their sense of past, present, and future. What if that's Paul down there? she asked herself. Nonsense, the voice within her said. But the reports of the preacher's words could not be doubted. Heresy. It terrified her to think that Paul himself might bring down the structure built on his name. Why not? She thought of what she'd said in council just that morning, turning viciously upon Irulan, who'd urged acceptance of the gift of clothing from House Carino. All gifts to the twins will be examined thoroughly, just as always, Irulan had argued. And when we find the gift harmless, Alia had cried. Somehow that had been the most frightening thing of all, to find that the gift carried no threat. In the end they'd accepted the fine clothing, and had gone on to the other issue. Was the Lady Jessica to be given a position on the council? Alia had managed to delay a vote. She thought of this as she stared down at the preacher. 
Things which happened to her regency now were like the underside of that transformation they inflicted upon this planet. Dune had once symbolized the power of ultimate desert. That power dwindled physically, but the myth of its power grew apace. Only the ocean desert remained, the great mother desert of the inner planet with its rim of thorn bushes, which Fremen still called Queen of Night. Behind the thorn bushes arose soft green hills bending down to the sand. All the hills were man-made, every last one of them had been planted by men who had laboured like crawling insects. The green of those hills was almost overpowering to someone raised, as Alia had been, in the tradition of dun-shaded sand. In her mind, as in the minds of all Fremen, the ocean desert still held Dune in a grip which would never relax. She had only to close her eyes and she would see that desert. Open eyes at the desert edge saw now the verdant hills, marsh slime reaching out green pseudopods toward the sand, but the other desert remained as powerful as ever. Alia shook her head, stared down at the preacher. He had mounted the first of the terraced steps below the temple and turned to face the almost deserted square. Alia touched the button beside her window, which would amplify voices from below. She felt a wave of self-pity, seeing herself held here in loneliness. Whom could she trust? She thought Stilgar remained reliable, but Stilgar had been infected by this blind man. You know how he counts? Stilgar had asked her. I heard him counting coins as he paid his guide. It's very strange to my Fremen ears, and that's a terrible thing. He counts shuk, ishkai, kimsa, shwasku, picha, sukta, and so on. I've not heard counting like that since the old days in the desert. From this, Alia knew that Stilgar could not be sent to do the job which must be done, and she would have to be circumspect with her guards where the slightest emphasis from the regency tended to be taken as absolute command. What was he doing down there, this preacher? The surrounding marketplace beneath its protective balconies and arched arcades still presented a gaudy face, merchandise left on display with a few boys to watch over it. Some few merchants remained awake there sniffing for the spice-biscuit money of the back country or the jingle in a pilgrim's purse. Alia studied the preacher's back. He appeared poised for speech, but something withheld his voice. Why do I stand here watching that ruin in ancient flesh? She asked herself. That mortal wreckage down there cannot be the vessel of magnificence which once was my brother. Frustration bordering on anger filled her. How could she find out about the preacher, find out for certain without finding out? She was trapped. She dared not reveal more than a passing curiosity about this heretic. Irulan felt it. She'd lost her famous Bene Gesserit poise and screamed in council, We've lost the power to think well of ourselves. Even Stilgar had been shocked. Javid had brought them back to their senses. We don't have time for such nonsense. Javid was right. What did it matter how they thought of themselves? All that concerned them was holding on to the imperial power. But Irulan, recovering her poise, had been even more devastating. We've lost something vital, I tell you. When we lost it, we lost the ability to make good decisions. We fall upon decisions these days the way we fall upon an enemy, or wait 
and wait, which is a form of giving up, and we allow the decisions of others to move us. Have we forgotten that we were the ones who set this current flowing? And all over the question of whether to accept a gift from House Corino. Irulan will have to be disposed of, Alia decided. What was the old man down there waiting for? He called himself a preacher. Why didn't he preach? Irulan was wrong about our decision-making, Alia told herself. I can still make proper decisions. The person with life and death decisions to make must make decisions or remain caught in the pendulum. Paul had always said that stasis was the most dangerous of those things which were not natural. The only permanence was fluid. Change was all that mattered. I'll show them change, Alia thought. The preacher raised his arms in benediction. A few of those remaining in the square moved closer to him, and Alia noted the slowness of that movement. Yes, the rumors were out that the preacher had aroused Alia's displeasure. She bent closer to the Ixian speaker beside her spy hole. The speaker brought her the murmurings of the people in the square, the sound of wind, the scratching of feet on sand. I bring you four messages, the preacher said. His voice blared from Alia's speaker and she turned down the volume. Each message is for a certain person, the preacher said. The first message is for Alia, the suzerain of this place. He pointed behind him toward her spy hole. I bring her a warning. You, who held the secret of duration in your loins, have sold your future for an empty purse. How dare he? Alia thought, but his words froze her. My second message, the preacher said, is for Stilgar, the Fremen Naib who believes he can translate the power of the tribes into the power of the Imperium. My warning to you, Stilgar, the most dangerous of all creations is a rigid code of ethics. It will turn upon you and drive you into exile. He has gone too far, Alia thought. I must send the guards for him, no matter the consequences. But her hands remained at her sides. The preacher turned to face the temple, climbed to the second step, and once more whirled to face the square, all the time keeping his left hand upon the shoulder of his guide. He called out now, My third message is for the Princess Irulan. Princess, humiliation is a thing which no person can forget. I warn you to flee. What's he saying? Alia asked herself. We humiliated Irulan, but why does he warn her to flee? My decision was just made. A thrill of fear shot through Alia. How did the preacher know? My fourth message is for Duncan Idaho, he shouted. Duncan, you were taught to believe that loyalty buys loyalty. Oh, Duncan, do not believe in history because history is impelled by whatever passes for money. Duncan, take your horns and do what you know best how to do. Alia chewed the back of her right hand. Horns! She wanted to reach out and press the button which would summon guards, but her hand refused to move. Now I will preach to you, the preacher said. This is a sermon of the desert. 
I direct it to the ears of Muad'Dib's priesthood, those who practice the ecumenism of the sword. Oh, you believers in manifest destiny, know you not that manifest destiny has its demoniac side? You cry out that you find yourselves exalted merely to have lived in the blessed generations of Muad'Dib. I say to you that you have abandoned Muad'Dib. Holiness has replaced love in your religion. You caught the vengeance of the desert. The preacher lowered his head as though in prayer. Aliyah felt herself shivering with awareness. Gods below, that voice. It had been cracked by years in the burning sands, but it could be the remnant of Paul's voice. Once more the preacher raised his head. His voice boomed out over the square where more people had begun to gather, attracted by this oddity out of the past. Thus it is written, the preacher shouted, they who pray for dew at the desert's edge shall bring forth the deluge. They shall not escape their fate through powers of reason. Reason arises from pride that a man may not know in this way when he has done evil. He lowered his voice. It was said of Muad'Dib that he died of prescience, that knowledge of the future killed him, and he passed from the universe of reality into the Alam al-Mithal. I say to you that this is the illusion of Maya. Such thoughts have no independent reality. They cannot go out from you and do real things. Muad'Dib said of himself that he possessed no Rihani magic with which to encipher the universe. Do not doubt him. Again the preacher raised his arms, lifted his voice in a stentorian bellow. I warn the priesthood of Muad'Dib. The fire on the cliff shall burn you. They who learn the lesson of self-deception too well shall perish by that deception. The blood of a brother cannot be cleansed away. He had lowered his arms, found his young guide, and was leaving the square before Aliyah could break herself from the trembling immobility which had overcome her. Such fearless heresy. It must be Paul. She had to warn her guards. They dared not move against this preacher openly. The evidence in the square below her confirmed this. Despite the heresy, no one moved to stop the departing preacher. No temple guard leaped to pursue him. No pilgrim tried to stop him. That charismatic blind man. Everyone who saw or heard him felt his power. The reflection of divine talent. In spite of the day's heat, Aaliyah felt suddenly cold. She felt the thin edge of her grip on the Imperium as a physical thing. She gripped the edge of her spy-hole window as though to hold her power, thinking of its fragility. The balance of Lansrat, Chom, and Fremen arms held the core of power, while Spacing Guild and Bene Gesserit dealt silently in the shadows. The forbidden seepage of technological development which came from the edges of humankind's farthest migrations nibbled at the central power. Products permitted the Ixian and Leilaxu factories could not relieve the pressure, and always in the wings there stood Faradun of House Corino, inheritor of Shaddam IV's titles and claims.
Without the Fremen, without House Atreides' monopoly on the geriatric spice, her grip would loosen. All the power would dissolve. She could feel it slipping from her right now. People heeded this preacher. It would be dangerous to silence him, just as dangerous as it was to let him continue preaching such words as he'd shouted across her square today. She could see the first omens of her own defeat, and the pattern of the problem stood out clearly in her mind. The Bene Gesserits had codified the problem. A large populace held in check by a small but powerful force is quite a common situation in our universe, and we know the major conditions wherein this large populace may turn upon its keepers. One, when they find a leader. This is the most volatile threat to the powerful. They must retain control of leaders. Two, when the populace recognizes its chains. Keep the populace blind and unquestioning. Three, when the populace perceives a hope of escape from bondage. They must never even believe that escape is possible. Aaliyah shook her head, feeling her cheeks tremble with the force of movement. The signs were here in her populace. Every report she received from her spies throughout the Imperium reinforced her certain knowledge. Unceasing warfare of the Fremen Jihad left its mark everywhere. Wherever the ecumenism of the sword had touched, people retained the attitude of a subject population, defensive, concealing, evasive. All manifestations of authority, and this meant essentially religious authority, became subject to resentment. Oh, pilgrims still came in their thronging millions, and some among them were probably devout, but for the most part pilgrimage had other motivations than devotion. Most often it was a canny surety for the future. It emphasized obedience and gained a real form of power which was easily translated into wealth. The Haji who returned from Arrakis came home to a new authority, new social status. The Haji could make profitable economic decisions which the planet-bound of his homeworld dared not challenge. Alia knew the popular riddle. What do you see inside the empty purse brought home from Dune? And the answer, the eyes of Muad'Dib, fire diamonds. The traditional ways to counter growing unrest paraded themselves before Aliyah's awareness. People had to be taught that opposition was always punished and assistance to the ruler was always rewarded. Imperial forces must be shifted in random fashion. Major adjuncts to imperial power had to be concealed. Every movement by which the regency countered potential attack required delicate timing to keep the opposition off balance. Have I lost my sense of timing? she wondered. What idle speculation is this? a voice within her asked. She felt herself growing calmer. Yes, the Baron's plan was a good one. We eliminate the threat of the Lady Jessica, and at the same time, we discredit House Corino. Yes. The preacher could be dealt with later. She understood his posture. The symbolism was clear. He was the ancient spirit of unbridled speculation, the spirit of heresy alive and functioning in her desert of orthodoxy. That was his strength. It didn't matter whether he was Paul, as long as that could be kept in doubt. But her Bene Gesserit knowledge told Aaliyah that his strength would contain the key to his weakness. The preacher has a flaw which we will find. I will have him spied upon, watched every moment, and if the opportunity arises, he will be discredited.
I will not argue with the Fremen claims that they are divinely inspired to transmit a religious revelation. It is their concurrent claim to ideological revelation which inspires me to shower them with derision. Of course, they make the dual claim in the hope that it will strengthen their mandronet and help them to endure in a universe which finds them increasingly oppressive. It is in the name of all those oppressed people that I warn the Fremen. Short-term expediency always fails in the long term. The Preacher at Arakim Later had come up in the night with Stilgar to the narrow ledge at the crest of the low rock outcropping which Siech Tabor called The Attendant. Under the waning light of second moon, the ledge gave them a panoramic view, the shield wall with Mount Idaho to the north, the great flat to the south, and rolling dunes eastward toward Habanya Ridge. Winding dust, the aftermath of a storm, hid the southern horizon. Moonlight frosted the rim of the shield wall. Stilgar had come against his will, joining the secretive venture finally because Leto aroused his curiosity. Why was it necessary to risk a sand crossing in the night? The lad had threatened to sneak away and make the journey alone if Stilgar refused. The way of it bothered him profoundly, though. Two such important targets, alone in the night. Leto squatted on the ledge facing south toward the flat. Occasionally he pounded his knee as though in frustration. Stilgar waited. He was good at silent waiting, and stood two paces to one side of his charge, arms folded, his robe moving softly in the night breeze. For later, the sand crossing represented a response to inner desperation, a need to seek a new alignment for his life in a silent conflict which Ganima could no longer risk. He had manoeuvred Stilgar into sharing the journey because there were things Stilgar had to know in preparation for the days ahead. Again, Leto pounded his knee. It was difficult to know a beginning. He felt, at times, like an extension of those countless other lives, all as real and immediate as his own. In the flow of those lives there was no ending, no accomplishment, only eternal beginning. They could be a mob, too, clamouring at him as though he were a single window through which each desired to peer, and there lay the peril which had destroyed Alia. Leto stared outward at the moonlight silvering the storm remnants. Folds and overfolds of dunes spread across the flat, silica grit measured out by the winds, mounded into waves, pea sand, grit sand, pebbles. He felt himself caught in one of those poised moments just before dawn. Time pressed at him. It was already the month of Akkad, and behind him lay the last of an interminable waiting time. Long hot days and hot dry winds, nights like this one tormented by gusts and endless blowings from the furnace lands of Hawkblad. He glanced over his shoulder toward the shield wall, a broken line in starlight. Beyond that wall in the northern sink lay the focus of his problems. Once more he looked to the desert. As he stared into the hot darkness, day dawned, the sun rising out of dust scarves and placing a touch of lime into the storm's red streamers. He closed his eyes, willing himself to see how this day would appear from Arakin, and the city lay there in his consciousness, caught up like a scattering of boxes between the light and the new shadows. Desert. Boxes. Desert. Boxes. When he opened his eyes, the desert remained, a spreading, curry expanse of wind-kicked sand. 
Oily shadows along the base of each dune reached out like rays of the night just past. They linked one time with the other. He thought of the night, squatting here with Stilgar restless beside him, the older man worried at the silence and the unexplained reasons for coming to this place. Stilgar must have many memories of passing this way with his beloved Muad'Dib. Even now Stilgar was moving, scanning all around, alert for dangers. Stilgar did not like the open in daylight. He was pure old Fremen in that. Leto's mind was reluctant to leave the night and the clean exertions of a sand crossing. Once here in the rocks, the night had taken on its black stillness. He sympathized with Stilgar's daylight fears. Black was a single thing even when it contained boiling terrors. Light could be many things. Night held its fear smells and its things which came with slithering sounds. Dimensions separated in the night, everything amplified, thorns sharper, blades more cutting. But terrors of the day could be worse. Stilgar cleared his throat. Leto spoke without turning. I have a very serious problem still. So I surmised. The voice beside Leto came low and wary. The child had sounded disturbingly of the father. It was a thing of forbidden magic which touched a chord of revulsion in Stilgar. Fremen knew the terrors of possession. Those found possessed were rightfully killed and their water cast upon the sand lest it contaminate the tribal cistern. The dead should remain dead. It was correct to find one's immortality in children, but children had no right to assume too exact a shape from their past. My problem is that my father left so many things undone. Leto said, especially the focus of our lives. The Empire cannot go on this way still, without a proper focus for human life. I am speaking of life, you understand. Life, not death. Once, when he was troubled by a vision, your father spoke in this vein to me, Stilgar said. Leto found himself tempted to pass off that questioning fear beside him with a light response, perhaps a suggestion that they break their fast. He realized that he was very hungry. They had eaten the previous noon and Leto had insisted on fasting through the night, but another hunger drew him now. The trouble with my life is the trouble with this place, Leto thought. No preliminary creation. I just go back and back and back until distances fade away. I cannot see the horizon. I cannot see Habanya Ridge. I can't find the original place of testing. There's really no substitute for prescience, Leto said. Perhaps I should risk the spice. And be destroyed as your father was? A dilemma, Leto said. Once your father confided in me that knowing the future too well was to be locked into that future to the exclusion of any freedom to change. The paradox which is our problem, Leto said. It's a subtle and powerful thing, prescience. The future becomes now. To be sighted in the land of the blind carries its own perils. If you try to interpret what you see for the blind, you tend to forget that the blind possess an inherent movement conditioned by their blindness. They are like a monstrous machine moving along its own path. They have their own momentum, their own fixations. I fear the blind still. I fear them. They can so easily crush anything in their path. Stilgar stared at the desert. Lime dawn had become steel day. He said, 
Why have we come to this place? Because I wanted you to see the place where I may die. Stilgar tensed. Then, so you have had a vision. Perhaps it was only a dream. Why do we come to such a dangerous place? Stilgar glared down at his charge. We will return at once. I won't die today still. No? What was this vision? I saw three paths, Leto said. His voice came out with a sleepy sound of remembrance. One of those futures requires me to kill our grandmother. Stilgar shot a sharp glance back towards Sietch Tabor, as though he feared the Lady Jessica could hear them across the sandy distance. Why? To keep from losing the spice monopoly. I don't understand. Nor do I, but that is the thought of my dream when I use the knife. Oh. Stilgar understood the use of a knife. He drew a deep breath. What is the second path? Gani and I marry to seal the Atreides' bloodline. Gah! Stilgar expelled his breath in a violent expression of distaste. It was usual in ancient times for kings and queens to do this, Leto said. Gani and I have decided we will not breed. I warn you to hold fast in that decision. There was death in Stilgar's voice. By Fremen law, incest was punishable by death on the hanging tripod. He cleared his throat, asked, And the third path? I am called to reduce my father to human stature. He was my friend, Muad'Dib, Stilgar muttered. He was your god. I must undeify him. Stilgar turned his back on the desert, stared toward the oasis of his beloved Sietch Tabur. Such talk always disturbed him. Leto sensed the sweaty smell of Stilgar's movement. It was such a temptation to avoid the purposeful things which had to be said here. They could talk half the day away, moving from the specific to the abstract as though drawn away from real decisions, from those immediate necessities which confronted them. And there was no doubt that House Corino posed a real threat to real lives, his own and Gani's. But everything he did now had to be weighed and tested against the secret necessities. Stilgar once had voted to have Faradun assassinated, holding out for the subtle application of Chaumurki, poison administered in a drink. Faradun was known to be partial to certain sweet liquors. That could not be permitted. If I die here still, Leto said, you must beware of Alia. She is no longer your friend. What is this talk of death and your aunt? Now Stilgar was truly outraged. Kill the Lady Jessica, beware of Alia, die in this place. Small men change their faces at her command, Leto said. A ruler need not be a prophet still, nor even godlike. A ruler need only be sensitive. I brought you here with me to clarify what our imperium requires. It requires good government. That does not depend upon laws or precedent, but upon the personal qualities of whoever governs. The Regency handles its imperial duties quite well, Stilgar said. When you come of age... I am of age. I'm the oldest person here. You're a puling infant beside me. I can remember times more than fifty centuries past. Ha! I can even remember when we Fremen were on Thurgrod. Why do you play with such fancies? Stilgar demanded, his tone peremptory. Leto nodded to himself. 
Why indeed? Why recount his memories of those other centuries? Today's Fremen were his immediate problem, most of them still only half-tamed savages prone to laugh at unlucky innocents. The Christnight dissolves at the death of its owner, Leto said. Muad'Dib has dissolved. Why are the Fremen still alive? It was one of those abrupt thought changes which so confounded Stilgar. He found himself temporarily dumb. Such words contained meaning, but their intent eluded him. I am expected to be emperor, but I must be the servant, Leto said. He glanced across his shoulder at Stilgar. My grandfather, for whom I was named, added new words to his coat of arms when he came here to Dune. Here I am, here I remain. He had no choice, Stilgar said. Very good, still, nor have I any choice. I should be the emperor by birth, by the fitness of my understanding, by all that has gone into me. I even know what the Imperium requires, good government. Naib has an ancient meaning, Stilgar said. It is servant of the Siege. I remember your training still, Leto said. For proper government, the tribe must have ways to choose men whose lives reflect the way a government should behave. From the depths of his Fremen soul, Stilgar said, You'll assume the imperial mantle if it's meat. First you must prove that you can behave in the fashion of a ruler. Unexpectedly, Leto laughed. Then, Do you doubt my sincerity still? Of course not. My birthright? You are who you are. And if I do what is expected of me, that is the measure of my sincerity, eh? It is the Fremen practice then I cannot have inner feelings to guide my behavior? I don't understand what, if I always behave with propriety, no matter what it costs me to suppress my own desires, then that is the measure of me. Such is the essence of self-control, youngster. Youngster! Leto shook his head. Ah, still, you provide me with the key to a rational ethic of government. I must be constant, every action rooted in the traditions of the past. That is proper. But my past goes deeper than yours. What difference? I have no first-person singular still. I am a multiple person, with memories of traditions more ancient than you could imagine. That's my burden still. I'm past-directed. I'm a brim with innate knowledge which resists newness and change. Yet Muad'Dib changed all this. He gestured at the desert, his arms sweeping to encompass the shield wall behind him. Stilgar turned to peer at the shield wall. A village had been built beneath the wall since Muad'Dib's time, houses to shelter a planetology crew helping spread plant life into the desert. Stilgar stared at the man-made intrusion into the landscape. Change? Yes. There was an alignment to the village, a trueness which offended him. He stood silently, ignoring the itching of grit particles under his still suit. That village was an offense against the thing this planet had been. Suddenly, Stilgar wanted a circular howling of wind to leap over the dunes and obliterate that place. The sensation left him trembling. Leto said, Have you noticed still that the new still suits are of sloppy manufacture? Our water loss is too high. Stilgar stopped himself on the point of asking, Have I not said it? Instead, he said, Our people grow increasingly dependent upon the pills. Leto nodded. 
The pills shifted body temperature, reduced water loss. They were cheaper and easier than still suits, but they inflicted the user with other burdens, among them a tendency to slowed reaction time, occasional blurred vision. Is that why we came out here? Stilgar asked. To discuss still suit manufacture? Why not? Leto asked. Since you will not face what I must talk about. Why must I beware of your aunt? Anger edged his voice. Because she plays upon the old Fremen desire to resist change, yet would bring more terrible change than you can imagine. You make much out of little. She's a proper Fremen. Ah, then the proper Fremen holds to the ways of the past, and I have an ancient past. Still, were I to give free rein to this inclination, I would demand a closed society, completely dependent upon the sacred ways of the past. I would control migration, explaining that this fosters new ideas, and new ideas are a threat to the entire structure of life. Each little planetary polis would go its own way, becoming what it would. Finally, the empire would shatter under the weight of its differences. Stilgar tried to swallow in a dry throat. These were words which Muad'Dib might have produced. They had his ring to them. They were paradox, frightening. But if one allowed any change, he shook his head. The past may show the right way to behave if you live in the past still, but circumstances change. Stilgar could only agree that circumstances did change. How must one behave then? He looked beyond Leto, seeing the desert and not seeing it. Muad'Dib had walked there. The flat was a place of golden shadows as the sun climbed, purple shadows, gritty rivulets crested in dust vapors. The dust fog which usually hung over Habanya Ridge was visible in the far distance now, and the desert between presented his eyes with dunes diminishing, one curve into another. Through the smoky shimmer of heat, he saw the plants which crept out from the desert edge. Muad'Dib had caused life to sprout in that desolate place. Copper, gold, red flowers, yellow flowers, rust and russet, grey-green leaves, spikes and harsh shadows beneath bushes. The motion of the day's heat set shadows quivering, vibrating in the air. Presently, Stilgar said, I am only a leader of Fremen. You are the son of a duke. Not knowing what you said, you said it, later said. Stilgar scowled. Once, long ago, Muad'Dib had chided him thus. You remember it, don't you, still? Later asked. We were under Habanya Ridge and the Sadoka captain, remember him, Aramsham? He killed his friend to save himself. And you warned several times that day about preserving the lives of Sadoka who'd seen our secret ways. Finally, you said they would surely reveal what they'd seen, they must be killed. And my father said, not knowing what you said, you said it. And you were hurt. You told him you were only a simple leader of Fremen. Dukes must know more important things. Stilgar stared down at Leto. We were under Habanya Ridge. We? This, this child not even conceived on that day, knew what had taken place in exact detail, the kind of detail which could only be known to someone who had been there. It was only another proof that these Atreides' children could not be judged by ordinary standards. Now you will listen to me, Leto said. 
If I die or disappear in the desert, you are to flee from Siech Tabor. I command it. You are to take Gani and— You are not yet my duke. You're a—a a child. I'm an adult in a child's flesh, Leto said. He pointed down to a narrow crack in the rocks below them. If I die here, it will be in that place. You will see the blood. You will know then. Take my sister and— I'm doubling your guard, Stilgar said. You're not coming out here again. We are leaving now, and you— Still, you cannot hold me. Turn your mind once more to that time at Habanya Ridge, remember? The factory crawler was out there on the sand, and a big maker was coming. There was no way to save the crawler from the worm, and my father was annoyed that he couldn't save that crawler. But Gurney could think only of the men he'd lost in the sand. Remember what he said. Your father would have been more concerned for the men he couldn't save. Still, I charge you to save people. They're more important than things. And Gani is the most precious of all because without me, she is the only hope for the Atreides. I will hear no more, Stilgar said. He turned and began climbing down the rocks toward the oasis across the sand. He heard Leto following. Presently, Leto passed him and, glancing back, said, Have you noticed still how beautiful the young women are this year? The life of a single human, as the life of a family or an entire people, persists as memory. My people must come to see this as part of their maturing process. They are people as organism, and in this persistent memory they store more and more experiences in a subliminal reservoir. Humankind hopes to call upon this material if it is needed for a changing universe, but much that is stored can be lost in that chance play of accident which we call fate. Much may not be integrated into evolutionary relationships and thus may not be evaluated and keyed into activity by those ongoing environmental changes which inflict themselves upon flesh. The species can forget. This is the special value of the Kwisatz Haderach, which the Bene Gesserits never suspected. The Kwisatz Haderach cannot forget. The Book of Leto, after Hark Aladah Stilgar could not explain it, but he found Leto's casual observation profoundly disturbing. It ground through his awareness all the way back across the sand to Siech Tabor, taking precedence over everything else Leto had said out there on the attendant. Indeed, the young women of Arrakis were very beautiful that year, and the young men too. Their faces glowed serenely with water richness, their eyes looked outward and far. They exposed their features, often without any pretense of still-suit masks and the snaking lines of catch-tubes. Frequently they did not even wear still-suits in the open, preferring the new garments which, as they moved, offered flickering suggestions of the lithe young bodies beneath. Such human beauty was set off against the new beauty of the landscape. By contrast with the old Arrakis, the eye could be spellbound by its collision with a tiny clump of green twigs growing among red-brown rocks, and the old Siech warrens of the cave metropolis culture, complete with elaborate seals and moisture traps at every entrance, were giving way to open villages built often of mud bricks. Mud bricks. Why did I want the village destroyed? Stilgar wondered, and he stumbled as he walked. He knew himself to be of a dying breed. Old Fremen gasped in wonder at the prodigality of their planet, water wasted into the air for no more than its ability to mould building bricks. 
and the water for a single one-family dwelling would keep an entire sietch alive for a year. The new buildings even had transparent windows to let in the sun's heat and to desiccate the bodies within. Such windows opened outward. New Fremen within their mud homes could look out upon their landscape. They no longer were enclosed and huddling in a sietch. Where the new vision moved, there also moved the imagination. Stilgau could feel this. The new vision joined Fremen to the rest of the imperial universe, conditioned them to unbounded space. Once they'd been tied to water-poor Arrakis by their enslavement to its bitter necessities, they'd not shared that open-mindedness which conditioned inhabitants on most planets of the Imperium. Stilgar could see the changes contrasting with his own doubts and fears. In the old days, it had been a rare Fremen who even considered the possibility that he might leave Arrakis to begin a new life on one of the water-rich worlds. They'd not even been permitted the dream of escape. He watched Leto's moving back as the youth walked ahead. Leto had spoken of prohibitions against movement off-planet. Well, that had always been a reality for most other worlders. Even where the dream was permitted as a safety valve, but planetary serfdom had reached its peak here on Arrakis, Fremen had turned inward, barricaded in their minds as they were barricaded in their cave warrens. The very meaning of Siech, a place of sanctuary in times of trouble, had been perverted here into a monstrous confinement for an entire population. Leto spoke the truth. Muad'Dib had changed all that. Stilgar felt lost. He could feel his old beliefs crumbling. The new outward vision produced life which desired to move away from containment. How beautiful the young women are this year the old ways. My ways, he admitted, had forced his people to ignore all history except that which turned inward onto their own travail. The old Fremen had read history out of their own terrible migrations, their flights from persecution into persecution. The old planetary government had followed the stated policy of the old imperium. They had suppressed creativity and all sense of progress, of evolution. Prosperity had been dangerous to the old imperium and its holders of power. With an abrupt shock, Stilgar realized that these things were equally dangerous to the course which Alia was setting. Again, Stilgar stumbled and fell farther behind Leto. In the old ways and old religions, there'd been no future, only an endless now. Before Muad'Dib, Stilgar saw, the Fremen had been conditioned to believe in failure, never in the possibility of accomplishment. Well, they'd believed Liet Kynes, but he'd set a forty-generation timescale. That was no accomplishment, that was a dream which, he saw now, had also turned inward. Muad'Dib had changed that. During the Jihad, Fremen had learned much about the old Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV the eighty-first Padishah of House Corino to occupy the Golden Lion Throne and reign over this imperium of uncounted worlds had used Arrakis as a testing place for those policies which he hoped to implement in the rest of his empire. His planetary governors on Arrakis had cultivated a persistent pessimism to bolster their power base. They'd made sure that everyone on Arrakis, even the free-roaming Fremen, became familiar with numerous cases of injustice and insoluble problems. 
They had been taught to think of themselves as a helpless people for whom there was no succor. How beautiful the young women are this year. As he watched Leto's retreating back, Stilgar began to wonder how the youth had set these thoughts flowing, and just by uttering a seemingly simple statement. Because of that statement, Stilgar found himself viewing Alia and his own role on the council in an entirely different way. Alia was fond of saying that old ways gave ground slowly. Stilgar admitted to himself that he'd always found this statement vaguely reassuring. Change was dangerous. Invention must be suppressed. Individual willpower must be denied. What other function did the priesthood serve than to deny individual will? Alia kept saying that opportunities for open competition had to be reduced to manageable limits, but that meant the recurrent threat of technology could only be used to confine populations, just as it had served its ancient masters. Any permitted technology had to be rooted in ritual, otherwise... Otherwise... Again, Stilgar stumbled. He was at the canat now and saw Leto waiting beneath the apricot orchard which grew along the flowing water. Stilgar heard his feet moving through uncut grass. Uncut grass? What can I believe? Stilgar asked himself. It was proper for a Fremen of his generation to believe that individuals needed a profound sense of their own limitations. Traditions were surely the most controlling element in a secure society. People had to know the boundaries of their time, of their society, of their territory. What was wrong with the Siege as a model for all thinking? A sense of enclosure should pervade every individual choice, should fence in the family, the community, and every step taken by a proper government. Stilgar came to a stop and stared across the orchard at Leto. The youth stood there, regarding him with a smile. Does he know the turmoil in my head? Stilgar wondered. And the old Fremen Naib tried to fall back on the traditional catechism of his people. Each aspect of life required a single form, its inherent circularity based on secret inner knowledge of what will work and what will not work. The model for life, for the community, for every element of the larger society, right up to and beyond the peaks of government, that model had to be the Siech and its counterpart in the sand, Shai Hulud. The giant sandworm was surely a most formidable creature, but when threatened, it hid in the impenetrable deeps. Change is dangerous, Stilgar told himself. Sameness and stability were the proper goals of government. But the young men and women were beautiful. And they remembered the words of Muad'Dib as he deposed Shaddam IV. It's not long life to the emperor that I seek. It's long life to the imperium. Isn't that what I've been saying to myself? Stilgar wondered. He resumed walking, headed toward the Siech entrance slightly to Leto's right. The youth moved to intercept him. Muad'Dib had said another thing, Stilgar reminded himself. Just as individuals are born, mature, breed, and die, so do societies and civilizations and governments. Dangerous or not, there would be change. The beautiful young Fremen knew this. They could look outward and see it, prepare for it. Stilgar was forced to stop. It was either that or walk right over Leto. The youth peered up at him owlishly, said, You see, still? Tradition isn't the absolute guide you thought it was.
A Fremen dies when he is too long from the desert. This we call the water sickness. Stilgar, the commentaries. It is difficult for me asking you to do this, Alia said, but I must ensure that there's an empire for Paul's children to inherit. There's no other reason for the regency. Alia turned from where she was seated at a mirror completing her morning toilet. She looked at her husband, measuring how he absorbed these words. Duncan Idaho deserved careful study in these moments. There was no doubt that he'd become something far more subtle and dangerous than the one-time swordmaster of House Atreides. The outer appearance remained similar, the black goat hair over sharp, dark features, but in the long years since his awakening from the Gola state, he had undergone an inner metamorphosis. She wondered now, as she had wondered many times, what the Gola rebirth after death might have hidden in the secret loneliness of him. Before the Tleilaxu had worked their subtle science on him, Duncan's reactions had borne clear labels for the Atreides, loyalty, fanatic adherence to the moral code of his mercenary forebears, swift to anger and swift to recover. He had been implacable in his resolve for revenge against House Harkonnen, and he had died saving Paul. But the Tleilaxu had bought his body from the Sarduka, and in their regeneration vats they had grown a zombie catrondo, the flesh of Duncan Idaho but none of his conscious memories. He'd been trained as a mentat and sent as a gift, a human computer for Paul, a fine tool equipped with a hypnotic compulsion to slay his owner. The flesh of Duncan Idaho had resisted that compulsion, and in the intolerable stress his cellular past had come back to him. Alia had decided long ago that it was dangerous to think of him as Duncan in the privacy of her thoughts. Better to think of him by his Gola name, Hate, far better and it was essential that he get not the slightest glimpse of the old Baron Harkonnen sitting there in her mind. Duncan saw Alia studying him, turned away. Love could not hide the changes in her, nor conceal from him the transparency of her motives. The many-faceted metal eyes which the Tleilaxu had given him were cruel in their ability to penetrate deception. They limbed her now as a gloating, almost masculine figure, and he could not stand to see her thus. Why do you turn away? Alia asked. I must think about this thing, he said. The Lady Jessica is an Atreides. And your loyalty is to House Atreides, not to me, Alia pouted. Don't put such fickle interpretations into me, he said. Alia pursed her lips. Had she moved too rapidly? Duncan crossed to the chambered opening which looked down on a corner of the temple plaza. He could see pilgrims beginning to gather there, the Arakeen traders moving in to feed on the edges like a pack of predators upon a herd of beasts. He focused on a particular group of tradesmen, spice-fiber baskets over their arms, Fremen mercenaries a pace behind them. They moved with a stolid force through the gathering throng. They sell pieces of etched marble, he said, pointing. Did you know that? They set the pieces out in the desert to be etched by storm sands. Sometimes they find interesting patterns in the stone. They call it a new art form, very popular. Genuine storm-etched marble from Dune. I bought a piece of it last week. A golden tree with five tassels, lovely but very fragile. Don't change the subject, Alia said. I haven't changed the subject, he said. It's beautiful, but it's not art. 
Humans create art by their own violence, by their own volition. He put his right hand on the windowsill. The twins detest this city, and I'm afraid I see their point. I fail to see the association, Alia said. The abduction of my mother is not a real abduction. She will be safe as your captive. The city was built by the blind, he said. Did you know that Leto and Stilgar went out from Siech Tabor into the desert last week? They were gone the whole night. It was reported to me, she said. These baubles from the sand, would you have me prohibit their sale? That'd be bad for business, he said, turning. Do you know what Stilgar said when I asked why they went out on the sand that way? He said Leto wished to commune with a spirit of Muad'Dib. Alia felt the sudden coldness of panic, looked in the mirror a moment to recover. Leto would not venture from the Siech at night for such nonsense. Was it a conspiracy? Idaho put a hand over his eyes to blot out the sight of her, said, Stilgar told me he went along with Leto because he still believes in Muad'Dib. Of course he does. Idaho chuckled, a hollow sound. He said he still believes because Muad'Dib was always for the little people. What did you say to that? Alia asked, her voice betraying her fear. Idaho dropped his hand from his eyes. I said, that must make you one of the little people. Duncan, that's a dangerous game. Bait that, Fremen Naib, and you could awaken a beast to destroy us all. He still believes in Muad'Dib, Idaho said. That's our protection. What was his reply? He said he knew his own mind. I see. No, I don't believe you do. Things that bite have longer teeth than Stilgar's. I don't understand you today, Duncan. I ask you to do a very important thing, a thing vital to... What is all of this rambling? How petulant she sounded. He turned back to the chambered window. When I was trained as a mentat, it is very difficult, Alia, to learn how to work your own mind. You learn first that the mind must be allowed to work itself. That's very strange. You can work your own muscles, exercise them, strengthen them, but the mind acts of itself. Sometimes when you have learned this about the mind, it shows you things you do not want to see. And that's why you tried to insult Stilgar? Stilgar doesn't know his own mind. He doesn't let it run free. Except in the spice orgy? Not even there. That's what makes him a naive. To be a leader of men, he controls and limits his reactions. He does what is expected of him. Once you know this, you know Stilgard and you can measure the length of his teeth. That's the Fremen way, she said. Well, Duncan, will you do it or won't you? She must be taken, and it must be made to look like the work of House Corino. He remained silent, weighing her tone and arguments in his mentat way. This abduction plan spoke of a coldness and a cruelty whose dimensions thus revealed shocked him. Risk her own mother's life? for the reasons thus far produced? Alia was lying. Perhaps the whisperings about Alia and Javid were true. This thought produced an icy hardness in his stomach. You're the only one I can trust for this, Alia said. I know that, he said. She took this as acceptance, smiled at herself in the mirror. You know, Idaho said, the Mentat learns to look at every human as a series of relationships. Alia did not respond. She sat, caught in a personal memory which drew a blank expression on her face. 
Idaho, glancing over his shoulder at her, saw the expression and shuddered. It was as though she communed with voices heard only by herself. Relationships, he whispered, and he thought, one must cast off old agonies as a snake casts off its skin, only to grow a new set and accept all of their limitations. It was the same with governments, even the regency. Old governments can be traced like discarded molts. I must carry out this scheme, but not in the way Aaliyah commands. Presently, Aaliyah shook her shoulders, said, Leto should not be going out like that in these times. I will reprimand him. Not even with Stilgar? Not even with him. She rose from her mirror, crossed to where Idaho stood beside the window, put a hand on his arm. He repressed a shiver, reduced this reaction to a mentat computation. Something in her revolted him. Something in her. He could not bring himself to look at her. He smelled the melange of her cosmetics, cleared his throat. She said, I will be busy today examining Faradun's gifts. The clothing? Yes, nothing he does is what it seems. And we must remember that his basha, Tiekanik, is an adept of Chalmurki, Chalmas, and all the other subtleties of royal assassination. The price of power, he said, pulling away from her. But we're still mobile and Faradun is not. She studied his chiseled profile. Sometimes the workings of his mind were difficult to fathom. Was he thinking only that freedom of action gave life to a military power? Well, life on Arrakis had been too secure for too long. Senses once wetted by omnipresent dangers could degenerate when not used. Yes, she said, we still have the Fremen. Mobility, he repeated. We cannot degenerate into infantry. That'll be foolish. His tone annoyed her, and she said, Faridun will use any means to destroy us. Ah, that's it, he said. That's a form of initiative, a mobility which we didn't have in the old days. We had a code, the code of House Atreides. We always paid our way and let the enemy be the pillagers. That restriction no longer holds, of course. We are equally mobile, House Atreides and House Carino. We abduct my mother to save her from harm as much as for any other reason, Alia said. We still live by the code. He looked down at her. She knew the dangers of inciting a mentat to compute. Didn't she realize what he had computed? Yet, he still loved her. He brushed a hand across his eyes. How youthful she looked. The Lady Jessica was correct. Alia gave the appearance of not having aged a day in their years together. She still possessed the soft features of her Bene Gesserit mother, but her eyes were Atreides, measuring, demanding, hawk-like. And now something possessed of cruel calculation lurked behind those eyes. Idaho had served House Atreides for too many years not to understand the family's strengths as well as their weaknesses, but this thing in Alia, this was new. The Atreides might play a devious game against enemies, but never against friends and allies, and not at all against family. It was ground into the Atreides' manner. Support your own populace to the best of your ability. Show them how much better they lived under the Atreides. Demonstrate your love for your friends by the candor of your behavior with them. What Alia asked now, though, was not Atreides. He felt this with all of his body's flesh and nerve structure. He was a unit 
indivisible, feeling this alien attitude in Aliyah. Abruptly, his mentat sensorium clicked into full awareness, and his mind leaped into the frozen trance where time did not exist. Only the computation existed. Aliyah would recognize what had happened to him, but that could not be helped. He gave himself up to the computation. Computation. A reflected Lady Jessica lived out a pseudo-life in Aliyah's awareness. He saw this as he saw the reflected pre-Gola Duncan Idaho, which remained a constant in his own awareness. Aliyah had this awareness by being one of the pre-born. He had it out of the Tleilaxu regeneration tanks. Yet Aliyah denied that reflection, risked her mother's life. Therefore Aliyah was not in contact with that pseudo-Jessica within. Therefore Aliyah was completely possessed by another pseudo-life to the exclusion of all others. Possessed. Alien. Abomination. Mentat fashion, he accepted this, turned to other facets of his problem. All of the Atreides were on this one planet. Would House Corino risk attack from space? His mind flashed through the review of those conventions which had ended primitive forms of warfare. One, all planets were vulnerable to attack from space. Ergo, retaliation, revenge facilities were set up off-planet by every house major. Faradon would know that the Atreides had not omitted this elementary precaution. 2. Force shields were a complete defense against projectiles and explosives of non-atomic type, the basic reason why hand-to-hand conflict had re-entered human combat. But infantry had its limits. House Carino might have brought their Sardica back to a pre-Arakeen edge, but they still could be no match for the abandoned ferocity of Fremen. 3. Planetary feudalism remained in constant danger from a large technical class, but the effects of the Butlerian Jihad continued as a damper on technological excesses. Ixians, Tleilaxu, and a few scattered outer planets were the only possible threat in this regard, and they were planet-vulnerable to the combined wrath of the rest of the Imperium. The Butlerian Jihad would not be undone. Mechanized warfare required a large technical class. The Atreides Imperium had channeled this force into other pursuits. No large technical class existed unwatched, and the empire remained safely feudalist, naturally, since that was the best social form for spreading over widely dispersed wild frontiers, new planets. Duncan felt his mentat awareness coruscate as it shot through memory data of itself, completely impervious to the passage of time. Arriving at the conviction that House Corino would not risk an illegal atomic attack, he did this in flash computation, the main decisional pathway, but he was perfectly aware of the elements which went into this conviction. The Imperium commanded as many nuclear and allied weapons as all the great houses combined. At least half the great houses would react without thinking if House Corino broke the convention. The Atreides off-planet retaliation system would be joined by overwhelming force and no need to summon any of them. Fear would do the calling. Salusa Secundus and its allies would vanish in hot clouds. House Corino would not risk such a holocaust. They were undoubtedly sincere in subscribing to the argument that nuclear weapons were a reserve held for one purpose, defense of humankind should a threatening other intelligence ever be encountered. The computational thoughts had clean edges, sharp relief. There were no blurred between places. 
Aaliyah chose abduction and terror because she had become alien, non-Atreides. House Corino was a threat, but not in the ways which Aaliyah argued in council. Aaliyah wanted the Lady Jessica removed because that searing Bene Gesserit intelligence had seen what only now had become clear to him. Idaho shook himself out of the Mentat trance, saw Aaliyah standing in front of him, a coldly measuring expression on her face. Wouldn't you rather the Lady Jessica were killed? he asked. The alien flash of her joy lay exposed before his eyes for a brief instant before being covered by false outrage. Duncan! Yes, this alien Aaliyah preferred matricide. You are afraid of your mother, not for her, he said. She spoke without a change in her measuring stare. Of course I am. She has reported about me to the sisterhood. What do you mean? Don't you know the greatest temptation for Bene Gesserit? She moved closer to him, seductive, looked upward at him through her lashes. I thought only to keep myself strong and alert for the sake of the twins. You speak of temptation, he said, his voice meant at flat. It's the thing which the sisterhood hides most deeply, the thing they most fear. It's why they call me abomination. They know their inhibitions won't hold me back. Temptation. They always speak with heavy emphasis. Great temptation. You see, we who employ the Bene Gesserit teachings can influence such things as the internal adjustment of enzyme balance within our bodies. It can prolong youth far longer than with melange. Do you see the consequences should many Bene Gesserits do this? It would be noticed. I'm sure you compute the accuracy of what I'm saying. Melange is what makes us the target for so many plots. We control a substance which prolongs life. What if it became known that Bene Gesserits controlled an even more potent secret? You see? Not one reverend mother would be safe. Abduction and torture of Bene Gesserits would become a most common activity. You've accomplished this enzyme balancing. It was a statement, not a question. I've defied the sisterhood. My mother's reports to the sisterhood will make the Bene Gesserits unswerving allies of House Carino. How very plausible, he thought. He tested. But surely your own mother would not turn against you? She was Bene Gesserit long before she was my mother. Duncan, she permitted her own son, my brother, to undergo the test of the Gom Jabbar. She arranged it, and she knew he might not survive it. Bene Gesserits have always been short on faith and long on pragmatism. She'll act against me if she believes it's in the best interests of the sisterhood. He nodded. How convincing she was. It was a sad thought. We must hold the initiative, she said. That's our sharpest weapon. There's the problem of Gurney Halleck, he said. Do I have to kill my old friend? Gurney's off on some spy errand in the desert, she said, knowing Idaho already was aware of this. He's safely out of the way. Very odd he said, the regent governor of Caladan running errands here on Arrakis. Why not? Aaliyah demanded. He's her lover, in his dreams, if not in fact. Yes, of course. And he wondered that she did not hear the insincerity in his voice. When will you abduct her? Aaliyah asked. It's better that you don't know. Yes, yes, I see. Where'll you take her? Where she cannot be found. Depend upon it. She won't be left here to threaten you. The glee in Aaliyah's eyes could not be mistaken. 
But where will... If you do not know, then you can answer before a truth-sayer, if necessary, that you do not know where she is. Ah, clever, Duncan. Now she believes I will kill the Lady Jessica, he thought. And he said, Goodbye, beloved. She did not hear the finality in his voice, even kissed him lightly as he left. And all the way down through the sietch-like maze of temple corridors, Idaho brushed at his eyes. Tlilaksu's eyes were not immune to tears. You have loved Caladan and lamented its lost host, but pain discovers new lovers cannot erase those forever ghost. Refrain from the Habanya Lament. Stilgar quadrupled the Siech guard around the twins, but he knew it was useless. The lad was like his Atreides namesake, the grandfather Leto. Everyone who'd known the original duke remarked on it. Leto had the measuring look about him and caution, yes, but all of it had to be evaluated against that latent wildness, the susceptibility to dangerous decisions. Gunima was more like her mother. There was Cheney's red hair, the set of Cheney's eyes, and a calculating way about her when she adjusted to difficulties. She often said that she only did what she had to do, but where Leto led, she would follow. And Leto was going to lead them into danger. Not once did Stilgar think of taking his problem to Alia. That ruled out Irulan, who ran to Alia with anything and everything, in coming to his decision, Stilgar realized he had accepted the possibility that Leto judged Alia correctly. She uses people in a casual and callous way, he thought. She even uses Duncan that way. It isn't so much that she'd turn on me and kill me, she'd discard me. Meanwhile, the guard was strengthened, and Stilgar stalked his sietch like a robed spectre, prying everywhere. All the time his mind seethed with the doubts Leto had planted there. If one could not depend upon tradition, then where was the rock upon which to anchor his life? On the afternoon of the convocation of welcome for the Lady Jessica, Stilgar spied Ganima standing with her grandmother at the entrance lip to the Sietch's great assembly chamber. It was early and Alia had not yet arrived, but people already were thronging into the chamber, casting surreptitious glances at the child and adult as they passed. Stilgar paused in a shadowed alcove out of the crowd flow and watched the pair of them, unable to hear their words above the murmuring throb of an assembling multitude. The people of many tribes would be here today to welcome back their old reverend mother. But he stared at Ganima. Her eyes, the way they danced when she spoke. The movement fascinated him. Those deep, blue, steady, demanding, measuring eyes, and that way of throwing her red-gold hair off her shoulder with a twist of the head, that was Cheney. It was a ghostly resurrection, an uncanny resemblance. Slowly, Stilgar drew closer and took up his station in another alcove. He could not associate Ganima's observing manner with any other child of his experience except her brother. Where was Leto? Stilgar glanced back up the crowded passage. His guards would have spread an alarm if anything were amiss. He shook his head. These twins assaulted his sanity. They were a constant abrasion against his peace of mind. He could almost hate them. 
kin were not immune from one's hatred, but blood and its precious water carried demands for one's countenance which transcended most other concerns. These twins existed as his greatest responsibility. Dust-filtered brown light came from the cavernous assembly chamber beyond Ganima and Jessica. It touched the child's shoulders and the new white robe she wore, backlighting her hair as she turned to peer into the passage at the people thronging past. Why did Leto afflict me with these doubts? he wondered. There was no doubt that it had been done deliberately. Perhaps Leto wanted me to have a small share of his own mental experience. Stilgar knew why the twins were different, but had always found his reasoning processes unable to accept what he knew. He had never experienced the womb as prison to an awakened consciousness, a living awareness from the second month of gestation, so it was said. Later had once said that his memory was like an internal holograph expanding in size and in detail from that original shocked awakening, but never changing shape or outline. For the first time, as he watched Ganima and the Lady Jessica, Stilgar began to understand what it must be like to live in such a scrambled web of memories, unable to retreat or find a sealed room of the mind. Faced with such a condition, one had to integrate madness, to select and reject from a multitude of offerings in a system where answers changed as fast as the question. There could be no fixed tradition. There could be no absolute answers to double-faced questions. What works? That which does not work. What does not work? That which works. He recognized this pattern. It was the old Fremen game of riddles. Question, it brings death and life. Answer, the Coriolis wind. Why did Leto want me to understand this? Stilgar asked himself. From his cautious probings, Stilgar knew that the twins shared a common view of their difference. They thought of it as affliction. The birth canal would be a draining place to such a one, he thought. Ignorance reduces the shock of some experiences, but they would have no ignorance about birth. What would it be like to live a life where you knew all of the things that could go wrong? You would face a constant war with doubts. You would resent your difference from your fellows. It would be pleasant to inflict others with even a taste of that difference. Why me would be the first unanswered question. And what have I been asking myself? Stilgar thought. A wry smile touched his lips. Why me? Seeing the twins in this new way, he understood the dangerous chances they took with their uncompleted bodies. Ganima had put it to him succinctly once after he'd berated her for climbing the precipitous west face to the rim above Siech Tabor. Why should I fear death? I've been there before, many times. How can I presume to teach such children? Stilgar wondered. How can anyone presume? Oddly, Jessica's thoughts were moving in a similar vein as she talked to her granddaughter. She'd been thinking how difficult it must be to carry mature minds in immature bodies. The body would have to learn what the mind already knew it could do, aligning responses and reflexes. The old Bene Gesserit Pranabindu regimen would be available to them, but even there the mind would run where the flesh could not. Gurney had a supremely difficult task carrying out her orders. 
Stilgar is watching us from an alcove back there, Ganima said. Jessica did not turn, but she found herself confounded by what she heard in Ganima's voice. Ganima loved the old Fremen as one would love a parent. Even while she spoke lightly of him and teased him, she loved him. The realization forced Jessica to see the old Naib in a new light, understanding in a Gestalten revelation what the twins and Stilgar shared. This new Arrakis did not fit Stilgar well, Jessica realized. No more than this new universe fitted her grandchildren. Unwanted and undemanded, a Bene Gesserit saying flowed through Jessica's mind. To suspect your own mortality is to know the beginning of terror. To learn irrefutably that you are mortal is to know the end of terror. Yes, death would not be a hard yoke to wear, but life was a slow fire to Stilgar and the twins. Each found an ill-fitting world and longed for other ways where variations might be known without threat. They were children of Abraham, learning more from a hawk stooping over the desert than from any book yet written. Leto had confounded Jessica only that morning as they'd stood beside the canard which flowed below the siege. He'd said, Water traps us, grandmother. We'd be better off living like dust, because then the wind could carry us higher than the highest cliffs of the shield wall. Although she was familiar with such devious maturity from the mouths of these children, Jessica had been caught by this utterance, but had managed, Your father might have said that. And Leto, throwing a handful of sand into the air to watch it fall. Yes, he might have, but my father did not consider then how quickly water makes everything fall back to the ground from which it came. Now, standing beside Ganima in the Siege, Jessica felt the shock of those words anew. She turned, glanced back at the still-flowing throng, let her gaze wander across Stilgar's shadowy shape in the alcove. Stilgar was no tame Fremen, trained only to carry twigs to the nest. He was still a hawk. When he thought of the color red, he did not think of flowers, but of blood. You're so quiet suddenly, Ganima said. Is something wrong? Jessica shook her head. It's something Leto said this morning, that's all. When you went out to the plantings, what did he say? Jessica thought of the curious look of adult wisdom which had come over Leto's face out there in the morning. It was the same look which came over Ganima's face right now. He was recalling the time when Gurney came back from the smugglers to the Atreides banner, Jessica said. Then you were talking about Stilgar, Ganima said. Jessica did not question how this insight occurred. The twins appeared capable of reproducing each other's thought trains at will. Yes, we were, Jessica said. Stilgar didn't like to hear Gurney calling Paul his duke, but Gurney's presence forced this upon all of the Fremen. Gurney kept saying, my duke. I see, Ganima said, and of course Leto observed that he was not yet Stilgar's duke. That's right. You know what he was doing to you, of course, Ganima said. I'm not sure I do, Jessica admitted and she found this admission particularly disturbing because it had not occurred to her that Leto was doing anything at all to her. He was trying to ignite your memories of our father, Ganima said. Leto's always hungry to know our father from the viewpoints of others who knew him. But doesn't Leto have... Oh, he can listen to the inner life, certainly, but that's not the same. 
You spoke about him, of course. Our father, I mean. You spoke of him as your son. Yes. Jessica clipped it off. She did not like the feeling that these twins could turn her on and off at will, open her memories for observation, touch any emotion which attracted their interest. Ganima might be doing that right now. Leto said something to disturb you, Ganima said. Jessica found herself shocked at the necessity to suppress anger. Yes, he did. You don't like the fact that he knows our father as our mother knew him, and knows our mother as our father knew her, Ganima said. You don't like what that implies, what we may know about you. I'd never really thought about it that way before, Jessica said, finding her voice stiff. It's the knowledge of sensual things which usually disturbs, Ganima said. It's your conditioning. You find it extremely difficult to think of us as anything but children, but there's nothing our parents did together, in public or in private, that we would not know. For a brief instant, Jessica found herself returning to the reaction which had come over her out there beside the canard, but now she focused that reaction upon Ganima. He probably spoke of your duke's rutting sensuality, Ganima said. Sometimes Leto needs a bridle on his mouth. Is there nothing these twins cannot profane? Jessica wondered, moving from shock to outrage to revulsion. How dared they speak of her Leto's sensuality? Of course a man and woman who loved each other would share the pleasure of their bodies. It was a private and beautiful thing, not to be paraded in casual conversation between a child and an adult. Child and adult? Abruptly, Jessica realized that neither Leto nor Ganima had done this casually. As Jessica remained silent, Ganima said, We've shocked you. I apologize for both of us. Knowing Leto, I know he didn't consider apologizing. Sometimes when he's following a particular scent, he forgets how different we are. From you, for instance. Jessica thought, And that is why you both do this, of course. You are teaching me. And she wondered then, who else are you teaching? Stilgar? Duncan? Leto tries to see things as you see them, Ganima said. Memories are not enough. When you try the hardest, just then you most often fail. Jessica sighed. Ganima touched her grandmother's arm. Your son left many things unsaid which yet must be said, even to you. Forgive us, but he loved you. Don't you know that? Jessica turned away to hide the tears glistening in her eyes. He knew your fears, Ganima said, just as he knew Stilgar's fears. Dear Still, our father was his doctor of beasts, and Still was no more than the green snail hidden in its shell. She hummed the tune from which she'd taken these words. The music hurled the lyrics against Jessica's awareness without compromise. O doctor of beasts, to a green snail shell with its timid miracle, hidden awaiting death, you come as a deity. Even snails know that gods obliterate and cures bring pain, that heaven is seen through a door of flame. O doctor of beasts, I am the man-snail who sees your single eye peering into my shell. Why, Muad'Dib, why? Ganima said, Unfortunately, our father left many man-snails in our universe. 
The assumption that humans exist within an essentially impermanent universe, taken as an operational precept, demands that the intellect become a totally aware balancing instrument. But the intellect cannot react thus without involving the entire organism. Such an organism may be recognized by its burning, driving behavior, and thus it is with a society treated as organism. But here we encounter an old inertia. Societies move to the goading of ancient, reactive impulses. They demand permanence. Any attempt to display the universe of impermanence arouses rejection patterns, fear, anger, and despair. Then how do we explain the acceptance of prescience? Simply, the giver of prescient visions, because he speaks of an absolute, permanent realization, may be greeted with joy by humankind even while predicting the most dire events. The Book of Leto, after Hark Aladar It's like fighting in the dark, Aaliyah said. She paced the council chamber in angry strides, moving from the tall silvery draperies which softened the morning sun at the eastern windows to the divans grouped beneath decorated wall panels at the room's opposite end. Her sandals crossed spice-fiber rugs, parquet floor, tiles of giant garnet, and once more, rugs. At last she stood over Irulan and Idaho, who sat facing each other on divans of grey whale fur. Idaho had resisted returning from Tabur, but she had sent peremptory orders. The abduction of Jessica was more important than ever now, but it had to wait. Idaho's mentat perceptions were required. These things are cut from the same pattern, Aaliyah said. They stink of a far-reaching plot. Perhaps not, Irulan ventured, but she glanced questioningly at Idaho. Aaliyah's face lapsed into an undisguised sneer. How could Irulan be that innocent? Unless... Aaliyah bent a sharp and questioning stare onto the princess. Irulan wore a simple black arbor robe which matched the shadows in her spice indigo eyes. Her blonde hair was tied in a tight coil at the nape of her neck, accenting a face thinned and toughened by years on Arrakis. She still retained the haughtiness she'd learned in the court of her father, Shaddam IV, and Aaliyah often felt that this prideful attitude could mask the thoughts of a conspirator. Idaho lounged in the black and green uniform of the Atreides house guard, no insignia. It was an affectation which was secretly resented by many of Aaliyah's actual guards, especially the Amazons, who glorified in insignia of office. They did not like the plain presence of the Gola swordmaster Mentat, the more so because he was the husband of their mistress. So the tribes want the Lady Jessica reinstated into the Regency Council, Idaho said. How can that— They make unanimous demand! Aaliyah said, pointing to an embossed sheet of spice paper on the divan beside Irulan. Faradun is one thing, but this, this has the stink of other alignments. What does Stilgar think? Irulan asked. His signature's on that paper, Aaliyah said. But if he, how could he deny the mother of his god? Aaliyah sneered. Idaho looked up at her, thinking, that's awfully close to the edge with Irulan. Again he wondered why Aaliyah had brought him back here when she knew that he was needed at Siech Tabor if the abduction plot were to be carried off. Was it possible she'd heard about the message sent to him by the preacher? 
This thought filled his breast with turmoil. How could that mendicant mystic know the secret signal by which Paul Atreides had always summoned his swordmaster? Idaho longed to leave this pointless meeting and return to the search for an answer to that question. There's no doubt that the preacher has been off-planet, Alia said. The guild wouldn't dare deceive us in such a thing. I will have him. Careful, Irulan said. Indeed, have a care, Idaho said. Half the planet believe him to be, he shrugged, your brother. And Idaho hoped he had carried this off with a properly casual attitude. How had the man known that signal? But if he's a courier or a spy of the... He's made contact with no one from Chome or House Corino, Irulan said. We can be sure of... We can be sure of nothing! Alia did not try to hide her scorn. She turned her back on Irulan faced Idaho. He knew why he was here. Why didn't he perform as expected? He was in council because Irulan was here. The history which had brought a princess of House Corino into the Atreides' fold could never be forgotten. Allegiance once changed could change again. Duncan's mentat powers should be searching for flaws, for subtle deviations in Irulan's behavior. Idaho stirred, glanced at Irulan. There were times when he resented the straight-line necessities imposed on mentat performance. He knew what Alia was thinking. Irulan would know it as well. But this princess wife to Paul Muad'Dib had overcome the decisions which had made her less than the royal concubine Cheney. There could be no doubt of Irulan's devotion to the royal twins. She had renounced family and Bene Gesserit in dedication to the Atreides. My mother is part of this plot, Alia insisted. For what other reason would the sisterhood send her back here at a time such as this? Hysteria isn't going to help us, Idaho said. Alia whirled away from him as he'd known she would. It helped him that he did not have to look at that once-beloved face, which was now so twisted by alien possession. Well, Irulan said, the guild can't be completely trusted for... The guild, Alia sneered. We can't rule out the enmity of the guild or the Bene Gesserit, Idaho said but we must assign them special categories as essentially passive combatants. The guild will live up to its basic rule, never govern. They're a parasitic growth and they know it. They won't do anything to kill the organism which keeps them alive. Their idea of which organism keeps them alive may be different from ours, Irulan drawled. It was the closest she ever came to a sneer, that lazy tone of voice which said, You missed a point, Mentat. Alia appeared puzzled. She had not expected Irulan to take this tack. It was not the kind of view which a conspirator would want examined. No doubt, Idaho said, but the guild won't come out overtly against House Atreides. The sisterhood, on the other hand, might risk a certain kind of political break, which, if they do, it'll be through a front, someone or some group they can disavow, Irulan said. The Bene Gesserit haven't existed all of these centuries without knowing the value of self-effacement. They prefer being behind the throne, not on it. Self-effacement? Alia wondered. Was that Irland's choice? Precisely the point I make about the Guild, Idaho said. He found the necessities of argument and explanation helpful. They kept his mind from other problems. Alia strode back toward the sunlit windows. 
She knew Idaho's blind spot, every Mentat had it. They had to make pronouncements. This brought about a tendency to depend upon absolutes, to see finite limits. They knew this about themselves. It was part of their training. Yet they continued to act beyond self-limiting parameters. I should have left him at Siech Tabor, Alia thought. It would have been better to just turn Irulan over to Javid for questioning. Within her skull, Alia heard a rumbling voice. Exactly. Shut up, shut up, shut up, she thought. A dangerous mistake beckoned her in these moments, and she could not recognize its outlines. All she could sense was the danger. Idaho had to help her out of this predicament. He was a mentat. Mentats were necessary. The human computer replaced the mechanical devices destroyed by the Butlerian Jihad. Thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a human mind. But Alia longed now for a compliant machine. They could not have suffered from Idaho's limitations. You could never distrust a machine. Alia heard Irulan's drawling voice. A faint within a faint within a faint within a faint, Irulan said. We all know the accepted pattern of attack upon power. I don't blame Alia for her suspicions. Of course she suspects everyone, even us. Ignore that for a moment, though. What remains as the prime arena of motives, the most fertile source of danger to the Regency? Chaum, Idaho said, his voice meant out flat. Alia allowed herself a grim smile. The combiné honnête, aubert, advancer, mercantile. But House Atreides dominated Chaum with 51% of its shares. The priesthood of Muad'Dib held another 5% pragmatic acceptance by the great houses that Dune controlled the priceless melange. Not without reason was the spice often called the secret coinage. Without melange, the spacing guild's highliners could not move. Melange precipitated the navigation trance by which a translite pathway could be seen before it was travelled. Without melange and its amplification of the human immunogenic system, life expectancy for the very rich degenerated by a factor of at least four. Even the vast middle class of the Imperium ate diluted melange in small sprinklings with at least one meal a day. But Alia had heard the Mentat's sincerity in Idaho's voice, a sound which she'd been awaiting with terrible expectancy. Chom. The combiné honnête was much more than House Atreides, much more than Dune, much more than the priesthood or melange. It was ink vines, whale fur, sugar wire, Ixian artifacts and entertainers, trade in people and places, the Hajj, those products which came from the borderline legality of Tleilaxu technology. It was addictive drugs and medical techniques. It was transportation, the guild, and all of the super-complex commerce of an empire which encompassed thousands of known planets, plus some which fed secretly at the fringes, permitted there for services rendered. When Idaho said Chom, he spoke of a constant ferment, intrigue within intrigue, a play of powers where the shift of one duodecimal point in interest payments could change the ownership of an entire planet. Alia returned to stand over the two seated on the divans. Something specific about Chom bothers you? she asked. There's always the heavy speculative stockpiling of spice by certain houses, Irulan said. 
Aaliyah slapped her hands against her own thighs, then gestured at the embossed spice paper beside Irulan. That demand doesn't intrigue you, coming as it does. All right, Idaho barked. Out with it. What are you withholding? You know better than to deny the data and still expect me to function as... There has been a recent very significant increase in trade for people with four specific specialties, Aaliyah said, and she wondered if this would be truly new information for this pair. Which specialties? Irulan asked. Swordmasters, twisted mentats from Tleilax, conditioned medics from the Souk school, and fincap accountants, most especially the latter. Why would questionable bookkeeping be in demand right now? She directed the question at Idaho. Function as a mentat, he thought. Well, that was better than dwelling on what Aaliyah had become. He focused on her words, replaying them in his mind mentat fashion. Swordmasters? That had been his own calling once. Swordmasters were, of course, more than personal fighters. They could repair force shields, plan military campaigns, design military support facilities, improvise weapons. Twisted mentats? The Tleilaxu persisted in this hoax, obviously. As a mentat himself, Idaho knew the fragile insecurity of Tleilaxu twisting. Great houses which bought such mentats hoped to control them absolutely. Impossible. Even Peter de Vries, who'd served the Harkonnens in their assault on House Atreides, had maintained his own essential dignity, accepting death rather than surrender his inner core of selfdom at the end. Souk doctors? Their conditioning supposedly guaranteed them against disloyalty to their owner patients. Souk doctors came very expensive. Increased purchase of souks would involve substantial exchanges of funds. Idaho weighed these facts against an increase in FinCap accountants. Prime computation, he said, indicating a heavily weighted assurance that he spoke of inductive fact. There's been a recent increase in wealth among houses minor. Some have to be moving quietly toward great house status. Such wealth could only come from some specific shifts in political alignments. We come at last to the Landsrat, Aaliyah said, voicing her own belief. The next Landsrat session is almost two standard years away, Erolan reminded her. But political bargaining never ceases, Aaliyah said, and I'll warrant some among those tribal signatories, she gestured at the paper beside Irulan, are among the houses minor who've shifted their alignment. Perhaps, Irulan said. The Landsrat, Aaliyah said, what better front for the Bene Gesserits, and what better agent for the sisterhood than my own mother? Aaliyah planted herself directly in front of Idaho. Well, Duncan? Why not function as a mentat? Idaho asked himself. He saw the tenor of Aaliyah's suspicions now. After all, Duncan Idaho had been personal house guard to the Lady Jessica for many years. Duncan? Aaliyah pressed. You should inquire closely after any advisory legislation which may be under preparation for the next session of the lands route, Idaho said. They might take the legal position that a regency can't veto certain kinds of legislation, specifically adjustments of taxation and the policing of cartels. There are others, but not a very good pragmatic bet on their part if they take that position, Irulan said. I agree, Aliyah said. The Sadukar have no teeth and we still have our Fremen legions. 
Careful, Alia, Idaho said. Our enemies would like nothing better than to make us appear monstrous. No matter how many legions you command, power ultimately rides on popular sufferance in an empire as scattered as this one. Popular sufferance? Irulan asked. You mean great house sufferance? Alia said. And how many great houses will we face under this new alliance? Idaho asked. Money is collecting in strange places. The fringes? Irulan asked. Idaho shrugged. It was an unanswerable question. All of them suspected that one day the Tleilaxu, or technological tinkerers on the imperial fringes, would nullify the Holtzman effect. On that day, shields would be useless. The whole precarious balance which maintained planetary feudatories would collapse. Alia refused to consider that possibility. We'll ride with what we have, she said. And what we have is a certain knowledge throughout the Chome Directorate that we can destroy the spice if they force us to it. They won't risk that. Back to Chome again, Irulan said. Unless someone has managed to duplicate the sand trout sandworm cycle on another planet, Idaho said. He looked speculatively at Irulan, excited by this question. Salusa Secundus? My contacts there remain reliable, Irulan said. Not Salusa. Then my answer stands, Alia said, staring at Idaho. We ride with what we have. My move, Idaho thought. He said, why'd you drag me away from important work? You could have worked this out yourself. Don't take that tone with me, Alia snapped. Idaho's eyes went wide. For an instant, he'd seen the alien on Alia's face, and it was a disconcerting sight. He turned his attention to Irulan, but she had not seen, or gave that appearance. I don't need an elementary education, Alia said, her voice still edged with alien anger. Idaho managed a rueful smile, but his breast ached. We never get far from wealth and all of its masks when we deal with power, Irulan drawled. Paul was a social mutation, and as such, we have to remember that he shifted the old balance of wealth. Such mutations are not irreversible, Alia said, turning away from them as though she'd not exposed her terrible difference. Wherever there's wealth in this empire, they know this. They also know, Irulan said, that there are three people who could perpetuate that mutation. The twins and... She pointed at Alia. Are they insane, this pair? Idaho wondered. They will try to assassinate me, Alia rasped, and Idaho sat in shocked silence, his mentat awareness whirling. Assassinate Alia? Why? They could discredit her too easily. They could cut her out of the Fremen pack and hunt her down at will. But the twins now. He knew he was not in the proper mentat calm for such an assessment, but he had to try. He had to be as precise as possible. At the same time, he knew that precise thinking contained undigested absolutes. Nature was not precise. The universe was not precise when reduced to his scale. It was vague and fuzzy, full of unexpected movements and changes. Humankind as a whole had to be entered into this computation as a natural phenomenon, and the whole process of precise analysis represented a chopping off, a remove from the ongoing current of the universe. He had to get at that current, see it in motion. We were right to focus on Chom and the Lanthrat, 
Eroland drawled. And Duncan's suggestion offers a first line of inquiry, for money as a translation of energy can't be separated from the energy it expresses, Alia said. We all know this, but we have to answer three specific questions. When? Using what weapons? Where? The twins. The twins, Idaho thought. It's the twins who are in danger, not Alia. You're not interested in who or how? Irulan asked. If House Corino or Chome or any other group employs human instruments on this planet, Alia said, we stand a better than 60% chance of finding them before they act. Knowing when they'll act and where gives us a bigger leverage on those odds. How? That's just asking what weapons. Why can't they see it as I see it? Idaho wondered. All right, Irulan said. When? When attention is focused on someone else, Alia said. Attention was focused on your mother at the convocation, Irulan said. There was no attempt. Wrong place, Alia said. What is she doing? Idaho wondered. Where, then? Irulan asked. Right here in the keep, Alia said. It's the place where I'd feel most secure and least on my guard. What weapons? Irulan asked. Conventional, something a Fremen might have on his person. Poisoned Chris knife, Moller pistol, a... They've not tried a hunter-seeker in a long while, Irulan said. Wouldn't work in a crowd, Alia said. There'll have to be a crowd. Biological weapon? Irulan asked. An infectious agent? Alia asked, not masking her incredulity. How could Irulan think an infectious agent would succeed against the immunological barriers which protected an Atreides? I was thinking more in the line of some animal, Irulan said. A small pet, say, trained to bite a specific victim, inflicting a poison with its bite. The house ferrets will prevent that, Alia said. One of them, then, Irulan asked. Couldn't be done. The house ferrets would reject an outsider, kill it, you know that. I was just exploring possibilities in the hope that... I'll alert my guards, Alia said. As Alia said, guards, Idaho put a hand over his Tleilaxu eyes, trying to prevent the demanding involvement which swept over him. It was Rajia, the movement of infinity as expressed by life the latent cup of total immersion in Mentat awareness which lay in wait for every Mentat. It threw his awareness onto the universe like a net, falling, defining the shapes within it. He saw the twins crouching in darkness while giant claws raked the air about them. No, he whispered. What? Alia looked at him as though surprised to find him still there. He took his hand from his eyes. The garments that House Carino sent? he asked. Have they been sent on to the twins? Of course, Irulan said. They're perfectly safe. No one's going to try for the twins at Sietchtabor, Alia said. Not with all of those Stilgar-trained guards around. Idaho stared at her. He had no particular datum to reinforce an argument based on Mentat computation, but he knew. He knew. This thing he'd experienced came very close to the visionary power which Paul had known. Neither Irulan nor Alia would believe it, coming from him. I'd like to alert the port authorities against allowing the importation of any outside animals, he said. You're not taking Irulan's suggestion seriously, Alia protested. Why take any chances, he asked. 
Tell that to the smugglers, Alia said. I'll put my dependence on the house ferrets. Idaho shook his head. What could house ferrets do against claws the size of those he envisioned? But Alia was right. Bribes in the right places, one acquiescent guild navigator, and any place in the empty quarter became a landing port. The guild would resist a front position in any attack on House Atreides, but if the price were high enough, well, the guild could only be thought of as something like a geological barrier which made attacks difficult but not impossible. They could always protest that they were just a transportation agency. How could they know to what use a particular cargo would be put? Alia broke the silence with a purely Fremen gesture, a raised fist with thumb horizontal. She accompanied the gesture with a traditional expletive which meant, I give typhoon conflict. She obviously saw herself as the only logical target for assassins, and the gesture protested a universe full of undigested threats. She was saying she would hurl the death wind at anyone who attacked her. Idaho felt the hopelessness of any protest. He saw that she no longer suspected him. He was going back to Tabor, and she expected a perfectly executed abduction of the Lady Jessica. He lifted himself from the divan in an adrenaline surge of anger, thinking, if only Aaliyah were the target, if only assassins could get to her. For an instant, he rested his hand on his own knife. But it was not in him to do this. Far better, though, that she die a martyr than live to be discredited and hounded into a sandy grave. Yes. Alia said, misinterpreting his expression as concern for her. You'd best hurry back to Dabur. And she thought, how foolish of me to suspect Duncan. He's mine, not Jessica's. It had been the demand from the tribes that had upset her, Alia thought. She waved an airy goodbye to Idaho as he left. Idaho left the council chamber feeling hopeless. Not only was Alia blind with her alien possession, but she became more insane with each crisis. She had already passed her danger point and was doomed. But what could be done for the twins? Whom could he convince? Stilgar? And what could Stilgar do that he wasn't already doing? The Lady Jessica, then? Yes, he'd explore that possibility. But she, too, might be far gone in plotting with her sisterhood. He carried few illusions about that Atreides concubine. She might do anything at the command of the Bene Gesserits, even turn against her own grandchildren. Good government never depends upon laws, but upon the personal qualities of those who govern. The machinery of government is always subordinate to the will of those who administer that machinery. The most important element of government, therefore, is the method of choosing leaders. Law and Governance, the Spacing Guild Manual Why does Alia wish me to share the morning audience? Jessica wondered. They've not voted me back into the council. Jessica stood in the anteroom to the keep's great hall. The anteroom itself would have been a great hall, anywhere other than Arrakis. Following the Atreides' lead, buildings in Arakeen had become ever more gigantic as wealth and power concentrated, and this room epitomized her misgivings. She did not like this anteroom with its tiled floor depicting her son's victory over Shaddam IV. She caught a reflection of her own face in the polished plasteel door which led into the great hall. 
Returning to Dune forced such comparisons upon her, and Jessica noted only the signs of aging in her own features. The oval face had developed tiny lines, and the eyes were more brittle in their indigo reflection. She could remember when there had been white around the blue of her eyes. Only the careful ministrations of a professional dresser maintained the polished bronze of her hair. Her nose remained small, mouth generous, and her body was still slender, but even the Bene Gesserit-trained muscles had a tendency towards slowing with the passage of time. Some might not note this and say, you haven't changed a bit. But the Sisterhood's training was a two-edged sword. Small changes seldom escaped the notice of people thus trained. And the lack of small changes in Alia had not escaped Jessica's notice. Javid, the master of Alia's appointments, stood at the great door being very official this morning. He was a robed genie with a cynical smile on his round face. Javid struck Jessica as a paradox, a well-fed Fremen. Noting her attention upon him, Javid smiled knowingly, shrugged. His attendance in Jessica's entourage had been short, as he'd known it would be. He hated Atreides, but he was Alia's man in more ways than one, if the rumors were to be believed. Jessica saw the shrug, thought, This is the age of the shrug. He knows I've heard all the stories about him, and he doesn't care. Our civilization could well die of indifference within it before succumbing to external attack. The guards Gurney had assigned her before leaving for the smugglers in the desert hadn't liked her coming here without their attendance. But Jessica felt oddly safe. Let someone make a martyr of her in this place, Alia wouldn't survive it. Alia would know that. When Jessica failed to respond to his shrug and smile, Javid coughed, a belching disturbance of his larynx which could only have been achieved with practice. It was like a secret language. It said, We understand the nonsense of all this pomp, my lady. Isn't it wonderful what humans can be made to believe? Wonderful, Jessica agreed, but her face gave no indication of the thought. The anteroom was quite full now, all of the morning's permitted supplicants having received their right of entrance from Javid's people. The outer doors had been closed. Supplicants and attendants kept a polite distance from Jessica, but observed that she wore the formal black arbor of a Fremen reverend mother. This would raise many questions. No mark of Muad'Dib's priesthood could be seen on her person. Conversations hummed as the people divided their attention between Jessica and the small side door through which Alia would come to lead them into the great hall. It was obvious to Jessica that the old pattern which defined where the Regency's powers lay had been shaken. I did that just by coming here, she thought, but I came because Alia invited me. Reading the signs of disturbance, Jessica realized Alia was deliberately prolonging this moment, allowing the subtle currents to run their course here. Alia would be watching from a spy hole, of course. Few subtleties of Alia's behavior escaped Jessica, and she felt with each passing minute how right she'd been to accept the mission which the sisterhood had pressed upon her. Matters cannot be allowed to continue in this way, the leader of the Bene Gesserit delegation had argued. Surely the signs of decay have not escaped you, you of all people. We know why you left us, but we know also how you were trained. Nothing was stinted in your education. You are an adept of the Panoplia Prophetica and you must know when the souring of a powerful religion threatens us all. 
Jessica had pursed her lips in thought while staring out a window at the soft signs of spring at Castle Caladan. She did not like to direct her thinking in such a logical fashion. One of the first lessons of the sisterhood had been to reserve an attitude of questioning distrust for anything which came in the guise of logic. But the members of the delegation had known that, too. How moist the air had been that morning, Jessica thought, looking around Alia's anteroom. How fresh and moist. Here there was a sweaty dampness to the air which evoked a sense of uneasiness in Jessica, and she thought, I've reverted to Fremen ways. The air was too moist in this sietch above ground. What was wrong with the master of the stills? Paul would never have permitted such laxness. She noted that Javid, his shiny face alert and composed, appeared not to have noticed the fault of dampness in the anteroom's air, bad training for one born on Arrakis. The members of the Bene Gesserit delegation had wanted to know if she required proofs of their allegations. She'd given them an angry answer out of their own manuals. All proofs inevitably lead to propositions which have no proof. All things are known because we want to believe in them. But we have submitted these questions to Mentats, the delegation's leader had protested. Jessica had stared at the woman, astonished. I marvel that you have reached your present station and not yet learned the limits of Mentats, Jessica had said, at which the delegation had relaxed. Apparently it had all been a test, and she had passed. They'd feared, of course, that she had lost all touch with those balancing abilities which were at the core of Bene Gesserit training. Now Jessica became softly alert as Javid left his door station and approached her. He bowed. My lady, it occurred to me that you might not have heard the latest exploit of the preacher. I get daily reports on everything which occurs here, Jessica said. Let him take that back to Aaliyah. Javid smiled. Then you know he rails against your family. Only last night he preached in the south suburb and no one dared touch him. You know why, of course. Because they think he is my son come back to them, Jessica said, her voice bored. This question has not yet been put to the Mentat Idaho, Javid said. Perhaps that should be done and the thing settled. Jessica thought, here's one who truly doesn't know a Mentat's limits, although he dares put horns on one in his dreams, if not in fact. Mentats share the fallibilities of those who use them, she said. The human mind, as is the case with the mind of any animal, is a resonator. It responds to resonances in the environment. The Mentat has learned to extend his awareness across many parallel loops of causality and to proceed along those loops for long chains of consequences. Let him chew on that. This preacher doesn't disturb you then, Javid asked, his voice abruptly formal and portentous. I find him a healthy sign, she said. I don't want him bothered. Javid clearly had not expected that blunt a response. He tried to smile, failed. Then, the ruling council of the church which deifies thy son will, of course, bow to your wishes if you insist but certainly some explanation. Perhaps you'd rather I explained how I fit into your schemes, she said. Javid stared at her narrowly. Madam, I see no logical reason why thou refusest to denounce this preacher. 
he cannot be thy son. I make a reasonable request. Denounce him. This is a set piece, Jessica thought. Alia put him up to it. She said, No. But he defiles the name of thy son. He preaches abominable things, cries out against the holy daughter. He incites the populace against us. When asked, he said that even thou possessest the nature of evil and that thy... Enough of this nonsense, Jessica said. Tell Alia that I refuse. I've heard nothing but tales of this preacher since returning. He bores me. Does it bore thee, madame, to learn that in his latest defilement he has said that thou wilt not turn against him? And here, clearly, thou, evil as I am, I still won't denounce him, she said. It is no joking matter, madame. Jessica waved him away angrily. Be gone. She spoke with sufficient carrying power that others heard, forcing him to obey. His eyes glared with rage, but he managed a stiff bow and returned to his position at the door. This argument fitted neatly into the observations Jessica already had made. When he spoke of Alia, Javid's voice carried the husky undertones of a lover, no mistaking it. The rumors, no doubt, were true. Alia had allowed her life to degenerate in a terrible way. Observing this, Jessica began to harbor the suspicion that Alia was a willing participant in abomination. Was it a perverse will to self-destruction? Because surely Alia was working to destroy herself and the power base which fed on her brother's teachings. Faint stirrings of unease began to grow apparent in the anteroom. The aficionados of this place would know when Alia delayed too long, and by now they'd all heard about Jessica's peremptory dismissal of Alia's favorite. Jessica sighed. She felt that her body had walked into this place with her soul creeping behind. Movements among the courtiers were so transparent. The seeking out of important people was a dance like the wind through a field of cereal stalks. The cultivated inhabitants of this place furrowed their brows and gave pragmatic rating numbers to the importance of each of their fellows. Obviously her rebuff of Javid had hurt him. Few spoke to him now. But the others? Her trained eye could read the rating numbers in the satellites attending the powerful. They do not attend me because I am dangerous, she thought. I have the stink of someone Alia fears. Jessica glanced around the room, seeing eyes turn away. They were such seriously futile people that she found herself wanting to cry out against their ready-made justifications for pointless lives. Oh, if only the preacher could see this room as it looked now. A fragment of a nearby conversation caught her attention. A tall, slender priest was addressing his coterie, no doubt supplicants here under his auspices. Often I must speak otherwise than I think, he said. This is called diplomacy. The resultant laughter was too loud, too quickly silenced. People in the group saw that Jessica had overheard. My duke would have transported such a one to the farthest available hellhole, Jessica thought. I've returned none too soon. She knew now that she'd lived on faraway Caladan in an insulated capsule which had allowed only the most blatant of Alia's excesses to intrude. I contributed to my own dream existence, she thought. Caladan had been something like that insulation provided by a really first-class frigate riding securely in the hold of a guild highliner. 
Only the most violent manoeuvres could be felt, and those as mere softened movements. How seductive it is to live in peace, she thought. The more she saw of Alia's court, the more sympathy Jessica felt for the words reported as coming from this blind preacher. Yes, Paul might have said such words on seeing what had become of his realm, and Jessica wondered what Gurney had found out among the smugglers. Her first reaction to Arakeen had been the right one, Jessica realized. On that first ride into the city with Javid, her attention had been caught by armoured screens around dwellings, the heavily guarded pathways and alleys, the patient watchers at every turn, the tall walls and indications of deep underground places revealed by thick foundations. Arakeen had become an ungenerous place, a contained place, unreasonable and self-righteous in its harsh outlines. Abruptly, the anteroom's small side door opened. A vanguard of priestess Amazons spewed into the room with Alia shielded behind them, haughty and moving with a confined awareness of real and terrible power. Alia's face was composed. No emotion betrayed itself as her gaze caught and held her mother's, but both knew the battle had been joined. At Javid's command, the giant doors into the great hall were opened, moving with a silent and inevitable sense of hidden energies. Alia came to her mother's side as the guards enfolded them. Shall we go in now, mother? Alia asked. It's high time, Jessica said. And she thought, seeing the sense of gloating in Alia's eyes, she thinks she can destroy me and remain unscathed. She's mad. And Jessica wondered if that might not have been what Idaho had wanted. He'd sent a message, but she'd been unable to respond. Such an enigmatic message. Danger must see you. It had been written in a variant of the old Jacobso, where the particular word chosen to denote danger signified a plot. I'll see him immediately when I return to Dabur, she thought. This is the fallacy of power. Ultimately, it is effective only in an absolute, a limited universe. But the basic lesson of our relativistic universe is that things change. Any power must always meet a greater power. Paul Muad'Dib taught this lesson to the Sadduka on the plains of Arakin. His descendants have yet to learn the lesson for themselves. The Preacher at Arakin. The first supplicant for the morning audience was a Kadeshian troubadour, a pilgrim of the Hajj whose purse had been emptied by Arakeen mercenaries. He stood on the water-green stone of the chamber floor with no air of begging about him. Jessica admired his boldness from where she sat with Alia atop the seven-step platform. Identical thrones had been placed here for mother and daughter, and Jessica made particular note of the fact that Alia sat on the right, the masculine position. As for the Kadeshian troubadour, it was obvious that Javid's people had passed him for just this quality he now displayed, his boldness. The troubadour was expected to provide some entertainment for the courtiers of the great hall. It was the payment he'd make in lieu of the money he no longer possessed. From the report of the priest advocate, who now pled the troubadour's case, the Kadeshian had retained only the clothing on his back and the balisette slung over one shoulder on a leather cord. He says he was fed a dark drink, the advocate said, barely hiding the smile which sought to twist his lips. 
if it please your holiness, the drink left him helpless but awake while his purse was cut. Jessica studied the troubadour while the advocate droned on and on with a false subservience, his voice full of mucky morals. The Kardashian was tall, easily two meters. He had a roving eye which showed intelligent alertness and humor. His golden hair was worn to the shoulders in the style of his planet, and there was a sense of virile strength in the broad chest and neatly tapering body which a gray, harsh robe could not conceal. His name was given as Tagir Mohandis, and he was descended from merchant engineers, proud of his ancestry and himself. Alia finally cut off the pleading with a hand-wave, spoke without turning. The Lady Jessica will render first judgment in honour of her return to us. Thank you, daughter, Jessica said, stating the order of ascendancy to all who heard. Daughter. So this Tagir Mohandis was part of their plan. Or was he an innocent dupe? This judgment was designed to open attack on herself, Jessica realized. It was obvious in Alia's attitude. Do you play that instrument well? Jessica asked, indicating the nine-string baliset on the troubadour's shoulder. As well as the great Gurney Halleck himself, Tagir Mohandis spoke loudly for all in the hall to hear, and his words evoked an interested stir among the courtiers. You seek the gift of transport money, Jessica said. Where would that money take you? To Salusa Secundus and Faridun's court, Mohandis said. I've heard he seeks troubadours and minstrels, that he supports the arts and builds a great renaissance of cultivated life around him. Jessica refrained from glancing at Aaliyah. They'd known, of course, what Mohandis would ask. She found herself enjoying this byplay. Did they think her unable to meet this thrust? Will you play for your passage? Jessica asked. My terms are Fremen terms. If I enjoy your music, I may keep you here to smooth away my cares. If your music offends me, I may send you to toil in the desert for your passage money. If I deem your playing just right for Faradon, who is said to be an enemy of the Atreides, then I will send you to him with my blessing. Will you play on these terms, Tagir Mohandis? He threw his head back in a great roaring laugh. His blonde hair danced as he unslung the baliset and tuned it deftly to indicate acceptance of her challenge. The crowd in the chamber started to press closer, but were held back by courtiers and guards. Presently, Mohandis strummed a note, holding the bass hum of the side strings with a fine attention to their compelling vibration. Then, lifting his voice in a mellow tenor, he sang, obviously improvising, but his touch so deft that Jessica was enthralled before she focused on his lyrics. You say you long for Caladan seas, where once you ruled Atreides without surcease, but exiles dwell in stranger lands. You say twere bitter, men so rude, to sell your dreams of shy hulud for tasteless food, and exiles dwell in stranger lands. You make Arrakis grow infirm, silence the passage of the worm, and end your term, as exiles dwell in stranger lands. Alia, they name you Kondin, that spirit who is never seen until— Enough! 
Aaliyah screamed. She pushed herself half out of her throne. I'll have you! Aaliyah! Jessica spoke just loud enough, a voice pitched just right to avoid confrontation while gaining full attention. It was a masterful use of voice, and all who heard it recognized the trained powers in this demonstration. Aaliyah sank back into her seat, and Jessica noted that she showed not the slightest discomfiture. This, too, was anticipated, Jessica thought. How very interesting. The judgment on this first one is mine, Jessica reminded her. Very well, Aaliyah's words were barely audible. I find this one a fitting gift for Faradun, Jessica said. He has a tongue which cuts like a Chris knife. Such bloodletting as that tongue can administer would be healthy for our own court, but I'd rather he ministered to House Corino. A light rippling of laughter spread through the hall. Alia permitted herself a snorting exhalation. Do you know what he called me? He didn't call you anything, daughter. He but reported that which he or anyone else could hear in the streets. There they call you, Contine. The female death spirit who walks without feet, Alia snarled. If you put away those who report accurately, you'll keep only those who know what you want to hear, Jessica said, her voice sweet. I can think of nothing more poisonous than to rot in the stink of your own reflections. Audible gasps came from those immediately below the thrones. Jessica focused on Mohandis, who remained silent, standing completely uncowed. He awaited whatever judgment was passed upon him as though it did not matter. Mohandis was exactly the kind of man her duke would have chosen to have by his side in troubled times, one who acted with confidence of his own judgment, but accepted whatever befell, even death, without berating his fate. Then why had he chosen this course? Why did you sing those particular words? Jessica asked him. He lifted his head to speak clearly. I'd heard that the Atreides were honorable and open-minded. I'd a thought to test it and perhaps to stay here in your service, thereby having the time to seek out those who robbed me and deal with them in my own fashion. He dares test us, Aliyah muttered. Why not? Jessica asked. She smiled down at the troubadour to signal goodwill. He had come into this hall only because it offered him opportunity for another adventure, another passage through his universe. Jessica found herself tempted to bind him to her own entourage, but Alia's reaction boded evil for brave Mohandis. There were also those signs which said this was the course expected of the Lady Jessica, take a brave and handsome troubadour into her service as she'd taken brave Gurney Halleck. Best Mohandis was sent on his way, though it rankled to lose such a fine specimen to Faradun. He shall go to Faradun, Jessica said. See that he gets his passage money. Let his tongue draw the blood of House Corino, and see how he survives it. Alia glowered at the floor, then produced a belated smile. The wisdom of the Lady Jessica prevails, she said, waving Mohandis away. That did not go the way she wanted, Jessica thought, but there were indicators in Alia's manner that a more potent test remained. Another supplicant was being brought forward. Jessica, noting her daughter's reaction, felt the gnawing of doubts. 
The lesson learned from the twins was needed here. Let Alia be abomination. Still, she was one of the pre-born. She could know her mother as she knew herself. It did not compute that Alia would misjudge her mother's reactions in the matter of the troubadour. Why did Alia stage that confrontation? To distract me? There was no more time to reflect. The second supplicant had taken his place below the twin thrones, his advocate at his side. The supplicant was a Fremen this time, an old man with the sand marks of the desert born on his face. He was not tall, but a wiry body and the long dishdasha usually worn over a stillsuit gave him a stately appearance. The robe was in keeping with his narrow face and beaked nose, the glaring eyes of blue on blue. He wore no stillsuit and seemed uncomfortable without it. The gigantic space of the audience hall must seem to him like the dangerous open air which robbed his flesh of its priceless moisture. Under the hood, which had been thrown partly back, he wore the knotted kefia headdress of a naib. I am Gadien Alfali, he said, placing one foot on the steps to the thrones to signify his status above that of the mob. I was one of Muad'Dib's death commandos, and I am here concerning a matter of the desert. Alia stiffened only slightly, a small betrayal. Alfali's name had been on that demand to place Jessica on the council. A matter of the desert, Jessica thought. Gadin Alfali had spoken before his advocate could open the pleading. With that formal Fremen phrase, he had placed them on notice that he brought them something of concern to all of Dune, and that he spoke with the authority of a Fadaikin who had offered his life beside that of Paul Muad'Dib. Jessica doubted that this was what Gadin Alfali had told Javid or the Advocate General in seeking audience here. Her guess was confirmed as an official of the priesthood rushed forward from the rear of the chamber waving the black cloth of intercession. My ladies! the official called out. Do not listen to this man, he comes under false... Jessica, watching the priest run toward them, caught a movement out of the corners of her eyes, saw Alia's hand signalling in the old Atreides battle language, Now! Jessica could not determine where the signal was directed, but acted instinctively with a lurch to the left, taking throne and all. She rolled away from the crashing throne as she fell, came to her feet as she heard the sharp spat of a mauler pistol, and again. But she was moving with the first sound, felt something tug at her right sleeve. She dove into the throng of supplicants and courtiers gathered below the dais. Alia, she noted, had not moved. Surrounded by people, Jessica stopped. Gadin Alfali, she saw, had dodged to the other side of the dais, but the advocate remained in his original position. It had all happened with the rapidity of an ambush, but everyone in the hall knew where trained reflexes should have taken anyone caught by surprise. Alia and the advocate stood frozen in their exposure. A disturbance toward the middle of the room caught Jessica's attention, and she forced a way through the throng, saw four supplicants holding the priest official. His black cloth of intercession lay near his feet, a mauler pistol exposed in its folds. Alfali thrust his way past Jessica, looked from the pistol to the priest. The Fremen let out a cry of rage, came up from his belt with an achag blow, the fingers of his left hand rigid. They caught the priest in the throat and he collapsed, strangling. 
Without a backward glance at the man he had killed, the old Naib turned an angry face toward the dais. Dalal il anbuwa, Al-Fali called, placing both palms against his forehead, then lowering them. The Qadis al-Salaf will not let me be silenced. If I do not slay those who interfere, others will slay them. He thinks he was the target, Jessica realized. She looked down at her sleeve, put a finger in the neat hole left by the Mauler pellet. Poisoned, no doubt. The supplicants had dropped the priest. He lay writhing on the floor, dying with his larynx crushed. Jessica motioned to a pair of shocked courtiers standing at her left, said, I want that man saved for questioning. If he dies, you die. As they hesitated, peering toward the dais, she used voice on them. Move! The pair moved. Jessica thrust herself to Alfali's side, nudged him. You are a fool, Naib. They were after me, not you. Several people around them heard her. In the immediate shocked silence, Alfali glanced at the dais with its one toppled throne and Alia still seated on the other. The look of realization which came over his face could have been read by a novice. For Daikin, Jessica said, reminding him of his old service to her family. We who have been scorched know how to stand back to back. Trust me, my lady, he said, taking her meaning immediately. A gasp behind Jessica brought her whirling, and she felt Alfali move to stand with his back to her. A woman in the gaudy garb of a city Fremen was straightening from beside the priest on the floor. The two courtiers were nowhere to be seen. The woman did not even glance at Jessica, but lifted her voice in the ancient keening of her people, the call for those who serviced the death stills, the call for them to come and gather a body's water into the tribal cistern. It was a curiously incongruous noise coming from one dressed as this woman was. Jessica felt the persistence of the old ways even as she saw the falseness in this city woman. The creature in the gaudy dress obviously had killed the priest, to make sure he was silenced. Why did she bother? Jessica wondered. She had only to wait for the man to die of asphyxiation. The act was a desperate one, a sign of deep fear. Alia sat forward on the edge of her throne, her eyes aglitter with watchfulness. A slender woman wearing the braid knots of Alia's own guards strode past Jessica, bent over the priest, straightened, and looked back at the dais. He is dead. Have him removed, Alia called. She motioned to guards below the dais. Straighten the Lady Jessica's chair. So you'll try to brazen it out, Jessica thought. Did Alia think anyone had been fooled? Alfali had spoken of the Qadis as-Salaf, calling on the Holy Fathers of Fremen mythology as his protectors. But no supernatural agency had brought a Mauler pistol into this room where no weapons were permitted. A conspiracy involving Javid's people was the only answer, and Alia's unconcern about her own person told everyone she was a part of that conspiracy. The old Naib spoke over his shoulder to Jessica. Accept my apologies, my lady. We of the desert come to you as our last desperate hope, and now we see that you still have need of us. Matricide does not sit well on my daughter, Jessica said. The tribes will hear of this, Alfali promised. If you have such desperate need of me, 
Jessica asked. Why did you not approach me at the convocation in Siech Tabor? Stilgar would not permit it. Ah, Jessica thought, the rule of the naives. In Tabor, Stilgar's word was law. The toppled throne had been straightened. Alia motioned for her mother to return, said, All of you please note the death of that traitor priest. Those who threaten me die. She glanced at Alfali. My thanks to you, Naib. Thanks for a mistake, Alfali muttered. He looked at Jessica. You were right. My rage removed one who should have been questioned. Jessica whispered, Mark those two courtiers and the woman in the colorful dress for Daikin. I want them taken and questioned. It will be done, he said. If we get out of here alive, Jessica said. Come, let us go back and play our parts. As you say, my lady. Together they returned to the dais, Jessica mounting the steps and resuming her position below Alia, Alfali remaining in the supplicant's position below. Now, Alia said. One moment, daughter, Jessica said. She held up her sleeve, exposing the hole with a finger through it. The attack was aimed at me. The pellet almost found me even as I was dodging. You will all note that the Mauler pistol is no longer down there, she pointed. Who has it? There was no response. Perhaps it could be traced, Jessica said. What nonsense, Alia said. I was the... Jessica half turned toward her daughter, motioned with her left hand. Someone down there has that pistol. Don't you have a fear that... One of my guards has it. Alia said. Then that guard will bring the weapon to me, Jessica said. She's already taken it away. How convenient, Jessica said. What are you saying? Alia demanded. Jessica allowed herself a grim smile. I am saying that two of your people were charged with saving that traitor priest. I warned them that they would die if he died. They will die. I forbid it. Jessica merely shrugged. We have a brave Fadike in here, Alia said, motioning toward Alfali. This argument can wait. It can wait forever, Jessica said, speaking in Chakopsa, her words double-barbed to tell Alia that no argument would stop the death command. We shall see, Alia said. She turned to Alfali. Why are you here, Gadian Alfali? To see the mother of Muad'Dib, the naive said. What is left of the Fadaikin, that band of brothers who served her son, pooled their poor resources to buy my way in here past the avaricious guardians who shield the Atreides from the realities of Arrakis? Alia said, Anything the Fadaikin require, they have only... He came to see me, Jessica interrupted. What is your desperate need for Daikin? Alia said, I speak for the Atreides here. What is... Be silent, you murderous abomination, Jessica snapped. You tried to have me killed, daughter. I say it for all here to know. You can't have everyone in this hall killed to silence them, as that priest was silenced. Yes, the naive's blow would have killed the man, but he could have been saved. He could have been questioned. You have no concern that he was silenced. 
Spray your protests upon us as you will. Your guilt is written in your actions. Aaliyah sat in frozen silence, face pale, and Jessica, watching the play of emotions across her daughter's face, saw a terrifyingly familiar movement of Aaliyah's hands, an unconscious response which once had identified a deadly enemy of the Atreides. Aaliyah's fingers moved in a tapping rhythm, little finger twice, index finger three times, ring finger twice, little finger once, ring finger twice, and back through the tapping in the same order. The old baron. The focus of Jessica's eyes caught Aaliyah's attention, and she glanced down at her hand, held it still, looked back at her mother to see the terrible recognition. A gloating smile locked Aaliyah's mouth. So you have your revenge upon us, Jessica whispered. Have you gone mad, mother? Aaliyah asked. I wish I had, Jessica said, and she thought, she knows I will confirm this to the sisterhood. She knows. She may even suspect I'll tell the Fremen and force her into a trial of possession. She cannot let me leave here alive. Our brave Fadaikin waits while we argue, Aaliyah said. Jessica forced her attention back to the old Naib. She brought her responses under control, said, You came to see me. Gadin. Yes, my lady. We of the desert see terrible things happening. The little makers come out of the sand as was foretold in the oldest prophecies. Shai Hulud no longer can be found except in the deeps of the empty quarter. We have abandoned our friend, the desert. Jessica glanced at Alia, who merely motioned for Jessica to continue. Jessica looked out over the throng in the chamber, saw the shocked alertness on every face. The import of the fight between mother and daughter had not been lost on this throng, and they must wonder why the audience continued. She returned her attention to Alfali. Gardine, what is this talk of little makers and the scarcity of sandworms? Mother of moisture, he said, using her old Fremen title. We were warned of this in the Kitab al-Ibar. We beseech thee, let it not be forgotten that on the day Muad'Dib died, Arrakis turned by itself. We cannot abandon the desert. Ha! Aaliyah sneered. The superstitious riffraff of the inner desert fear the ecological transformation. They— I hear you, Gadin, Jessica said. If the worms go, the spice goes. If the spice goes, what coin do we have to buy our way? Sounds of surprise, gasps and startled whispers could be heard spreading across the great hall. The chamber echoed to the sound. Aaliyah shrugged. Superstitious nonsense. Alfali lifted his right hand to point at Aaliyah. I speak to the mother of moisture, not to the contin. Alia's hands gripped the arms of her throne, but she remained seated. Alfali looked at Jessica. Once it was the land where nothing grew. Now there are plants. They spread like lice upon a wound. There have been clouds and rain along the belt of dune. Rain, my lady. Oh, precious mother of Muad'Dib, as sleep is death's brother, 
so is rain on the belt of dune. It is the death of us all. We do only what Liet Kynes and Muad'Dib himself designed for us to do, Alia protested. What is all of this superstitious gabble? We revere the words of Liet Kynes, who told us, I wish to see this entire planet caught up in a net of green plants. So it will be. And what of the worms and the spice? Jessica asked. There'll always be some desert, Alia said. The worms will survive. She's lying, Jessica thought. Why does she lie? Help us, mother of moisture, Alfali pleaded. With an abrupt sensation of double vision, Jessica felt her awareness lurch, propelled by the old Naib's words. It was the unmistakable adab, the demanding memory which came upon one of itself. It came without qualifications and held her senses immobile, while the lesson of the past was impressed upon her awareness. She was caught up in it completely, a fish in the net, yet she felt the demand of it as a human-most moment, each small part a reminder of creation. Every element of the lesson memory was real but insubstantial in its constant change, and she knew this was the closest she might ever come to experiencing the prescient diet grasp which had inflicted itself upon her son. Alia lied because she was possessed by one who would destroy the Atreides. She was, in herself, the first destruction. Then Alfali spoke the truth. The sandworms are doomed unless the course of the ecological transformation is modified. In the pressure of revelation, Jessica saw the people of the audience reduced to slow motion, their roles identified for her. She could pick the ones charged with seeing that she did not leave here alive, and the path through them lay there in her awareness as though outlined in bright light, confusion among them, one of them fainted to stumble into another, whole groups tangled. She saw also that she might leave this great hall only to fall into other hands. Alia did not care if she created a martyr. No, the thing which possessed her did not care. Now, in this frozen time, Jessica chose a way to save the old Naib and send him as messenger. The way through the audience remained indelibly clear. How simple it was. They were buffoons with barricaded eyes, their shoulders held in positions of immovable defense. Each position upon the great floor could be seen as an atropic collision from which dead flesh might slough away to reveal skeletons. Their bodies, their clothes, and their faces described individual hells, the insucked breast of concealed terrors, the glittering hook of a jewel become substitute armor, the mouths were judgments full of frightened absolutes, cathedral prisms of eyebrows showing lofty and religious sentiments which their loins denied. Jessica sensed dissolution in the shaping forces loosed upon Arrakis. Alfali's voice had been like a distrans in her soul, awakening a beast from the deepest part of her. In an eye-blink, Jessica moved from the Adab into the universe of movement, but it was a different universe from the one which had commanded her attention only a second before. Aaliyah was starting to speak, but Jessica said, Silence! Then, There are those who fear that I have returned without reservation to the sisterhood. But since that day in the desert when the Fremen gave the gift of life to me and to my son, I have been Fremen. 
and she lapsed into the old tongue, which only those in this room who could profit by it would understand. On Sarakaka, Ziliman or Masluman, support your brother in his time of need, whether he be just or unjust. Her words had the desired effect, a subtle shifting of positions within the chamber, but Jessica raged on. This Gadian Alfali, an honest Fremen, comes here to tell me what others should have revealed to me. Let no one deny this. The ecological transformation has become a tempest out of control. Wordless confirmations could be seen throughout the room. And my daughter delights in this, Jessica said. Mechtub al-Melah. You carve wounds upon my flesh and write there in salt. Why did the Atreides find a home here? Because the Mohalata was natural to us. To the Atreides, government was always a protective partnership, Mohalata as the Fremen have always known it. Now look at her, Jessica pointed at Arlia. She laughs alone at night in contemplation of her own evil. Spice production will fall to nothing, or at best a fraction of its former level, and when word of that gets out, we'll have a corner on the most priceless product in the universe, Aliyah shouted. We'll have a corner on hell, Jessica raged. And Aliyah lapsed into the most ancient Chekobsa, the Atreides' private language with its difficult glottal stops and clicks. Now you know, mother. Did you think a granddaughter of Baron Harkonnen would not appreciate all of the lifetimes you crushed into my awareness before I was even born? When I raged against what you'd done to me, I had only to ask myself what the Baron would have done, and he answered. Understand me, Atreides, bitch. He answered me. Jessica heard the venom and the confirmation of her guess. Abomination. Aaliyah had been overwhelmed within, possessed by the Kahuit of evil, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. The Baron himself spoke from her mouth now, uncaring of what was revealed. He wanted her to see his revenge, wanted her to know that he could not be cast out. I'm supposed to remain here helpless in my knowledge, Jessica thought. With the thought, she launched herself onto the path the Adab had revealed, shouting, Fadaikin! Follow me! It turned out there were six Fadaikin in the room, and five of them one through behind her. When I am weaker than you, I ask you for freedom because that is according to your principles. When I am stronger than you, I take away your freedom because that is according to my principles. Words of an ancient philosopher attributed by Hark Alada to one Louis Veuillot. Leto leaned out the covered exit from the Siege, saw the bite of the cliff towering above his limited view. Late afternoon sunlight cast long shadows in the cliff's vertical striations. A skeleton butterfly flew in and out of the shadows, its webbed wings a transparent lacery against the light. How delicate that butterfly was to exist here, he thought. Directly ahead of him lay the apricot orchard, with children working there to gather the fallen fruit. Beyond the orchard was the canat. He and Ganima had given the slip to their guards by losing themselves in a sudden crush of incoming workers. It had been a relatively simple matter to worm their way down an air passage to its connection with the steps to the covered exit. 
Now they had only to mingle themselves with the children, work their way to the canat, and drop into the tunnel. There they could move beside the predator fish which kept sand trout from insisting the tribe's irrigation water. No Fremen would yet think of a human risking accidental immersion in water. He stepped out of the protective passages. The cliff stretched away on both sides of him, turned horizontal just by the act of his own movement. Ganima moved closely behind him. Both carried small fruit baskets woven of spice fibre, but each basket carried a sealed package, frem kit, mauler pistol, chris knife, and the new robes sent by Faradun. Ganima followed her brother into the orchard, mingled with the working children. Stillsuit masks concealed every face. They were just two more workers here, but she felt the action drawing her life away from protective boundaries and known ways. What a simple step it was, that step from one danger into another. In their baskets, those new garments sent by Faridun conveyed a purpose well understood by both of them. Ganima had accented this knowledge by sewing their personal motto, We Share, in Jacobsa above the hawk crest at each breast. It would be twilight soon, and beyond the canat which marked off Siech cultivation, there would come a special quality of evening which few places in the universe could match. It would be that softly lighted desert world with its persistent solitude, its saturated sense that each creature in it was alone in a new universe. We've been seen, Ganima whispered, bending to work beside her brother. Guards? No. Others? Good. We must move swiftly, she said. Leto acknowledged this by moving away from the cliff through the orchard. He thought with his father's thoughts. Everything remains mobile in the desert or perishes. Far out on the sand he could see the attendants outcropping, reminder of the need for mobility. The rocks lay static and rigid in their watchful enigma, fading yearly before the onslaught of wind-driven sand. One day, the attendant would be sand. As they neared the canat, they heard music from a high entrance of the siege. It was an old-style Fremen group, two-hold flutes, tambourines, timpani made on spice-plastic drums with skins stretched taut across one end. No one asked what animal on this planet provided that much skin. Stilgar will remember what I told him about that cleft in the attendant, Leto thought. He'll come in the dark when it's too late, and then he'll know. Presently they were at the canal. They slipped into an open tube, climbed down the inspection ladder to the service ledge. It was dusky, damp, and cold in the canal, and they could hear the predator fish splashing. Any sand trout trying to steal this water would find its water-softened inner surface attacked by the fish. Humans must be wary of them, too. Careful, Leto said, moving down the slippery ledge. He fastened his memory to times and places his flesh had never known. Ganima followed. At the end of the canat, they stripped to their still suits and put on the new robes. They left the old Fremen robes behind as they climbed out another inspection tube, wormed their way over a dune and down the far side. There they sat, shielded from the siege, strapped on mauler pistols and Chris knives, slipped the Frem kit packs onto their shoulders. They no longer could hear the music. Leto arose, struck out through the valley between the dunes. 
Ganima fell into step behind him, moving with practiced, unrhythmical quiet over the open sand. Below the crest of each dune they bent low and crept across into the hidden lee, there to pause and peer backward, seeking pursuit. No hunters had emerged upon the desert by the time they reached the first rocks. In the shadows of the rocks they worked their way around the attendant, climbed to a ledge looking out upon the desert. Colors blinked far out on the bled. The darkening air held the fragility of fine crystal. The landscape which met their gaze was beyond pity. Nowhere did it pause, no hesitations in it at all. The gaze stayed upon no single space in its scanning movements across that immensity. It is the horizon of eternity, Leto thought. Ganima crouched beside her brother, thinking, The attack will come soon. She listened for the slightest sound, her whole body transformed into a single sense of taut probing. Leto sat equally alert. He knew now the culmination of all the training which had gone into the lives he shared so intimately. In this wilderness, one developed a firm dependence upon the senses, all of the senses. Life became a horde of stored perceptions, each one linked only to momentary survival. Presently, Ganima climbed up the rocks and peered through a notch at the way they had come. The safety of the Siech seemed a lifetime away, a bulk of dumb cliffs rising out of brown-purple distance, dust-blurred edges at the rim where the last of the sunlight cast its silver streaks. Still no pursuit could be seen in the intervening distance. She returned to Leto's side. It'll be a predatory animal, Leto said. That's my tertiary computation. I think you stopped computing too soon, Ganima said. It'll be more than one animal. House Carino has learned not to put all of its hopes into a single bag. Leto nodded agreement. His mind felt suddenly heavy with a multitude of lives which his difference provided him. All of those lives, his even before birth. He was saturated with living and wanted to flee from his own consciousness. The inner world was a heavy beast which could devour him. Restlessly he arose, climbed to the notch Ganima had used, peered at the cliffs of the Siege. Back there, beneath the cliff, he could see how the Kanat drew a line between life and death. On the oasis edge he could see camel sage, onion grass, goby feather grass, wild alfalfa. In the last of the light he could make out the black movements of birds, pick-hopping in the alfalfa. The distant grain tassels were ruffled by a wind which drew shadows that moved right up to the orchard. The motion caught at his awareness, and he saw that the shadows hid within their fluid form a larger change, and that larger change gave ransom to the turning rainbows of a silver-dusted sky. What will happen out here? he asked himself, and he knew it would either be death or the play of death, himself the object. Ganima would be the one to return, believing the reality of a death she had seen or reporting sincerely from a deep hypnotic compulsion that her brother was indeed slain. The unknowns of this place haunted him. He thought how easy it would be to succumb to the demand for prescience, to risk launching his awareness into an unchanging absolute future. 
The small vision of his dream was bad enough, though he knew he dared not risk the larger vision. Presently he returned to Ganima's side. No pursuit yet, he said. The beasts they send for us will be large, Ganima said. We may have time to see them coming. Not if they come in the night. It'll be dark very soon, she said. Yes, it's time we went down into our place. He indicated the rocks to their left and below them, where wind sand had eaten a tiny cleft in the basalt. It was large enough to admit them, but small enough to keep out large creatures. Leto felt himself reluctant to go there, but knew it must be done. That was the place he'd pointed out to Stilgar. They may really kill us, he said. This is the chance we have to take, she said. We owe it to our father. I'm not arguing, and he thought, this is the correct path. We do the right thing. But he knew how dangerous it was to be right in this universe. Their survival now demanded vigor and fitness and an understanding of the limitations in every moment. Fremen ways were their best armor, and the Bene Gesserit knowledge was a force held in reserve. They were both thinking now as Atreides-trained battle veterans, with no other defenses than a Fremen toughness which was not even hinted at by their childish bodies and their formal attire. Leto fingered the hilt of the poison-tipped Chris knife at his waist. Unconsciously, Ganima duplicated the gesture. Shall we go down now? Ganima asked. As she spoke, she saw the movement far below them, small movement, made less threatening by distance. Her stillness alerted Leto before she could utter a warning. Tigers, he said. Laser tigers, she corrected him. They see us, he said. We'd better hurry, she said. A mauler would never stop those creatures. They will have been well trained for this. They'll have a human director somewhere around, he said, leading the way at a fast lope down the rocks to the left. Ganima agreed but kept it to herself, saving her strength. There'd be a human around somewhere. Those tigers couldn't be allowed to run free until the proper moment. The tigers moved fast in the last of the light, leaping from rock to rock. They were eye-minded creatures, and soon it would be night, the time of the ear-minded. The bell call of a nightbird came from the attendant's rocks to emphasize the change. Creatures of the darkness already were hustling in the shadows of the etched crevices. Still the tigers remained visible to the running twins. The animals flowed with power, a rippling sense of golden sureness in every movement. Leto felt that he had stumbled into this place to free himself from his soul. He ran with a sure knowledge that he and Ganima could reach their narrow notch in time, but his gaze kept returning with fascination to the oncoming beasts. One stumble and we're lost, he thought. That thought reduced the sureness of his knowledge, and he ran faster. You Bene Gesserit call your activity of the Panoplia Prophetica a science of religion. Very well, I, a seeker after another kind of scientist, find this an appropriate definition. You do indeed build your own myths, but so do all societies. You I must warn, however. You are behaving as so many other misguided scientists have behaved. Your actions reveal that you wish to take something out of, away from, life. It is time you were reminded of that which you so often profess, 
one cannot have a single thing without its opposite. The Preacher at Arakeen, A Message to the Sisterhood In the hour before dawn, Jessica sat immobile on a worn rug of spice cloth. Around her were the bare rocks of an old and poor sietch, one of the original settlements. It lay below the rim of Red Chasm, sheltered from the westerlies of the desert. Alfali and his brothers had brought her here, now they awaited word from Stilgar. The Fadaikin had moved cautiously in the matter of communication, however. Stilgar was not to know their location. The Fadaikin already knew they were under a process verbal, an official report of crimes against the Imperium. Alia was taking the tack that her mother had been suborned by enemies of the realm, although the sisterhood had not yet been named. The high-handed, tyrannical nature of Alia's power was out in the open, however, and her belief that because she controlled the priesthood, she controlled the Fremen, was about to be tested. Jessica's message to Stilgar had been direct and simple. My daughter is possessed and must be put to the trial. Fears destroyed values, though, and it already was known that some Fremen would prefer not to believe this accusation. Their attempts to use the accusation as a passport had brought on two battles during the night, but the ornithopters Alfali's people had stolen had brought the fugitives to this precarious safety. Red Chasm Siege. Word was going out to the Fadaikin from here, but fewer than two hundred of them remained on Arrakis. The others held posts throughout the empire. Reflecting upon these facts, Jessica wondered if she had come to the place of her death. Some of the Fadaikin believed it, but the death commandos accepted this easily enough. Alfali had merely grinned at her when some of his young men voiced their fears. When God hath ordained a creature to die in a particular place, he causeth that creature's wants to direct him to that place, the old Naib had said. The patched curtains at her doorway rustled. Alfali entered. The old man's narrow, wind-burned face appeared drawn, his eyes feverish. Obviously he had not rested. Someone comes, he said. From Stilgar? Perhaps. He lowered his eyes, glanced leftward in the manner of the old Fremen who brought bad news. What is it? Jessica demanded. We have word from Tabor that your grandchildren are not there. He spoke without looking at her. Ali? She has ordered that the twins be given over to her custody, but Siech Tabor reports that the children are not there. That is all we know. Stilgas sent them into the desert, Jessica said. Possibly, but it is known that he was searching for them all through the night. Perhaps it was a trick on his part. That's not Stilgar's way, she said, and thought, unless the twins put him up to it. But that didn't feel right either. She wondered at herself, no sensations of panic to suppress, and her fears for the twins were tempered by what Ganima had revealed. She peered up at Alfali, found him studying her with pity in his eyes. She said, they've gone into the desert by themselves. Alone? Those two children? She did not bother to explain that those two children probably knew more about desert survival than most living Fremen. Her thoughts were fixed instead on Leto's odd behavior when he'd insisted that she allow herself to be abducted. 
She'd put the memory aside, but this moment demanded it. He'd said she would know the moment to obey him. The messenger should be in the sietch by now, Alfali said. I will bring him to you. He let himself out through the patched curtain. Jessica stared at the curtain. It was red cloth of spice fiber, but the patches were blue. The story was that this Siech had refused to profit from Muad'Dib's religion, earning the enmity of Aliyah's priesthood. The people here reportedly had put their capital into a scheme to raise dogs as large as ponies, dogs bred for intelligence as guardians of children. The dogs had all died. Some said it was poison, and the priests were blamed. She shook her head to drive out these reflections, recognizing them for what they were, guffler the gadfly distraction. Where had those children gone? To Jakurutu? They had a plan. They tried to enlighten me to the extent they thought I'd accept, she remembered. And when they'd reached the limits as they saw them, Leto had commanded her to obey. He'd commanded her. Leto had recognized what Alia was doing. That much was obvious. Both twins had spoken of their aunt's affliction even when defending her. Alia was gambling on the rightness of her position in the regency. Demanding custody of the twins confirmed that. Jessica found a harsh laugh shaking her own breast. The Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam had been fond of explaining this particular error to her student, Jessica. If you focus your awareness only upon your own rightness, then you invite the forces of opposition to overwhelm you. This is a common error. Even I, your teacher, have made it. And even I, your student, have made it, Jessica whispered to herself. She heard fabrics whispering in the passage beyond the curtain. Two young Fremen entered part of the entourage they'd picked up during the night. The two were obviously awed at being in the presence of Muad'Dib's mother. Jessica had read them completely. They were non-thinkers, attaching themselves to any fancied power for the identity which this gave them. Without a reflection from her, they were empty. Thus, they were dangerous. We were sent ahead by Alfali to prepare you, one of the young Fremen said. Jessica felt an abrupt, clenching tightness in her breast, but her voice remained calm. Prepare me for what? Stilgar has sent Duncan Idaho as his messenger. Jessica pulled her arbor hood up over her hair, an unconscious gesture. Duncan? But he was Aaliyah's tool. The Fremen who'd spoken took a half-step forward. Idaho says he has come to take you to safety, but Alfali does not see how this can be. It seems passing strange indeed, Jessica said. But there are stranger things in our universe. Bring him. They glanced at each other but obeyed, leaving together with such a rush that they tore another rent in the worn curtain. Presently Idaho stepped through the curtain, followed by the two Fremen and Alfhali bringing up the rear, hand on his Chris knife. Idaho appeared composed. He wore the dress casuals of an Atreides house guard, a uniform which had changed little in more than fourteen centuries. Arrakis had replaced the old gold-handled plasteel blade with a Chris knife, but that was minor. I'm told you wish to help me, Jessica said. As odd as that may seem, he said. But didn't Alia send you to abduct me? she asked. 
A slight raising of his black eyebrows was the only mark of surprise. The many-faceted Tleilaxu eyes continued to stare at her with glittering intensity. Those were her orders, he said. Alfali's knuckles went white on his Chris knife, but he did not draw. I've spent much of this night reviewing the mistakes I made with my daughter, she said. There were many, Idaho agreed, and I shared in most of them. She saw now that his jaw muscles were trembling. It was easy to listen to the arguments which led us astray, Jessica said. I wanted to leave this place. You, you wanted a girl you saw as a younger version of me. He accepted this silently. Where are my grandchildren? she demanded, voice going harsh. He blinked. Then, Stilgar believes they've gone into the desert, hiding. Perhaps they saw this crisis coming. Jessica glanced at Alfali, who nodded his recognition that she had anticipated this. What is Alia doing? Jessica asked. She risks civil war, he said. Do you believe it'll come to that? Idaho shrugged. Probably not. These are softer times. There are more people willing to listen to pleasant arguments. I agree, she said. Well and good. What of my grandchildren? Stilgar will find them, if... Yes, I see. It was really up to Gurney Halleck, then. She turned to look at the rock wall on her left. Alia grasps the power firmly now. She looked back at Idaho. You understand? One uses power by grasping it lightly. To grasp too strongly is to be taken over by power and thus to become its victim. As my duke always told me, Idaho said. Somehow Jessica knew he meant the older Leto, not Paul. She asked, Where am I to be taken in this abduction? Idaho peered down at her as though trying to see into the shadows created by the hood. Alfali stepped forward. My lady, you are not seriously thinking. Is it not my right to decide my own fate? Jessica asked. But this... Alfali's head nodded toward Idaho. This was my loyal guardian before Alia was born, Jessica said, before he died saving my son's life and mine. We Atreides always honor certain obligations. Then you will go with me? Idaho asked. Where would you take her? Alfali asked. Best that you don't know, Jessica said. Alfali scowled but remained silent. His face betrayed indecision, an understanding of the wisdom in her words, but an unresolved doubt of Idaho's trustworthiness. What of the Fadaikin who helped me? Jessica asked. They have Stilgar's countenance if they can get to Tabor, Idaho said. Jessica faced Alfali. I command you to go there, my friend. Stilgar can use Fadaikin in the search for my grandchildren. The old naive lowered his gaze. As Muad'Dib's mother commands. He's still obeying Paul, she thought. We shall be out of here quickly, Idaho said. The search is certain to include this place, and that early. Jessica rocked forward and arose with that fluid grace which never quite left the Bene Gesserit, even when they felt the pangs of age. And she felt old now after her night of flight. 
Even as she moved, her mind remained on that peculiar interview with her grandson. What was he really doing? She shook her head, covered the motion by adjusting her hood. It was too easy to fall into the trap of underestimating Leto. Life with ordinary children conditioned one to a false view of the inheritance which the twins enjoyed. Her attention was caught by Idaho's pose. He stood in the relaxed preparedness for violence, one foot ahead of the other, a stance which she herself had taught him. She shot a quick look at the two young Fremen, at Alfali. Doubts still assailed the old Fremen Naib, and the two young men felt this. I trust this man with my life, she said, addressing herself to Alfali, and it is not the first time. My lady, Alfali protested, it's just, he glared at Idaho, he's the husband of the Contine. And he was trained by my duke and by me, she said. But he's a Gola, the words were torn from Alfali. My son's Gola she reminded him. It was too much for a former Fadaikin who'd once pledged himself to support Muad'Dib to the death. He sighed, stepped aside, and motioned the two young men to open the curtains. Jessica stepped through, Idaho behind her. She turned, spoke to Alfali in the doorway. You are to go to Stilgar. He's to be trusted. Yes. But she still heard doubts in the old man's voice. Idaho touched her arm. We should go at once. Is there anything you wish to take? Only my common sense, she said. Why, do you fear you're making a mistake? She glanced up at him. You were always the best thopter pilot in our service, Duncan. This did not amuse him. He stepped ahead of her, moving swiftly, retracing the way he'd come. Alfali fell into step beside Jessica. How did you know he came by thopter? He wears no still suit, Jessica said. Alfali appeared abashed by this obvious perception. He would not be silenced, though. Our messenger brought him here directly from Stilgars. They could have been seen. Were you seen, Duncan? Jessica asked Idaho's back. You know better than that, he said. We flew lower than the dune tops. They turned into a side passage which led downward in spiral steps, debouching finally into an open chamber well lighted by glow globes high in the brown rock. A single ornithopter sat facing the far wall, crouched there like an insect waiting to spring. The wall would be false rock, then, a door opening onto the desert. As poor as this siege was, it still maintained the instruments of secrecy and mobility. Idaho opened the ornithopter's door for her, helped her into the right-hand seat. As she moved past him, she saw perspiration on his forehead where a lock of the black goat hair lay tumbled. Unbidden, Jessica found herself recalling that head spouting blood in a noisy cavern. The steely marbles of the Tleilaxu eyes brought her out of that recollection. Nothing was as it seemed anymore. She busied herself fastening her seatbelt. It's been a long time since you've flown me, Duncan, she said. Long and far time, he said. He was already checking the controls. Alfali and the two younger Fremen waited beside the controls to the false rock prepared to open it. Do you think I harbour doubts about you? Jessica asked. 
speaking softly to Idaho. Idaho kept his attention on an engine instrument, ignited the impellers, and watched a needle move. A smile touched his mouth, a quick and harsh gesture in his sharp features, gone as quickly as it had come. I am still Atreides, Jessica said. Alia is not. Have no fear, he grated. I still serve the Atreides. Alia is no longer Atreides, Jessica repeated. You needn't remind me, he snarled. Now shut up and let me fly this thing. The desperation in his voice was quite unexpected, out of keeping with the Idaho she'd known. Putting down a renewed sense of fear, Jessica asked, Where are we going, Duncan? You can tell me now. But he nodded to Alfali and the false rock opened outward into bright silvery sunlight. The ornithopter leaped outward and up, its wings throbbing with the effort, the jets roaring, and they mounted into an empty sky. Idaho set a southwesterly course towards Sahaya Ridge, which could be seen as a dark line upon the sand. Presently he said, Do not think harshly of me, my lady. I haven't thought harshly of you since that night you came into our Arakeen Great Hall roaring drunk on Spicebeer, she said. But his words renewed her doubts, and she fell into the relaxed preparedness of complete Pranabindu defense. I remember that night well, he said. I was very young, inexperienced. But the best swordmaster in my duke's retinue. Not quite, my lady. Gurney could best me six times out of ten. He glanced at her. Where is Gurney? Doing my bidding. He shook his head. Do you know where we're going? She asked. Yes, my lady. Then tell me. Very well. I promised that I would create a believable plot against House Atreides. Only one way, really, to do that. He pressed a button on the control wheel and cocoon restraints whipped from Jessica's seat enfolded her in unbreakable softness, leaving only her head exposed. I'm taking you to Seleucia Secundus, he said, to Faridun. In a rare, uncontrolled spasm, Jessica surged against the restraints, felt them tighten, easing only when she relaxed, but not before she felt the deadly shigar wire concealed in the protective sheathing. The Shigawa release has been disconnected, he said, not looking at her. Oh yes, and don't try voice on me. I've come a long way since the days when you could move me that way. He looked at her. The Tleilaxu armoured me against such wiles. You're obeying Aaliyah, Jessica said, and she- Not Aaliyah, he said. We do the preacher's bidding. He wants you to teach Faridun as once you taught Paul. Jessica remained in frozen silence, remembering Leto's words, that she would find an interesting student. Presently she said, This preacher, is he my son? Idaho's voice seemed to come from a great distance. I wish I knew. The universe is just there. That's the only way a Fadaikin can view it and remain the master of his senses. The universe neither threatens nor promises. It holds things beyond our sway. The fall of a meteor, the eruption of a spice blow, growing old and dying. These are the realities of this universe, and they must be faced regardless of how you feel about them.
You cannot fend off such realities with words. They will come at you in your own wordless way, and then... then you will understand what is meant by life and death. Understanding this, you will be filled with joy. Muad'Dib to his Fadaikin And those are the things we have set in motion, Wenzishia said. These things were done for you. Faradun remained motionless, seated across from his mother in her morning room. The sun's golden light came from behind him, casting his shadow on the white carpeted floor. Light reflected from the wall behind his mother drew a nimbus around her hair. She wore her usual white robe trimmed in gold, reminders of royal days. Her heart-shaped face appeared composed, but he knew she was watching his every reaction. His stomach felt empty, although he'd just come from breakfast. You don't approve? Wenzishia asked. What is there to disapprove? he asked. Well, that we kept this from you until now. Oh, that. He studied his mother, tried to reflect upon his complex position in this matter. He could only think on a thing he had noticed recently, that Tjeganik no longer called her my princess. What did he call her? Queen Mother? Why do I feel a sense of loss? he wondered. What am I losing? The answer was obvious. He was losing his carefree days, time for those pursuits of the mind which so attracted him. If this plot unfolded by his mother came off, those things would be gone forever. New responsibilities would demand his attention. He found that he resented this deeply. How dared they take such liberties with his time, and without even consulting him? Out with it, his mother said. Something's wrong. What if this plan fails, he asked, saying the first thing that came into his mind. How can it fail? I don't know. Any plan can fail. How are you using Idaho in all of this? Idaho? What's this interest in... Oh, yes, that mystic fellow Tjek brought here without consulting me. That was wrong of him. The mystic spoke of Idaho, didn't he? It was a clumsy lie on her part, and Faridon found himself staring at his mother in wonderment. She'd known about the preacher all along. It's just that I've never seen a gola, he said. She accepted this, said, We're saving Idaho for something important. Faradun chewed silently at his upper lip. When Zishia found herself reminded of his dead father, Dalak had been like that at times, very inward and complex, difficult to read. Dalak, she reminded herself, had been related to Count Hasimir Fenring, and there'd been something of the dandy and the fanatic in both of them. Would Faradun follow in that path? She began to regret having Tiek lead the lad into the Arakeen religion. Who knew where that might take him? What does Tiek call you now? Faridan asked. What's that? She was startled by this shift. I've noticed that he doesn't call you my princess anymore. How observant he is, she thought, wondering why this filled her with disquiet. Does he think I've taken Tiek as a lover? Nonsense. It wouldn't matter one way or the other. Then why this question? He calls me my lady, she said. Why? 
because that's the custom in all of the great houses. Including the Atreides, he thought. It's less suggestive if overheard, she explained. Some will think we've given up our legitimate aspirations. Who would be that stupid? he asked. She pursed her lips, decided to let it pass. A small thing, but great campaigns were made up of many small things. The Lady Jessica shouldn't have left Caladan, he said. She shook her head sharply. What was this? His mind was darting around like a crazy thing. She said, what do you mean? She shouldn't have gone back to Arrakis, he said. That's bad strategy. Makes one wonder. Would have been better to have her grandchildren visit her on Caladan. He's right, she thought, dismayed that this had never occurred to her. Tiek would have to explore this immediately. Again she shook her head. No, what was Faradon doing? He must know that the priesthood would never risk both twins in space. She said this. Is it the priesthood or the Lady Alia? he asked, noting that her thoughts had gone where he had wanted. He found exhilaration in his new importance, the mind games available in political plotting. It had been a long time since his mother's mind had interested him. She was too easily manoeuvred. You think Alia wants power for herself? Winsishia asked. He looked away from her. Of course, Alia wanted the power for herself. All of the reports from that accursed planet agreed on this. His thoughts took off on a new course. I've been reading about their planetologist, he said. There has to be a clue to the sandworms and the haploids in there somewhere. If only leave that to others now, she said, beginning to lose patience with him. Is this all you have to say about the things we've done for you? You didn't do them for me, he said. What? You did it for House Carino, he said, and your House Carino right now. I've not been invested. You have responsibilities, she said. What about all of the people who depend upon you? As if her words put the burden upon him, he felt the weight of all those hopes and dreams which followed House Carino. Yes, he said, I understand about them, but I find some of the things done in my name distasteful. Dis how can you say such a thing? We do what any great house would do in promoting its own fortunes. Do you? I think you've been a bit gross. No, don't interrupt me. If I'm to be an emperor, then you'd better learn how to listen to me. Do you think I cannot read between the lines? How were those tigers trained? She remained speechless at this cutting demonstration of his perceptive abilities. I see, he said. Well, I'll keep Tiek because I know you let him into this. He's a good officer under most circumstances, but he'll fight for his own principles only in a friendly arena. His principles? The difference between a good officer and a poor one is strength of character and about five heartbeats, he said. He has to stick by his principles wherever they're challenged. The tigers were necessary, she said. I'll believe that if they succeed he said. But I will not condone what had to be done in training them. Don't protest. It's obvious. They were conditioned. You said it yourself. What are you going to do? she asked. I'm going to wait and see, he said. Perhaps I'll become emperor. She put a hand to her breast, sighed. For a few moments there, he'd terrified her. She'd almost believed he would denounce her. Principles. 
But he was committed now. She could see that. Faridon got up, went to the door, and rang for his mother's attendance. He looked back. We are through, aren't we? Yes. She raised a hand as he started to leave. Where are you going? To the library. I've become fascinated lately by Corino history. He left her then, sensing how he carried his new commitment with him. Damn her. But he knew he was committed, and he recognized that there was a deep emotional difference between history as recorded on sugar and read at leisure, a deep difference between that kind of history and the history which one lived. This new living history, which he felt gathering around him, possessed a sense of plunging into an irreversible future. Faridun could feel himself driven now by the desires of all those whose fortunes rode with him. He found it strange that he could not pin down his own desires in this. It is said of Muad'Dib that once, when he saw a weed trying to grow between two rocks, he moved one of the rocks. Later, when the weed was seen to be flourishing, he covered it with the remaining rock. That was its fate, he explained. The commentaries. Now! Ganima shouted. Leto, two steps ahead of her in reaching the narrow cut in the rocks, did not hesitate. He dove into the slit, crawled forward until darkness enfolded him. He heard Ganima drop behind him, a sudden stillness, and her voice, not hurrying or fearful. I'm stuck. He stood up, knowing this would bring his head within reach of questing claws, reversed himself in the narrow passage, crept back until he felt Ganima's outstretched hand. It's my robe she said. It's caught. He heard rocks falling directly below them, pulled on her hand, but felt only a small gain. There was panting below them, a growl. Leto tensed himself, wedging his hips against the rock, heaved on Ganima's arm. Cloth ripped, and he felt her jerk toward him. She hissed, and he knew she felt pain, but he pulled once more, harder. She came farther into the hole, then all the way, dropping beside him. They were too close to the end of the cut, though. He turned, dropped to all fours, scrambled deeper. Ganima pulled herself along behind him. There was a panting intensity to her movements which told him she'd been hurt. He came to the end of the opening, rolled over, and peered upward out the narrow gap of their sanctuary. The opening was about two meters above him, filled with stars. Something large obscured the stars. A rumbling growl filled the air around the twins. It was deep, menacing, an ancient sound, hunter speaking to its prey. How badly are you hurt? Leto asked, keeping his voice even. She matched him, tone for tone. One of them clawed me, breached my still suit along the left leg. I'm bleeding. How bad? Vain, I can stop it. Use pressure, he said. Don't move. I'll take care of our friends. Careful, she said. They're bigger than I expected. Leto unsheathed his Chris knife, reached up with it. He knew the tiger would be questing downward, claws raking the narrow passage where its body could not go. Slowly, slowly he extended the knife. Abruptly something struck the top of the blade. He felt the blow all along his arm, almost lost his grip on the knife. Blood gushed along his hand, spattered his face, and there came an immediate scream which deafened him. 
The stars became visible. Something threshed and flung itself down the rocks toward the sand in a violent caterwauling. Once more the stars were obscured, and he heard the hunters growl. The second tiger had moved into place, unmindful of its companion's fate. They're persistent, Leto said. You got one for sure, Ganema said. Listen. The screams and thrashing convulsions below them were growing fainter. The second tiger remained, though, a curtain against the stars. Leto sheathed his blade, touched Ganema's arm. Give me your knife. I want a fresh tip to make sure of this one. Do you think they'll have a third one in reserve? she asked. Not likely. Laser tigers hunt in pairs. Just as we do, she said. As we do, he agreed. He felt the handle of her Chris knife slip into his palm, gripped it tightly. Once more he began that careful upward questing. The blade encountered only empty air, even when he reached into a level dangerous to his body. He withdrew, pondering this. Can't you find it? It's not behaving the way the other one did. It's still there. Smell it? He swallowed in a dry throat. A fetid breath, moist with the musky smell of the cat, assaulted his nostrils. The stars were still blocked from view. Nothing could be heard of the first cat. The Chris knife's poison had completed its work. I think I'm going to have to stand up, he said. No. It has to be teased into reach of the knife. Yes, but we agreed that if one of us could avoid being wounded, and you're wounded, so you're the one going back, he said. But if you're badly injured, I won't be able to leave you, she said. Do you have a better idea? Give me back my knife. But your leg, I can stand on the good one. That thing could take your head off with one sweep. Maybe the mauler, if there's anyone out there to hear, they'll know we came prepared for... I don't like your taking this risk he said. Whoever's out there mustn't learn we have maulers, not yet. She touched his arm. I'll be careful. Keep my head down. As he remained silent, she said, You know I'm the one who has to do this. Give me back my knife. Reluctantly, he quested with his free hand, found her hand, and returned the knife. It was the logical thing to do, but logic warred with every emotion in him. He felt Ganima pull away, heard the sandy rasping of her robe against the rock. She gasped, and he knew she must be standing. Be very careful, he thought, and he almost pulled her back to insist they use a mauler pistol. But that could warn anyone out there that they had such weapons. Worse, it could drive the tiger out of reach, and they'd be trapped in here with a wounded tiger waiting for them in some unknown place out on those rocks. Ganima took a deep breath braced her back against one wall of the cleft. I must be quick, she thought. She reached upward with a knife point. Her left leg throbbed where the claws had raked it. She felt the crusting of blood against her skin there and the warmth of a new flow. Very quick. She sank her senses into the calm preparation for crisis which the Bene Gesserit way provided, put pain and all other distractions out of her awareness. The cat must reach down. Slowly she passed the blade along the opening. Where was the damned animal? Once more she raked the air. Nothing. The tiger would have to be lured into attack. Carefully she probed with her sense of smell. Warm breath came from her left. She poised herself, drew in a deep breath, screamed. Takwa! 
It was the old Fremen battle cry, its meaning found in the most ancient legends, the price of freedom. With the cry, she tipped the blade and stabbed along the cleft's dark opening. Claws found her elbow before the knife touched flesh, and she had time only to tip her wrist toward the pain before agony raked her arm from elbow to wrist. Through the pain, she felt the poison tip sink into the tiger. The blade was wrenched from her numb fingers, but again the narrow gap of the cleft lay open to the stars, and the wailing voice of a dying cat filled the night. They followed it by its death throes, a thrashing passage down the rocks. Presently, the death silence came. It got my arm, Ganima said, trying to bind a loose fold of her robe around the wound. Badly? I think so. I can't feel my hand. Let me get a light, and not until we get under cover. I'll hurry. She heard him twisting to reach his frem kit, felt the dark slickness of a night shield as it was slipped over her head, tucked in behind her. He didn't bother to make it moisture tight. My knife's on this side, she said. I can feel the handle with my knee. Leave it for now. He ignited a single small globe. The brilliance of it made her blink. Leto put the globe on the sandy floor at one side, gasped as he saw her arm. One claw had opened a long, gaping wound which twisted from the elbow along the back of her arm almost to the wrist. The wound described the way she had rotated her arm to present the knife tip to the tiger's paw. Ganima glanced once at the wound, closed her eyes, and began reciting the litany against fear. Leto found himself sharing her need but put aside the clamor of his own emotions while he set about binding up the wound. It had to be done carefully to stop the flow of blood while retaining the appearance of a clumsy job which Ganima might have done by herself. He made her tie off the knot with her free hand, holding one end of the bandage in her teeth. Now let's look at the leg, he said. She twisted around to present the other wound. It was not as bad, two shallow claw cuts along the calf. They had bled freely into the stillsuit, however. He cleaned it up as best he could, bound the wound beneath the stillsuit. He sealed the suit over the bandage. I got sand in it, he said. Have it treated as soon as you get back. Sand in our wounds, she said. That's an old story for Fremen. He managed a smile, sat back. Ganima took a deep breath. We've pulled it off. Not yet she swallowed, fighting to recover from the aftermath of shock. Her face appeared pale in the light of the glow globe, and she thought, yes, we must move fast now. Whoever controlled those tigers could be out there right now. Plato, staring at his sister, felt a sudden wrenching sense of loss. It was a deep pain which shot through his breast. He and Ganima must separate now. For all of those years, since birth, they had been as one person. But their plan demanded now that they undergo a metamorphosis, going their separate ways into uniqueness, where the sharing of daily experiences would never again unite them as they once had been united. He retreated into the necessarily mundane. Here's my frame kit. I took the bandages from it. Someone may look. Yes, she exchanged kits with him. Someone out there has a transmitter for those cats, he said. Most likely he'll be waiting near the canard to make certain of us. She touched her mauler pistol where it sat atop the frem kit, picked it up and thrust it into the sash beneath her robe. My robe's torn. Yes. Searchers may get here soon, he said, 
They may have a traitor among them. Best you slip back alone. Get Hara to hide you. I'll, I'll start the search for the traitor as soon as I get back, she said. She peered into her brother's face, sharing his painful knowledge that from this point on, they would accumulate a store of differences. Never again would they be as one, sharing knowledge which no one else could understand. I'll go to Jakarutu, he said. Fondak, she said. He nodded his agreement. Jakarutu, Fondak. They had to be the same place. It was the only way the legendary place could have been hidden. Smugglers had done it, of course. How easy for them to convert one label into another, acting under the cover of the unspoken convention by which they were allowed to exist. The ruling family of a planet must always have a back door for escape in extremis, and a small share in smuggling profits kept the channels open. In Fondak, Jakarutu, the smugglers had taken over a completely operative siege untroubled by a resident population, and they had hidden Jakarutu right out in the open, secure in the taboo which kept Fremen from it. No Fremen will think to search for me in such a place, he said. They'll inquire among the smugglers, of course, but... We'll do as we agreed, she said. It's just... I know. Hearing his own voice, Leto realized they were drawing out these last moments of sameness. A wry grin touched his mouth, adding years to his appearance. Ganima realized she was seeing him through a veil of time, looking at an older Leto. Tears burned her eyes. You needn't give water to the dead just yet, he said, brushing a finger against the dampness of her cheeks. I'll go out far enough that no one will hear and I'll call a worm. He indicated the collapsed maker hooks strapped to the outside of his frem kit. I'll be at Jakarutu before dawn two days from now. Right swiftly, my old friend, she whispered. I'll come back to you, my only friend, he said. Remember to be careful at the canat. Choose a good worm, she said, giving him the Fremen words of parting. Her left hand extinguished the glow globe, and the night seal rustled as she pulled it aside, folded it, and tucked it into her kit. She felt him go, hearing only the softest of sounds quickly fading into silence as he crept down the rocks into the desert. Ganima steeled herself then for what she had to do. Leto must be dead to her. She had to make herself believe it. There could be no Jakarutu in her mind, no brother out there seeking a place lost in Fremen mythology. From this point onward, she could not think of Leto as alive. She must condition herself to react out of a total belief that her brother was dead, killed here by laser tigers. Not many humans could fool a truth, sir, but she knew that she could do it, might have to do it. The multi-lives she and Leto shared had taught them the way, a hypnotic process old in Sheba's time, although she might be the only human alive who could recall Sheba as a reality. The deep compulsion had been designed with care, and for a long time after Leto had gone, Ganima reworked her self-awareness, building the lonely sister, the surviving twin, until it was a believable totality. As she did this, she found the inner world becoming silent blanked away from intrusion into her consciousness. It was a side effect she had not expected. If only Leto could have lived to learn this, she thought, and she did not find the thought a paradox. Standing, she peered down at the desert where the tiger had taken Leto. 
There was a sound growing in the sand out there, a familiar sound to Fremen, the passage of a worm. Rare as they had become in these parts, a worm still came. Perhaps the first cat's death throes. Yes, Leto had killed one cat before the other one got him. It was oddly symbolic that a worm should come. So deep was her compulsion that she saw three dark spots far down on the sand, the two tigers and Leto. Then the worm came, and there was only sand, with its surface broken into new waves by the passage of Shai Hulud. It had not been a very large worm, but large enough. And her compulsion did not permit her to see a small figure riding on the ringed back. Fighting her grief, Ganima sealed her frem kit, crept cautiously from her hiding place. Hand on her Mola pistol, she scanned the area. No sign of a human with a transmitter. She worked her way up the rocks and across to the far side, creeping through moon shadows, waiting and waiting to be sure no assassin lurked in her path. Across the open space, she could see torches at Tabur, the wavering activity of a search. A dark patch moved across the sand toward the attendant. She chose her path to run far to the north of the approaching party, went down to the sand and moved into the dune shadows. Careful to make her steps fall in a broken rhythm which would not attract a worm, she set out into the lonely distance which separated Tabur from the place where Leto had died. She would have to be careful at the Kanat, she knew. Nothing must prevent her from telling how her brother had perished, saving her from the tigers. Governments, if they endure, always tend increasingly toward aristocratic forms. No government in history has been known to evade this pattern. And as the aristocracy develops, government tends more and more to act exclusively in the interests of the ruling class, whether that class be hereditary royalty, oligarchs of financial empires, or entrenched bureaucracy. Politics as Repeat Phenomenon Bene Gesserit Training Manual Why does he make us this offer? Faridun asked. That's most essential. He and the Bashar Tiekanik stood in the lounge of Faridun's private quarters, when Zishia sat at one side on a low blue divan, almost as audience rather than participant. She knew her position and resented it, but Faridun had undergone a terrifying change since that morning when she'd revealed their plots to him. It was late afternoon at Carino Castle, and the low light accented the quiet comfort of this lounge, a room lined with actual books reproduced in plastino, with shelves revealing a hoard of player spools, data blocks, shigawa reels, mnemonic amplifiers. There were signs all around that this room was much used, worn places on the books, bright metal on the amplifiers, frayed corners on the data blocks. There was only the one divan, but many chairs, all of them sensiform floaters designed for unobtrusive comfort. Faridun stood with his back to a window. He wore a plain Sarduka uniform in grey and black, with only the golden lion-claw symbols on the wings of his collar as decoration. He had chosen to receive the Bashar and his mother in this room, hoping to create an atmosphere of more relaxed communication than could be achieved in a more formal setting but Tiekanik's constant, my lord this, and my lady that, kept them at a distance. My lord, 
I don't think he'd make this offer were he unable to deliver, Jekanik said. Of course not, Wensitia intruded. Faridun merely glanced at his mother to silence her, asked, We've put no pressure on Idaho, made no attempt to seek delivery on the preacher's promise? None, Diakonik said. Then why does Duncan Idaho, noted all of his life for his fanatic loyalty to the Atreides, offer now to deliver the Lady Jessica into our hands? These rumors of trouble on Arrakis, Wensishia ventured. Unconfirmed, Faridun said. Is it possible that the preacher has precipitated this? Possible, Tiekanik said, but I fail to see a motive. He speaks of seeking asylum for her, Faridun said. That might follow if those rumors... Precisely, his mother said. Or it could be a ruse of some sort, Tiekanik said. We can make several assumptions and explore them, Faridun said. What if Idaho has fallen into disfavor with his lady Alia? That might explain matters, Wensishia said, but he... No word yet from the smugglers, Faridun interrupted. Why can't we... Transmission is always slow in this season, Tiekanik said. And the needs of security... Yes, of course, but still... Faridun shook his head. I don't like our assumption. Don't be too quick to abandon it, Wensishia said. All of those stories about Alia and that priest, whatever his name is, Javid, Faridun said, but the man's obviously, he's been a valuable source of information for us, Wensishia said. I was about to say that he's obviously a double agent, Faridun said. How could he indict himself in this? He's not to be trusted. There are too many signs. I fail to see them, she said. He was suddenly angry with her denseness. Take my word for it, mother, the signs are there. I'll explain later. I'm afraid I must agree, Tiekanik said. When Sishia lapsed into hurt silence, how dared they push her out of council like this, as though she were some light-headed fancy woman with no... We mustn't forget that Idaho was once a Gola, Faridun said. The Tlelaxu. He glanced sidelong at Tiekanik. That avenue will be explored. Tiekanik said. He found himself admiring the way Faridun's mind worked, alert, questing, sharp. Yes, the Tlelaxu, in restoring life to Idaho, might have planted a powerful barb in him for their own use. But I fail to apprehend a Tlelaxu motive, Faridun said. An investment in our fortunes, Tiekanik said. A small insurance for future favors? Large investment, I'd call it. Faridun said. Dangerous, Wensishia said. Faridun had to agree with her. The Lady Jessica's capabilities were notorious in the Empire. After all, she'd been the one who'd trained Muad'Dib. If it became known that we hold her, Faridun said. Yes, that'd be a two-edged sword, Tiekanik said. But it need not be known. Let us assume, Faridun said, that we accept this offer. What's her value? Can we exchange her for something of greater importance? Not openly, Wensishia said. Of course not, he peered expectantly at Tiekanik. That remains to be seen, Tiekanik said. Faridun nodded. Yes, I think if we accept, we should consider the Lady Jessica as money banked for indeterminate use. After all, 
Wealth doesn't necessarily have to be spent on any particular thing. It's just potentially useful. She'd be a very dangerous captive, Tekanik said. There is that to consider, indeed, Faridun said. I'm told that her Bene Gesserit ways permit her to manipulate a person just by the subtle employment of her voice. Or her body, Wenzishia said. Irulan once divulged to me some of the things she'd learned. She was showing off at the time, and I saw no demonstrations. Still, the evidence is pretty conclusive that Bene Gesserits have their ways of achieving their ends. Were you suggesting, Faridun asked, that she might seduce me? Wenzishia merely shrugged. I'd say she's a little old for that, wouldn't you? Faridun asked. With a Bene Gesserit, nothing's certain, Tekanik said. Faridun experienced a shiver of excitement tinged with fear. Playing this game to restore House of Carino's high seat of power both attracted and repelled him. How attractive it remained, the urge to retire from this game into his preferred pursuits, historical research and learning the manifest duties for ruling here on Seleucia Secundus. The restoration of his Sardauka forces was a task in itself, and for that job, Tiek was still a good tool. One planet was, after all, an enormous responsibility, but the Empire was an even greater responsibility, far more attractive as an instrument of power. And the more he read about Muad'Dib, Paul Atreides, the more fascinated Faradun became with the uses of power. As titular head of House Corino, heir of Shaddam IV, what a great achievement it would be to restore his line to the Lion Throne. He wanted that. He wanted it. Faridun had found that, by repeating this enticing litany to himself several times, he could overcome momentary doubts. Tjekanik was speaking. And of course, the Bene Gesserit teach that peace encourages aggressions, thus igniting war. The paradox of... How did we get on this subject? Faridun asked, bringing his attention back from the arena of speculation. Why? Wenzishia said sweetly, having noted the wool-gathering expression on her son's face. I merely asked if Tiek was familiar with the driving philosophy behind the sisterhood. Philosophy should be approached with irreverence, Faradin said, turning to face Tiekanik. In regard to Idaho's offer, I think we should inquire further. When we think we know something, that's precisely the moment when we should look deeper into the thing. It will be done, Tiekanik said. He liked this cautious streak in Faridun, but hoped it did not extend to those military decisions which required speed and precision. With seeming irrelevancy, Faridun asked, Do you know what I find most interesting about the history of Arrakis? It was the custom in primitive times for Fremen to kill on sight anyone not clad in a still suit with its easily visible and characteristic hood. What is your fascination with the still suit? Tiekanik asked. So you've noticed, eh? How could we not notice? Wincishia asked. Faradun sent an irritated glance at his mother. Why did she interrupt like that? He returned his attention to Tiekanik. The still suit is the key to that planet's character, Tiek. It's the hallmark of Dune. People tend to focus on the physical characteristics. The still suit conserves body moisture, recycles it, and makes it possible to exist on such a planet. You know, the Fremen custom was to have one still suit for each member of a family, 
except for food gatherers. They had spares. But please note, both of you, he moved to include his mother in this, how garments which appear to be still suits but really aren't have become high fashion throughout the empire. It's such a dominant characteristics for humans to copy the conqueror. Do you really find such information valuable? Tiekanik asked, his tone puzzled. Tiek, Tiek, without such information, one cannot govern. I said the still suit was the key to their character, and it is. It's a conservative thing. The mistakes they make will be conservative mistakes. Tekanik glanced at Wensishia, who was staring at her son with a worried frown. This characteristic of Faradun's both attracted and worried the Basha. It was so unlike old Shaddam. Now there had been an essential Sadhuka, a military killer with few inhibitions, but Shaddam had fallen to the Atreides under that damnable Paul. Indeed, what he read of Paul Atreides revealed just such characteristics as Faradun now displayed. It was possible that Faradun might hesitate less than the Atreides over brutal necessities, but that was his Sadhuka training. Many have governed without using this kind of information, Tjekanik said. Faradun merely stared at him for a moment, then governed and failed. Tjekanik's mouth drew into a stiff line at this obvious allusion to Shaddam's failure. That had been a Sadhuka failure, too, and no Sadhuka could recall it easily. Having made his point, Faradun said, You see, Tjek, the influence of a planet upon the mass unconscious of its inhabitants has never been fully appreciated. To defeat the Atreides, we must understand not only Caladan, but Arrakis. One planet soft, and the other a training ground for hard decisions. That was a unique event, that marriage of Atreides and Fremen. We must know how it worked, or we won't be able to match it, let alone defeat it. What does this have to do with Idaho's offer? Wenzishia demanded. Faradun glanced pityingly down at his mother. We begin their defeat by the kinds of stress we introduce into their society. That's a very powerful tool, stress. And the lack of it is important, too. Did you not mark how the Atreides helped things grow soft and easy here? Tiekanik allowed himself a curt nod of agreement. That was a good point. The Sadukar could not be permitted to grow too soft. This offer from Idaho still bothered him, though. He said, Perhaps it'd be best to reject the offer. Not yet, Winsishia said. We've a spectrum of choices open to us. Our task is to identify as much of the spectrum as we can. My son is right. We need more information. Faradun stared at her, measuring her intent as well as the surface meaning of her words. But will we know when we've passed the point of no alternate choice? he asked. A sour chuckle came from Tiekanik. If you ask me, we're long past the point of no return. Faradun tipped his head back to laugh aloud. But we still have alternate choices, Tiek. When we come to the end of our rope, that's an important place to recognize. In this age, when the means of human transport include devices which can span the deeps of space in trans-time and other devices which can carry men swiftly over virtually impassable planetary surfaces, it seems odd to think of attempting long journeys afoot. 
Yet this remains a primary means of travel on Arrakis, a fact attributed partly to preference and partly to the brutal treatment which this planet reserves for anything mechanical. In the strictures of Arrakis, human flesh remains the most durable and reliable resource for the Hajj. Perhaps it is the implicit awareness of this fact which makes Arrakis the ultimate mirror of the soul. Handbook of the Hajj Slowly, cautiously, Ganima made her way back to Tabor, holding herself to the deepest shadows of the dunes, crouching in stillness as the search party passed to the south of her. Terrible awareness gripped her, the worm which had taken the tiger's and Leto's body, the dangers ahead. He was gone. Her twin was gone. She put aside all tears and nurtured her rage. In this, she was pure Fremen. And she knew this, reveling in it. She understood what was said about Fremen. They were not supposed to have a conscience, having lost it in a burning for revenge against those who had driven them from planet to planet in the long wandering. That was foolishness, of course. Only the rawest primitive had no conscience. Fremen possessed a highly evolved conscience which centered on their own welfare as a people. It was only to outsiders that they seemed brutish, just as outsiders appeared brutish to Fremen. Every Fremen knew very well that he could do a brutal thing and feel no guilt. Fremen did not feel guilt for the same things that aroused such feelings in others. Their rituals provided a freedom from guilts which might otherwise have destroyed them. They knew in their deepest awareness that any transgression could be ascribed at least in part to well-recognized extenuating circumstances, the failure of authority, or a natural bad tendency shared by all humans, or to bad luck, which any sentient creature should be able to identify as a collision between mortal flesh and the outer chaos of the universe. In this context, Ganima felt herself to be the pure Fremen, a carefully prepared extension of tribal brutality. She needed only a target, and that, obviously, was House Carino. She longed to see Faradun's blood spilled on the ground at her feet. No enemy awaited her at the Kanat. Even the search parties had gone elsewhere. She crossed the water on an earth bridge, crept through tall grass toward the covered exit of the Siege. Abruptly, light flared ahead of her, and Ganima threw herself flat on the ground. She peered out through stalks of giant alfalfa, a woman had entered the covered passage from the outside and someone had remembered to prepare that passage in the way any Siech entrance should be prepared. In troubled times, one greeted anyone entering the Siech with bright light, temporarily blinding the newcomer and giving guards time to decide. But such a greeting was never meant to be broadcast out over the desert. The light visible here meant the outer seals had been left aside. Ganima felt a tug of bitterness at this betrayal of Siech security, this flowing light. The ways of the lace-shirt Fremen were to be found everywhere. The light continued to throw its fan over the ground at the cliff base. A young girl ran out of the orchard's darkness into the light, something fearful about her movements. Ganima could see the bright circle of a glow-globe within the passage, a halo of insects around it. The light illuminated two dark shadows in the passage, a man and the girl. They were holding hands as they stared into each other's eyes. Ganima sensed something wrong about the man and woman there. 
They were not just two lovers, stealing a moment from the search. The light was suspended above and beyond them in the passage. The two talked against a glowing arch, throwing their shadows into the outer night where anyone could be a watcher of their movements. Now and again, the man would free a hand. The hand would come gesturing into the light, a sharp and furtive movement which, once completed, returned to the shadows. The lonely sounds of night creatures filled the darkness around Ganema, but she screened out such distractions. What was it about those two? The man's motions were so static, so careful. He turned. Reflection from the woman's robe illuminated him, exposing a raw, red face with a large, blotchy nose. Ganima drew in a deep, silent breath of recognition. Palimbasha. He was a grandson of a Naib whose sons had fallen in Atreides' service. The face, and another thing revealed by the open swinging of his robe as he turned, drew for Ganima a complete picture. He wore a belt beneath the robe, and attached to the belt was a box which glistened with keys and dials. It was an instrument of the Tleilaxu, or the Ixians for certain, and it had to be the transmitter which had released the tigers. Palimbasha. This meant that another Naibate family had gone over to House Corino. Who was the woman then? No matter. She was someone being used by Palimbasha. Unbidden, a Bene Gesserit thought came into Ganima's mind. Each planet has its own period, and each life likewise. She recalled Palimbasha well, watching him there with that woman, seeing the transmitter, the furtive movements. Palimbasha taught in the C.H. school, mathematics. The man was a mathematical bore. He had attempted to explain Muad'Dib through mathematics until censured by the priesthood. He was a mind-slaver, and his enslaving process could be understood with extreme simplicity. He transferred technical knowledge without a transfer of values. I should have suspected him earlier, she thought. The signs were all there. Then, with an acid tightening of her stomach, He killed my brother! She forced herself to calmness. Palimbasha would kill her, too, if she tried to pass him there in the covered passage. Now she understood the reason for this unfremen display of light, this betrayal of the hidden entrance. They were watching by that light to see if either of their victims had escaped. It must be a terrible time of waiting for them, not knowing. And now that Ganima had seen the transmitter, she could explain certain of the hand motions. Palimbasha was depressing one of the transmitter's keys frequently, an angry gesture. The presence of this pair said much to Ganima. Likely every way into the Siech carried a similar watcher in its depths. She scratched her nose where dust tickled it. Her wounded leg still throbbed and the knife arm ached when it didn't burn. The fingers remained numb. Should it come to a knife, she would have to use the blade in her left hand. Ganima thought of using the Mauler pistol, but its characteristic sound would be sure to attract unwanted attention. Some other way would have to be found. Palimbasha turned away from the entrance once more. He was a dark object against the light. The woman turned her attention to the outer night while she talked. There was a trained alertness about the woman, a sense that she knew how to look into the shadows using the edges of her eyes. She was more than just a useful tool then. She was part of the deeper conspiracy. 
Ganima recalled now that Palimbasha aspired to be a Kaimakam, a political governor under the regency. He would be part of a larger plan, that was clear. There would be many others with him, even here in Tabor. Ganima examined the edges of the problem thus exposed, probed into it. If she could take one of these guardians alive, many others would be forfeit. The whiffle of a small animal drinking at the canat behind her caught Ganima's awareness, natural sounds and natural things. Her memory searched through a strange, silent barrier in her mind, found a priestess of Jauf, captured in Assyria by Sennacherib. The memories of that priestess told Ganima what would have to be done here. Palimbasha and his woman there were mere children, wayward and dangerous. They knew nothing of Jauf, knew not even the name of the planet where Sennacherib and the priestess had faded into dust. The thing which was about to happen to the pair of conspirators, if it were explained to them, could only be explained in terms of beginning here. And ending here. Rolling onto her side, Ganima freed her fremkit, slipped the sand snorkel from its bindings. She uncapped the sand snorkel, removed the long filter within it. Now she had an open tube. She selected a needle from the repair pack, unsheathed her Chris knife, and inserted the needle into the poison hollow at the knife's tip, that place where once a sandworm's nerve had fitted. Her injured arm made the work difficult. She moved carefully and slowly, handling the poisoned needle with caution while she took a wad of spice fibre from its chamber in the kit. The needle's shank fitted tightly into the fibre wad, forming a missile which went tightly into the tube of the sand snorkel. Holding the weapon flat, Ganima wormed her way closer to the light, moving slowly to cause minimal disturbance in the alfalfa. As she moved, she studied the insects around the light. Yes, there were pumiflies in that fluttering mob. They were notorious biters of human flesh. The poisoned dart might go unnoticed, swatted aside as a biting fly. A decision remained. Which one of those two to take, the man or the woman? Mouris. The name came unbidden into Ganima's mind. That was the woman's name. It recalled things said about her. She was one of those who fluttered around Palimbasha as the insects fluttered around the light. She was easily swayed a weak one. Very well. Palimbasha had chosen the wrong companion for this night. Ganima put the tube to her mouth and, with the memory of the priestess of Jauf clearly in her awareness, she sighted carefully, expelled her breath in one strong surge. Palimbasha batted at his cheek, drew away a hand with a speck of blood on it. The needle was nowhere to be seen, flicked away by the motion of his own hand. The woman said something soothing and Palimbasha laughed. As he laughed, his legs began to give way beneath him. He sagged against the woman, who tried to support him. She was still staggering with a dead weight when Ganima came up beside her and pressed the point of an unsheathed Chris knife against her waist. In a conversational tone, Ganima said, Make no sudden moves, Maurice. My knife is poisoned. You may let go of Palimbasha now. He is dead. In all major socializing forces, you will find an underlying movement to gain and maintain power through the use of words. From witch doctor to priest to bureaucrat, it is all the same. 
A governed populace must be conditioned to accept power words as actual things, to confuse the symbolized system with the tangible universe. In the maintenance of such a power structure, certain symbols are kept out of the reach of common understanding. Symbols such as those dealing with economic manipulation or those which define the local interpretation of sanity. Symbol secrecy of this form leads to the development of fragmented sub-languages, each being a signal that its users are accumulating some form of power. With this insight into a power process, our imperial security force must be ever alert to the formation of sub-languages. Lecture to the Arakeen War College by the Princess Irulan It is perhaps unnecessary to tell you, Faridun said, but to avoid any errors, I'll announce that a mute has been stationed with orders to kill you both, should I show signs of succumbing to witchery. He did not expect to see any effect from these words. Both the Lady Jessica and Idaho gratified his expectations. Faridun had chosen with care the setting for this first examination of the pair, Shaddam's old state audience chamber. What it lacked in grandeur it made up for with exotic appointments, Outside it was a winter afternoon, but the windowless chamber's lighting simulated a timeless summer day bathed in golden light from artfully scattered glow globes of the purest Ixian crystal. The news from Arrakis filled Faradun with quiet elation. Leto, the male twin, was dead, killed by an assassin tiger. Ganima, the surviving sister, was in the custody of her aunt and reputedly was a hostage. The full report did much to explain the presence of Idaho and the Lady Jessica. Sanctuary was what they wanted. Corino's spies reported an uneasy truce on Arrakis. Alia had agreed to submit herself to a test called the Trial of Possession, the purpose of which had not been fully explained. However, no date had been set for this trial, and two Corino's spies believed it might never take place. This much was certain, though, there had been fighting between Desert Fremen and the Imperial Military Fremen, an abortive civil war which had brought government to a temporary standstill. Stilgar's holdings were now neutral ground, designated after an exchange of hostages. Ganema evidently had been considered one of these hostages, although the working of this remained unclear. Jessica and Idaho had been brought to the audience securely bound in suspenser chairs, both were held down by deadly, thin strands of sugar wire which would cut flesh at the slightest struggle. Two Sardica troopers had brought them, checked the bindings, and had gone away silently. The warning had indeed been unnecessary. Jessica had seen the armed mute standing against the wall at her right, an old but efficient projectile weapon in his hand. She allowed her gaze to roam over the room's exotic inlays, the broad leaves of the rare iron bush had been set with eye pearls and interlaced to form the center crescent of the domed ceiling. The floor beneath her was alternate blocks of diamond wood and kabutsu shell arranged within rectangular borders of pasake bones. These had been set on end, laser-cut and polished. Selected hard materials decorated the walls in stress-woven patterns which outlined the four positions of the lion symbol claimed by the descendants of the late Shaddam IV. The lions were executed in wild gold. Faradun had chosen to receive the captives while standing. He wore uniform shorts and a light golden jacket of elf silk open at the throat. His only decoration was the princely starburst of his royal family worn at the left breast. 
He was attended by the Basha Tiekanik, wearing sardica-dressed tans and heavy boots, an ornate laze gun carried in a front holster at the belt buckle. Tiekanik, whose heavy visage was known to Jessica from Bene Gesserit reports, stood three paces to the left and slightly behind Faradun. A single throne of dark wood sat on the floor near the wall directly behind the two. Now, Faradun said, addressing Jessica, do you have anything to say? I would inquire why we are bound thus, Jessica said, indicating the Shigawa. We have only just now received reports from Arrakis to explain your presence here, Faradun said. Perhaps I'll have you released presently, he smiled. If you... He broke off as his mother entered by the state doors behind the captives. When Sishia hurried past Jessica and Idaho without a glance, presented a small message cube to Faradun, actuated it. He studied the glowing face, glancing occasionally at Jessica, back to the cube. The glowing face went dark, and he returned the cube to his mother, indicating that she should show it to Tieknik. While she was doing this, he scowled at Jessica. Presently, when Sishia stationed herself at Faradun's right hand, the darkened cube in her hand partly concealed in a fold of her white gown, Jessica glanced to her right at Idaho, but he refused to meet her gaze. The Bene Gesserit are displeased with me, Faradun said. They believe I was responsible for the death of your grandson. Jessica held her face emotionless, thinking, So, Ganima's story is to be trusted, unless... She didn't like the suspected unknowns. Idaho closed his eyes, opened them to glance at Jessica. She continued to stare at Faradun. Idaho had told her about this Raja vision, but she'd seemed unworried. He didn't know how to catalogue her lack of emotion. She obviously knew something, though, that she wasn't revealing. This is the situation, Faradun said, and he proceeded to explain everything he'd learned about events on Arrakis, leaving out nothing. He concluded, Your granddaughter survives, but she's reportedly in the custody of the Lady Alia. This should gratify you. Did you kill my grandson? Jessica asked. Faradun answered truthfully. I did not. I recently learned of a plot, but it was not of my making. Jessica looked at Wensitia, saw the gloating expression on that heart-shaped face, thought, Her doing. The lioness schemes for her cub. This was a game the lioness might live to regret. Returning her attention to Faradun, Jessica said, But the sisterhood believes you killed him. Faradun turned to his mother. Show her the message. As Winsitia hesitated, he spoke with an edge of anger which Jessica noted for future use. I said show it to her. Face pale, Winsitia presented the message face of the cube to Jessica, activated it. Words flowed across the face, responding to Jessica's eye movements. Bene Gesserit Council on Wallach Nine files formal protest against House Corino in assassination of Leto Atreides II. Arguments and showing of evidence are assigned to Lanzarat International Security Commission. Neutral ground will be chosen, and names of judges will be submitted for approval by all parties. Your immediate response required. Sabit Rekush for the Lanzarat. When Sishia returned to her son's side. How do you intend to respond? Jessica asked. Winsitia said, Since my son has not yet been formally invested as head of House Corino, I will... Where are you going? 
This last was addressed to Faridun, who, as she spoke, turned and headed for a side door near the watchful mute. Faridun paused, half-turned. I'm going back to my books and the other pursuits which hold much more interest for me. How dare you? Winsishia demanded. A dark flush spread from her neck up across her cheeks. I'll dare quite a few things in my own name, Faridun said. You have made decisions in my name, decisions which I find extremely distasteful. Either I will make the decisions in my own name from this point on, or you can find yourself another heir for House Corino. Jessica passed her gaze swiftly across the participants in this confrontation, seeing the real anger in Faridun. The Bashar aide stood stiffly at attention, trying to make it appear that he had heard nothing. When Sishia hesitated on the brink of screaming rage, Faridun appeared perfectly willing to accept any outcome from his throw of the dice. Jessica rather admired his poise, seeing many things in this confrontation which could be of value to her. It seemed that the decision to send assassin tigers against her grandchildren had been made without Faridun's knowledge. There could be little doubt of his truthfulness in saying he'd learned of the plot after its inception. There was no mistaking the real anger in his eyes as he stood there, ready to accept any decision. Wenceshia took a deep, trembling breath. Then, Very well. The formal investiture will take place tomorrow. You may act in advance of it now. She looked at Tiagnik, who refused to meet her gaze. There'll be a screaming fight once mother and son get out of here, Jessica thought. But I do believe he has won. She allowed her thoughts to return then to the message from the Lanthrout. The sisterhood had judged their messengers with a finesse which did credit to Bene Gesserit planning. Hidden in the formal notice of protest was a message for Jessica's eyes. The fact of the message said the sisterhood's spies knew Jessica's situation and they'd gauged Faridun with a superb nicety to guess he'd show it to his captive. I'd like an answer to my question, Jessica said, addressing herself to Faridun as he returned to face her. I shall tell the Lanthrot that I had nothing to do with this assassination, Faridun said. I will add that I share the sisterhood's distaste for the manner of it, although I cannot be completely displeased at the outcome. My apologies for any grief this may have caused you. Fortune passes everywhere. Fortune passes everywhere, Jessica thought. That had been a favourite saying of her duke, and there'd been something in Faridun's manner which said he knew this. She forced herself to ignore the possibility that they'd really killed Leto. She had to assume that Ganima's fears for Leto had motivated a complete revelation of the twins' plan. The smugglers would put Gurney in position to meet Leto then, and the sisterhood's devices would be carried out. Leto had to be tested. He had to be. Without the testing, he was doomed as Aliyah was doomed, and Ganima. Well, that could be faced later. There was no way to send the pre-born before a reverend mother, Gaius Helen Mohayan. Jessica allowed herself a deep sigh. Sooner or later, she said, it'll occur to someone that you and my granddaughter could unite our two houses and heal old wounds. This has already been mentioned to me as a possibility, Faridun said, glancing briefly at his mother. My response was that I'd prefer to await the outcome of recent events on Arrakis. There's no need for a hasty decision. There's always the possibility that you've already played into my daughter's hands, Jessica said. Faridun stiffened, 
explain. Matters on Arrakis are not as they may seem to you, Jessica said. Alia plays her own game, Abomination's game. My granddaughter is in danger unless Alia can contrive a way to use her. You expect me to believe that you and your daughter oppose each other? That Atreides fights Atreides? Jessica looked at Wensitia, back to Faradun. Corino fights Corino. A wry smile moved Faradun's lips. Well taken. How would I have played into your daughter's hands? By becoming implicated in my grandson's death. By abducting me. Abduct? Don't trust this witch, Wensitia cautioned. I'll choose whom to trust, mother, Faradun said. Forgive me, Lady Jessica, but I don't understand this matter of abduction. I'd understood that you and your faithful retainer, who is Alia's husband, Jessica said. Faradun turned a measuring stare on Idaho, looked to the Basha. What think you, Tiak? The Basha apparently was having thoughts similar to those Jessica professed. He said, I like her reasoning. Caution. He's a golamentat, Faradun said. We could test him to the death and not find a certain answer. But it's a safe working assumption that we may have been tricked, Tiekanik said. Jessica knew the moment had come to make her move. Now, if Idaho's grief only kept him locked in the part he'd chosen. She disliked using him this way, but there were larger considerations. To begin with, Jessica said, I might announce publicly that I came here of my own free choice. Interesting, Faradun said. You'd have to trust me and grant me the complete freedom of Salusa Secundus, Jessica said. There could be no appearance that I spoke out of compulsion. No, Wensishia protested. Faradun ignored her. What reason would you give? That I'm the Sisterhood's plenipotentiary, sent here to take over your education. But the Sisterhood accuses... That would require a decisive action from you, Jessica said. Don't trust her, Wensishia said. With extreme politeness, Faridun glanced at her, said, If you interrupt me once more, I'll have Tiek remove you. He heard you consent to the formal investiture. That binds him to me now. She's a witch, I tell you. Wensishia looked to the mute against the side wall. Faridun hesitated, then, Tiek, what think you? Have I been witched? Not in my judgment. She... You've both been witched. Mother. His tone was flat and final. When Sishia clenched her fists, tried to speak, whirled, and fled the room. Addressing himself once more to Jessica, Faridun asked, Would the Bene Gesserit consent to this? They would. Faridun absorbed the implications of this, smiled tightly. What does the sisterhood want in all of this? Your marriage to my granddaughter. Idaho shot a questioning look at Jessica, made as though to speak, but remained silent. Jessica said, You were going to say something, Duncan? I was going to say that the Bene Gesserit want what they've always wanted, a universe which won't interfere with them. An obvious assumption, Faridun said, but I hardly see why you intrude with it. Idaho's eyebrows managed the shrug which the Shigawai would not permit his body. Disconcertingly, he smiled. Faradun saw the smile whirled to confront Idaho. I amuse you? 
This whole situation amuses me. Someone in your family has compromised the Spacing Guild by using them to carry instruments of assassination to Arrakis, instruments whose intent could not be concealed. You've offended the Bene Gesserit by killing a male they wanted for their breeding pro- You call me a liar, Gula? No, I believe you didn't know about the plot, but I thought the situation needed bringing into focus. Don't forget that he's a mentat, Jessica cautioned. My very thought, Faradun said. Once more he faced Jessica. Let us say that I free you and you make your announcement that still leaves the matter of your grandson's death. The mentat is correct. Was it your mother? Jessica asked. My lord, Tiekanik warned. It's all right, Tiek, Faridun waved a hand easily. And if I say it was my mother? Risking everything in the test of this internal break among the Corino, Jessica said, You must denounce her and banish her. My lord, Tiekanik said, there could be trickery within trickery here. Idaho said, and the Lady Jessica and I are the ones who've been tricked. Faridun's jaw hardened, and Jessica thought, Don't interfere, Duncan. Not now. But Idaho's words had sent her own Bene Gesserit abilities at logic into motion. He shocked her. She began to wonder if there were the possibility that she was being used in ways she didn't understand. Ganima and Leto. The preborn could draw upon countless inner experiences, a storehouse of advice far more extensive than the living Bene Gesserit depended upon. And there was that other question. Had her own sisterhood been completely candid with her, they still might not trust her. After all, she'd betrayed them once, to her duke. Faradun looked at Idaho with a puzzled frown. Mentat, I need to know what this preacher is to you. He arranged the passage here. I... We did not exchange ten words. Others acted for him. He could be... He could be Paul Atreides, but I don't have enough data for certainty. All I know for certain is that it was time for me to leave, and he had the means. You speak of being tricked, Faradun reminded him. Alia expects you to kill us quietly and conceal the evidence of it, Idaho said. Having rid her of the Lady Jessica, I'm no longer useful. And the Lady Jessica, having served her sisterhood's purpose, is no longer useful to them. Alia will be calling the Bene Gesserit to account, but they will win. Jessica closed her eyes in concentration. He was right. She could hear the mentat firmness in his voice, that deep sincerity of pronouncement. The pattern fell into place without a chink. She took two deep breaths and triggered the mnemonic trance, rolled the data through her mind, came out of the trance and opened her eyes. It was done while Faradun moved from in front of her to a position within half a step of Idaho, a space of no more than three steps. Say no more, Duncan, Jessica said, and she thought mournfully of how Leto had warned her against Bene Gesserit conditioning. Idaho, about to speak, closed his mouth. I command here, Faradun said. Continue, Mentat. Idaho remained silent. Faradun half turned to study Jessica. She stared at a point on the far wall, reviewing what Idaho and the trance had built. The Bene Gesserit hadn't abandoned the Atreides line, of course, but they wanted control of Aquizat's Haderach, and they'd invested too much in the long breeding program. 
They wanted the open clash between Atreides and Corino, a situation where they could step in as arbiters. And Duncan was right. They'd emerge with control of both Ganima and Faradun. It was the only compromise possible. The wonder was that Arlia hadn't seen it. Jessica swallowed past a tightness in her throat. Arlia. Abomination. Ganima was right to pity her. But who was left to pity Ganima? The sisterhood has promised to put you on the throne with Ganima as your mate, Jessica said. Faridun took a backward step. Did the witch read minds? They worked secretly and not through your mother, Jessica said. They told you I was not privy to their plan. Jessica read revelation in Faridun's face. How open he was. But it was true, the whole structure. Idaho had demonstrated masterful abilities as a mentat in seeing through to the fabric on the limited data available to him. So they played a double game and told you, Faridun said. They told me nothing of this, Jessica said. Duncan was correct. They tricked me. She nodded to herself. It had been a classic delaying action in the sisterhood's traditional pattern, a reasonable story easily accepted because it squared with what one might believe of their motives. But they wanted Jessica out of the way, a flawed sister who'd failed them once. Tierkenik moved to Faradun's side. My lord, these two are too dangerous to- Wait a bit, Tiak, Faradun said. There are wheels within wheels here. He faced Jessica. We've had reasons to believe that Alia might offer herself as my bride. Idaho gave an involuntary start, controlled himself. Blood began dripping from his left wrist where the sugar wire had cut. Jessica allowed herself a small, eye-widening response. She, who'd known the original Leto as lover, father of her children, confidant and friend, saw his trait of cold reasoning filtered now through the twistings of an abomination. Will you accept? Idaho asked. It is being considered. Duncan, I told you to be silent, Jessica said. She addressed Faradun. Her price was two inconsequential deaths, the two of us. We suspected treachery, Faradun said. Wasn't it your son who said, treachery breeds treachery? The sisterhood is out to control both Atreides and Carino, Jessica said. Isn't that obvious? We're toying now with the idea of accepting your offer, Lady Jessica, but Duncan Idaho shall be sent back to his loving wife. Pain is a function of nerves, Idaho reminded himself. Pain comes as light comes to the eyes. Effort comes from the muscles, not from nerves. It was an old mentat drill, and he completed it in the space of one breath, flexed his right wrist, and severed an artery against the sugar wire. Tierkenik leaped to the chair, hit its trip lock to release the bindings, shouted for medical aid. It was revealing that assistants came swarming at once through doors hidden in wall panels. There was always a bit of foolishness in Duncan, Jessica thought. Faradun studied Jessica a moment while the medics ministered to Idaho. I didn't say I was going to accept his alia. That's not why he cut his wrist, Jessica said. Oh? I thought he was simply removing himself. You're not that stupid, Jessica said. Stop pretending with me. He smiled. I'm well aware that Alia would destroy me, 
Not even the Bene Gesserit could expect me to accept her. Jessica bent a weighted stare upon Faradun. What was this young scion of House Corino? He didn't play the fool well. Again, she recalled Leto's words that she'd encounter an interesting student. And the preacher wanted this as well, Idaho said. She wished she'd met this preacher. Will you banish, Wensitia? Jessica asked. It seems a reasonable bargain, Faridun said. Jessica glanced at Idaho. The medics had finished with him. Less dangerous restraints held him in the floater chair. Mentats should beware of absolutes, she said. I'm tired, Idaho said. You've no idea how tired I am. When it's over-exploited, even loyalty wears out finally, Faridun said. Again, Jessica shot that measuring stare at him. Faridun, seeing this, thought, in time she'll know me for certain, and that could be valuable. A renegade Bene Gesserit of my own. It's the one thing her son had that I don't have. Let her get only a glimpse of me now. She can see the rest later. A fair exchange, Faridun said. I accept your offer on your terms. He signalled the mute against the wall with a complex flickering of fingers. The mute nodded. Faridun bent to the chair's controls, released Jessica. Tjekanik asked, My lord, are you sure? Isn't it what we discussed? Faridun asked. Yes, but... Faridun chuckled, addressed Jessica. Tjek suspects my sources, but one learns from books and reels only that certain things can be done. Actual learning requires that you do those things. Jessica mused on this as she lifted herself from the chair. Her mind returned to Faridun's hand signals. He had an Atreides-style battle language. It spoke of careful analysis. Someone here was consciously copying the Atreides. Of course, Jessica said. You'll want me to teach you as the Bene Gesserit are taught. Faridun beamed at her. The one offer I cannot resist, he said. The password was given to me by a man who died in the dungeons of Arakeen. You see, that is where I got this ring, in the shape of a tortoise. It was in the souk outside the city where I was hidden by the rebels. The password? Oh, that has been changed many times since then. It was persistence, and the countersign was tortoise. It got me out of there alive. That's why I bought this ring. A reminder. Tagir Mohandis. Conversations with a friend. Leto was far out on the sand when he heard the worm behind him, coming to his thumper there and the dusting of spice he'd spread around the dead tigers. There was a good omen for this beginning of their plan. Worms were scarce enough in these parts most times. The worm was not essential, but it helped. There would be no need for Ganima to explain a missing body. By this time he knew that Ganima had worked herself into the belief that he was dead. Only a tiny, isolated capsule of awareness would remain to her, a walled-off memory which could be recalled by words uttered in the ancient language, shared only by the two of them in all of this universe. Setcher Nabiu. If she heard those words, Golden Path, only then would she remember him. Until then he was dead. Now Leto felt truly alone. 
He moved with a random walk which made only those sounds natural to the desert. Nothing in his passage would tell that worm back there that human flesh moved here. It was a way of walking so deeply conditioned in him that he didn't need to think about it. The feet moved of themselves, no measurable rhythm to their pacing. Any sound his feet made could be ascribed to the wind, to gravity. No human passed here. When the worm had done its work behind him, Leto crouched behind a dune's slip face and peered back toward the attendant. Yes, he was far enough. He planted a thumper and summoned his transportation. The worm came swiftly, giving him barely enough time to position himself before it engulfed the thumper. As it passed, he went up its side on the maker hooks, opened the sensitive leading edge of a ring, and turned the mindless beast southeastward. It was a small worm, but strong. He could sense the strength in its twisting as it hissed across the dunes. There was a following breeze and he felt the heat of their passage, the friction which the worm converted to the beginnings of spice within itself. As the worm moved, his mind moved. Stilgar had taken him up for his first worm journey. Leto had only to let his memory flow, and he could hear Stilgar's voice, calm and precise, full of politeness from another age. Not for Stilgar the threatening staggers of a Fremen drunk on spice liquor. Not for Stilgar the loud voice and bluster of these times. No, Stilgar had his duties. He was an instructor of royalty. In the olden times, the birds were named for their songs. Each wind had its name. A six-click wind was called a pastasa. A twenty-click wind was a kweshma. And a hundred-click wind was Hainali. Hainali the man-pusher. Then there was the wind of the demon in the open desert. Hulasikaliwala, the wind that eats flesh and Leto, who had already known these things, had nodded his gratitude at the wisdom of such instruction. But Stilgar's voice could be filled with many valuable things. There were in olden times certain tribes which were known to be water hunters. They were called Idwali, which meant water insects, because those people wouldn't hesitate to steal the water of another Fremen. If they caught you alone in the desert, they would not even leave you the water of your flesh. There was this place where they lived, Sietch Jakurutu. That's where the other tribes banded and wiped out the Idwali. That was a long time ago, before kinds even, in my great-great-grandfather's days. And from that day to this, no Fremen has gone to Jakurutu. It is taboo. Thus had Leto been reminded of knowledge which lay in his memory. It had been an important lesson about the working of memory. A memory was not enough, even for one whose past was as multiform as his, unless its use was known and its value revealed to judgment. Jakarutu would have water, a wind trap, all of the attributes of a Fremen siege, plus the value without compare that no Fremen would venture there. Many of the young would not even know such a place as Jakarutu had ever existed, Oh, they would know about Fondak, of course, but that was a smuggler place. It was a perfect place for the dead to hide, among the smugglers and the dead of another age. Thank you, Stilgar. The worm tired before dawn, 
Leto slid off its side and watched it dig itself into the dunes, moving slowly in the familiar pattern of the creatures. It would go deep and sulk. I must wait out the day, he thought. He stood atop a dune and scanned all around. Emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. Only the wavering track of the vanished worm broke the pattern. The slow cry of a night bird challenged the first green line of light along the eastern horizon. Leto dug himself into the sand's concealment, inflated a still tent around his body and sent the tip of a sand snorkel questing for air. For a long time before sleep came, he lay in the enforced darkness thinking about the decision he and Ganima had made. It had not been an easy decision, especially for Ganima. He had not told her all of his vision, nor all of the reasoning derived from it. It was a vision, not a dream, in his thinking now. But the peculiarity of this thing was that he saw it as a vision of a vision. If any argument existed to convince him that his father still lived, it lay in that vision-vision. The life of the prophet locks us into his vision, Leto thought and a prophet could only break out of the vision by creating his death at variance with that vision. That was how it appeared in Leto's doubled vision, but he pondered this as it related to the choice he had made. Poor Baptist John, he thought. If he'd only had the courage to die some other way. But perhaps his choice had been the bravest one. How do I know what alternatives faced him? I know what alternatives faced my father, though. Leto sighed. To turn his back on his father was like betraying a god, but the Atreides empire needed shaking up. It had fallen into the worst of Paul's vision. How casually it obliterated men. It was done without a second thought. The mainspring of a religious insanity had been wound tight and left ticking. And we're locked in my father's vision. A way out of that insanity lay along the golden path, Leto knew. His father had seen it. But humanity might come out of that golden path and look back down it at Muad'Dib's time, seeing that as a better age. Humankind had to experience the alternative to Muad'Dib, though, or never understand its own myths. Security. Peace. Prosperity. Given the choice, there was little doubt what most citizens of this empire would select. Though they hate me, he thought, though Ghani hate me. His right hand itched, and he thought of the terrible glove in his vision vision. It will be, he thought. Yes, it will be. Arrakis, give me strength, he prayed. His planet remained strong and alive beneath him and around him. Its sand pressed close against the sill tent. Dune was a giant counting its massed riches. It was a beguiling entity, both beautiful and grossly ugly. The only coin its merchants really knew was the blood pulse of their own power, no matter how that power had been amassed. They possessed this planet the way a man might possess a captive mistress, or the way the Bene Gesserits possessed their sisters. No wonder Stilgar hated the merchant priests. Thank you, Stilgar. 
later recalled then the beauties of the old Siech ways, the life lived before the coming of the Imperium's technocracy, and his mind flowed as he knew Stilgar's dreams flowed. Before the glow globes and lasers, before the ornithopters and spice crawlers, there'd been another kind of life. Brown-skinned mothers with babies on their hips, lamps which burned spice oil amidst a heavy fragrance of cinnamon, naives who persuaded their people while knowing none could be compelled. It had been a dark swarming of life in rocky burrows. A terrible glove will restore the balance, Plato thought. Presently, he slept. I saw his blood and a piece of his robe which had been ripped by sharp claws. His sister reports vividly of the tigers, the sureness of their attack. We have questioned one of the plotters, and others are dead or in custody. Everything points to a Carino plot. A truth-sayer has attested to this testimony. Stilgar's report to the Landsrat Commission Faradun studied Duncan Idaho through the spy circuit, seeking a clue to that strange man's behavior. It was shortly after noon, and Idaho waited outside the quarters assigned to the Lady Jessica, seeking audience with her. Would she see him? She'd know they were spied upon, of course, but would she see him? Around Faradun lay the room where Tiekanik had guided the training of the laser tigers, an illegal room, really, filled as it was with forbidden instruments from the hands of the Tleilaxu and Ixians. By the movement of switches at his right hand, Faradun could look at Idaho from six different angles, or shift to the interior of Lady Jessica's suite, where the spying facilities were equally sophisticated. Idaho's eyes bothered Faradun. Those pitted metal orbs which the Tleilaxu had given their gola in the regrowth tanks marked their possessor as profoundly different from other humans. Faradun touched his own eyelids, feeling the hard surfaces of the permanent contact lenses which concealed the total blue of his spice addiction. Idaho's eyes must record a different universe. How could it be otherwise? It almost tempted Faradun to seek out the Tleilaxu surgeons and answer that question himself. Why did Idaho try to kill himself? Was that really what he'd tried? He must have known we wouldn't permit it. Idaho remained a dangerous question mark. Tiekanik wanted to keep him on Salusa or kill him. Perhaps that would be best. Faradun shifted to a frontal view. Idaho sat on a hard bench outside the door to the Lady Jessica's suite. It was a windowless foyer with light wood walls decorated by lance pennants. Idaho had been on that bench more than an hour and appeared ready to wait there forever. Faradun bent close to the screen. The loyal swordmaster of the Atreides, instructor of Paul Muad'Dib, had been treated kindly by his ears on Arrakis. He'd arrived with a youthful spring in his step. A steady spice diet must have helped him, of course, and that marvellous metabolic balance which the Tleilaxu tanks always imparted. Did Idaho really remember his past before the tanks? No other whom the Tleilaxu had revived could claim this. What an enigma this Idaho was. The reports of his death were in the library. The Sardica who'd slain him reported his prowess. Nineteen of their number dispatched by Idaho before he'd fallen. Nineteen Sardica. His flesh had been well worth sending to the regrowth tanks. But the Tleilaxu had made a mentat out of him. 
What a strange creature lived in that regrown flesh. How did it feel to be a human computer, in addition to all of his other talents? Why did he try to kill himself? Faraday knew his own talents and held few illusions about them. He was a historian archaeologist and judge of men. Necessity had forced him to become an expert on those who would serve him. Necessity and a careful study of the Atreides. He saw it as the price always demanded of aristocracy. To rule required accurate and incisive judgments about those who wielded your power. More than one ruler had fallen through mistakes and excesses of his underlings. Careful study of the Atreides revealed a superb talent in choosing servants. They'd known how to maintain loyalty, how to keep a fine edge on the ardour of their warriors. Idaho was not acting in character. Why? Faridun squinted his eyes, trying to see past the skin of this man. There was a sense of duration about Idaho, a feeling that he could not be worn down. He gave the impression of being self-contained, an organized and firmly integrated whole. The Tlelaxu tanks had set something more than human into motion. Faridun sensed this. There was a self-renewing movement about the man as though he acted in accordance with immutable laws, beginning anew at every ending. He moved in a fixed orbit with an endurance about him like that of a planet around a star. He would respond to pressure without breaking, merely shifting his orbit slightly, but not really changing anything basic. Why did he cut his wrist? Whatever his motive, he had done it for the Atreides, for his ruling house. The Atreides were the star of his orbit. Somehow he believes that my holding the Lady Jessica here strengthens the Atreides. And Faridun reminded himself, a Mentat thinks this. It gave the thought an added depth. Mentats made mistakes, but not often. Having come to this conclusion, Faridun almost summoned his aides to have them send the Lady Jessica away with Idaho. He poised himself on the point of acting. Withdrew. Both of those people, the Gola Mentat and the Bene Gesserit Witch, remained counters of unknown denomination in this game of power. Idaho must be sent back because that would certainly stir up troubles on Arrakis. Jessica must be kept here, drained of her strange knowledge to benefit House Corino. Faridun knew it was a subtle and deadly game he played, but he had prepared himself for this possibility over the years, ever since he'd realized that he was more intelligent, more sensitive than those around him. It had been a frightening discovery for a child, and he knew the library had been his refuge as well as his teacher. Doubts ate at him now, though, and he wondered if he was quite up to this game. He'd alienated his mother, lost her counsel, but her decisions had always been dangerous to him. Tigers. Their training had been an atrocity, and their use had been stupidity. How easy they were to trace. She should be thankful to suffer nothing more than banishment. The Lady Jessica's advice had fitted his needs with a lovely precision there. She must be made to divulge the way of that Atreides thinking. His doubts began to fade away. He thought of his Sarduka once more growing tough and resilient through the rigorous training and the denial of luxury which he commanded. His Sarduka legions remained small, but once more they were a man-to-man -man match for the Fremen. That served little purpose as long as the limits imposed by the Treaty of Arakin governed the relative size of the forces. 
Fremen could overwhelm him by their numbers, unless they were tied up and weakened by civil war. It was too soon for a battle of Sardaukar against Fremen. He needed time. He needed new allies from among the discontented houses major and the newly powerful from the houses minor. He needed access to chome financing. He needed the time for his Sardaukar to grow stronger and the Fremen to grow weaker. Again, Faradun looked at the screen which revealed the patient Gola. Why did Idaho want to see the Lady Jessica at this time? He would know they were spied upon, that every word, every gesture would be recorded and analysed. Why? Faridan glanced away from the screen to the ledge beside his control console. In the pale electronic light, he could make out the spools which contained the latest reports from Arrakis. His spies were thorough. He had to give them credit. There was much to give him hope and pleasure in those reports. He closed his eyes and the high points of those reports passed through his mind in the oddly editorial form to which he'd reduced the spools for his own uses. As the planet is made fertile, Fremen are freed of land pressures and their new communities lose the traditional Siech stronghold character. From infancy in the old Siech culture, the Fremen was taught by the Rota, like the knowledge of your own being, the Siech forms a firm base from which you move out into the world and into the universe. The traditional Fremen says, look at the massif, meaning that the master science is the law. But the new social structure is loosening those old legal restrictions. Discipline grows lax. The new Fremen leaders know only their low catechism of ancestry, plus the history which is camouflaged in the myth structure of their songs. People of the new communities are more volatile, more open. They quarrel more often and are less responsive to authority. The old CH folk are more disciplined, more inclined to group actions, and they tend to work harder. They are more careful of their resources. The old folk still believe that the orderly society is the fulfilment of the individual. The young grow away from this belief. Those remnants of the older culture which remain look at the young and say, the death wind has etched away their past. Faradun liked the pointedness of his own summary. The new diversity on Arrakis could only bring violence. He had the essential concepts firmly etched into the spools. The religion of Muad'Dib is based firmly in the old Fremen Siech cultural tradition, while the new culture moves farther and farther from those disciplines. Not for the first time, Faridun asked himself why Tiekanik had embraced that religion. Tiekanik behaved oddly in his new morality. He seemed utterly sincere, but carried along as though against his will. Tiekanik was like one who had stepped into the whirlwind to test it and had been caught up by forces beyond his control. Tiekanik's conversion annoyed Faradun by its characterless completeness. It was a reversion to very old Sardaka ways. He warned that the young Fremen might yet revert in a similar way, that the inborn, ingrained traditions would prevail. Once more, Faradun thought about those report spools. They told of a disquieting thing, the persistence of a cultural remnant from the most ancient Fremen times, the water of conception. The amniotic fluid of the newborn was saved at birth, distilled into the first water fed to that child. The traditional form required a godmother to serve the water, saying, Here is the water of thy conception. Even the young Fremen still followed this tradition with their own newborn. The water 
of thy conception. Faradun found himself revolted by the idea of drinking water distilled from the amniotic fluid which had borne him, and he thought about the surviving twin, Ganima, her mother dead when she'd taken that strange water. Had she reflected later upon that odd link with her past? Probably not. She'd been raised Fremen. What was natural and acceptable to Fremen had been natural and acceptable to her. Momentarily, Faridun regretted the death of Leto II. It would have been interesting to discuss this point with him. Perhaps an opportunity would come to discuss it with Ganima. Why did Idaho cut his wrists? The question persisted every time he glanced at the spy screen. Again, doubts assailed Faridun. He longed for the ability to sink into the mysterious spice trance, as Paul Muad'Dib had done, there to seek out the future and know the answers to his questions. No matter how much spice he ingested, though, his ordinary awareness persisted in its singular flow of now, reflecting a universe of uncertainties. The spy screen showed a servant opening the Lady Jessica's door. The woman beckoned Idaho, who arose from the bench and went through the door. The servant would file a complete report later, but Faradun, his curiosity once more fully aroused, touched another switch on his console, watched as Idaho entered the sitting room of the Lady Jessica's quarters. How calm and contained the Mentat appeared, and how fathomless were his gola eyes. Above all else, the Mentat must be a generalist, not a specialist. It is wise to have decisions of great moment monitored by generalists. Experts and specialists lead you quickly into chaos. They are a source of useless nitpicking, the ferocious quibble over a comma. The Mentat generalist, on the other hand, should bring to decision-making a healthy common sense. He must not cut himself off from the broad sweep of what is happening in his universe. He must remain capable of saying, there's no real mystery about this at the moment. This is what we want now. It may prove wrong later, but we'll correct that when we come to it. The Mentat generalist must understand that anything which we can identify as our universe is merely part of larger phenomena. But the expert looks backward. He looks into the narrow standards of his own specialty. The generalist looks outward. He looks for living principles, knowing full well that such principles change, that they develop. It is to the characteristics of change itself that the Mentat generalist must look. There can be no permanent catalogue of such change, no handbook or manual. You must look at it with as few preconceptions as possible, asking yourself, now what is this thing doing? The Mentat Handbook it was the day of the Kwisatz Haderach, the first holy day of those who followed Muad'Dib. It recognized the deified Paul Atreides as that person who was everywhere simultaneously, the male Bene Gesserit who mingled both male and female ancestry in an inseparable power to become the one with all. The faithful called this day Ayil, the sacrifice, to commemorate the death which made his presence real in all places. The preacher chose the early morning of this day to appear once more in the plaza of Aliyah's temple, defying the order for his arrest which everyone knew had been issued. 
the delicate truce prevailed between Alia's priesthood and those desert tribes which had rebelled, but the presence of this truce could be felt as a tangible thing which moved everyone in Arakeen with uneasiness. The preacher did not dispel that mood. It was the twenty-eighth day of official mourning for Muad'Dib's son, six days following the memorial rite at Old Pass which had been delayed by the rebellion. Even the fighting had not stopped the Hajj, though. The preacher knew the plaza would be heavily thronged on this day. Most pilgrims tried to time their stay on Arrakis to cross Ayil, to feel then the holy presence of the Kwisatz Haderach on his day. The preacher entered the plaza at first light, finding the place already thronged with the faithful. He kept a hand lightly on the shoulder of his young guide, sensing the cynical pride in the lad's walk. Now, when the preacher approached, people noticed every nuance of his behaviour. Such attention was not entirely distasteful to the young guide. The preacher merely accepted it as a necessity. Taking his stance on the third of the temple's steps, the preacher waited for the hush to come. When silence had spread like a wave through the throng, and the hurrying footsteps of others come to listen could be heard at the plaza's limits, he cleared his throat. It was still morning cold around him, and lights had not yet come down into the plaza from the building tops. He felt the grey hush of the great square as he began to speak. I have come to give homage and to preach in the memory of Leto Atreides II, he said, calling out in that strong voice so reminiscent of a wormsman from the desert. I do it in compassion for all who suffer. I say to you what the dead Leto has learned that tomorrow has not yet happened and may never happen. This moment here is the only observable time and place for us in our universe. I tell you to savour this moment and understand what it teaches. I tell you to learn that a government's growth and its death are apparent in the growth and death of its citizens. A disturbed murmur passed through the plaza. Did he mock the death of Leto II? They wondered if priest guards would rush out now and arrest the preacher. Alia knew there would be no such interruption of the preacher. It was her order that he be left unmolested on this day. She had disguised herself in a good still suit with a moisture mask to conceal her nose and mouth and a common hooded robe to hide her hair. She stood in the second row beneath the preacher, watching him carefully. Was this Paul? The years might have changed him thus, and he had always been superb with voice, a fact which made it difficult to identify him by his speech. Still, this preacher made his voice do what he wanted. Paul could not have done it better. She felt that she had to know his identity before she could act against him. How his words dazzled her. She sensed no irony in the preacher's statement. He was using the seductive attraction of definite sentences uttered with a driving sincerity. People might stumble only momentarily at his meanings, realizing that he had meant them to stumble, teaching them in this fashion. Indeed, he picked up the crowd's response, saying, Irony often masks the inability to think beyond one's assumptions. I am not being ironic. Ganima has said to you that the blood of her brother cannot be washed off. I concur. It will be said that Leto has gone where his father went, has done what his father did. 
Muad'Dib's church, says he, chose in behalf of his own humanity, a course which might appear absurd and foolhardy, but which history will validate. That history is being rewritten even now. I say to you that there is another lesson to be learned from these lives and their endings. Alia, alert to every nuance, asked herself why the preacher said endings instead of deaths. Was he saying that one or both were not truly dead? How could that be? A truth-sayer had confirmed Ganima's story. What was this preacher doing then? Was he making a statement of myth or reality? Note this other lesson well, the preacher thundered, lifting his arms. If you would possess your humanity, let go of the universe. He lowered his arms, pointed his empty sockets directly at Alia. He seemed to be speaking intimately to her, an action so obvious that several around her turned to peer inquiringly in her direction. Alia shivered at the power in him. This could be Paul. It could. But I realize that humans cannot bear very much reality he said. Most lives are a flight from selfhood. Most prefer the truths of the stable. You stick your heads into the stanchions and munch contentedly until you die. Others use you for their purposes. Not once do you live outside the stable to lift your head and be your own creature. Muad'Dib came to tell you about that. Without understanding his message, you cannot revere him. Some in the throng, possibly a priest in disguise, could stand no more. His hoarse male voice was lifted in a shout. You don't live the life of Muad'Dib. How dare you to tell others how they must revere him? Because he's dead, the preacher bellowed. Alia turned to see who had challenged the preacher. The man remained hidden from her, but his voice came over the intervening heads in another shout. If you believe him truly dead, then you are alone from this time forward. Surely it was a priest, Alia thought, but she failed to recognize the voice. I come only to ask a simple question, the preacher said. Is Muad'Dib's death to be followed by the moral suicide of all men? Is that the inevitable aftermath of a messiah? Then you admit him, messiah, the voice from the crowd shouted. Why not, since I'm the prophet of his times? the preacher asked. There was such calm assurance in his tone and manner that even his challenger fell silent. The crowd responded with a disturbed murmur, a low animal sound. Yes, the preacher repeated, I am the prophet of these times. Alia, concentrating on him, detected the subtle inflections of voice. He'd certainly controlled the crowd. Was he Bene Gesserit trained? Was this another ploy of the Missionaria Protectiva? Not Paul at all, but just another part of the endless power game? I articulate the myth and the dream, the preacher shouted. I am the physician who delivers the child and announces that the child is born, yet I come to you at a time of death. Does that not disturb you? It should shake your souls. Even as she felt anger at his words, Alia understood the pointed way of his speech. 
With others, she found herself edging closer up the steps, crowding toward this tall man in desert garb. His young guide caught her attention. How bright-eyed and saucy the lad appeared. Would Muad'Dib employ such a cynical youth? I mean to disturb you, the preacher shouted. It is my intention. I come here to combat the fraud and illusion of your conventional, institutionalized religion. As with all such religions, your institution moves toward cowardice. It moves toward mediocrity, inertia, and self-satisfaction. Angry murmurs began to arise in the center of the throng. Aaliyah felt the tensions and gloatingly wondered if there might not be a riot. Could the preacher handle these tensions? If not, he could die right here. That priest who challenged me, the preacher called, pointing into the crowd. He knows, Aaliyah thought. A thrill ran through her, almost sexual in its undertones. This preacher played a dangerous game, but he played it consummately. You, priest in your mufti, the preacher called. You are a chaplain to the self-satisfied. I come not to challenge Muad'Dib, but to challenge you. Is your religion real when it costs you nothing and carries no risk? Is your religion real when you fatten upon it? Is your religion real when you commit atrocities in its name? Whence comes your downward degeneration from the original revelation? Answer me, priest! But the challenger remained silent, and Aliyah noted that the crowd once more was listening with avid submission to the preacher's every word. By attacking the priesthood, he had their sympathy. And if her spies were correct, most of the pilgrims and Fremen on Arrakis believed this man was Muad'Dib. The son of Muad'Dib risked, the preacher shouted, and Aliyah heard tears in his voice. Muad'Dib risked! They paid their price, and what did Muad'Dib achieve? A religion which is doing away with him. How different those words if they come from Paul himself, Aliyah thought. I must find out. She moved closer up the steps, and others moved with her. She pressed through the throng until she could almost reach out and touch this mysterious prophet. She smelled the desert on him, a mixture of spice and flint. Both the preacher and his young guide were dusty, as though they'd recently come from the bled. She could see where the preacher's hands were deeply veined along the skin protruding from the wrist seals of his stillsuit. She could see that one finger of his left hand had worn a ring. The indentation remained. Paul had worn a ring on that finger, the Atreides hawk, which now reposed in Siech Tabor. Leto would have worn it had he lived, or had she permitted him to ascend the throne. Again the preacher aimed his empty sockets at Alia, spoke intimately but with a voice which carried across the throng. Muad'Dib showed you two things, a certain future and an uncertain future. With full awareness, he confronted the ultimate uncertainty of the larger universe. He stepped off, blindly from his position on this world. He showed us that men must do this always, choosing the uncertain instead of the certain. His voice, Aliyah noted, took on a pleading tone at the end of this statement. Aliyah glanced around, slipped a hand onto the hilt of her chris knife. 
If I killed him right now, what would they do? Again, she felt a thrill rush through her. If I killed him and revealed myself, denouncing the preacher as impostor and heretic. But what if they proved it was Paul? Someone pushed Alia even closer to him. She felt herself enthralled by his presence even as she fought to still her anger. Was this Paul? Gods below, what could she do? Why has another Leto been taken from us? The preacher demanded. There was real pain in his voice. Answer me if you can. Ah, their message is clear. Abandon certainty. He repeated it in a rolling stentorian shout. Abandon certainty. That's life's deepest command. That's what life's all about. We're a probe into the unknown, into the uncertain. Why can't you hear Muad'Dib? If certainty is knowing absolutely an absolute future, then that's only death disguised. Such a future becomes now. He showed you this. With a terrifying directness, the preacher reached out, grabbed Alia's arm. It was done without any groping or hesitation. She tried to pull away, but he held her in a painful grip, speaking directly into her face as those around them edged back in confusion. What did Paul Atreides tell you, woman? he demanded. How does he know I'm a woman? she asked herself. She wanted to sink into her inner lives, ask their protection but the world within remained frighteningly silent, mesmerized by this figure from their past. He told you that completion equals death, the preacher shouted. Absolute prediction is completion, is death. She tried to pry his fingers away. She wanted to grab her knife and slash him away from her, but dared not. She had never felt this daunted in all of her life. The preacher lifted his chin to speak over her to the crowd, shouted, I give you Muad'Dib's words, he said. I'm going to rub your faces in things you try to avoid. I don't find it strange that all you want to believe is only that which comforts you. How else do humans invent the traps which betray us into mediocrity? How else do we define cowardice? That's what Muad'Dib told you. Abruptly he released Aaliyah's arm, thrust her into the crowd. She would have fallen but for the press of people supporting her. To exist is to stand out, away from the background, the preacher said. You aren't thinking or really existing until you're willing to risk even your own sanity in the judgment of your existence. Stepping down, the preacher once more took Alia's arm, no faltering or hesitation. He was gentler this time, though, leaning close he pitched his voice for her ears alone, said, Stop trying to pull me once more into the background, sister. Then, hand on his young guide's shoulder, he stepped into the throng. Way was made for the strange pair. Hands reached out to touch the preacher, but people reached with an awesome tenderness, fearful of what they might find beneath that dusty Fremen robe. Alia stood alone in her shock as the throng moved out behind the preacher. Certainty filled her. It was Paul. No doubt remained. It was her brother. She felt what the crowd felt. She had stood in the sacred presence and now her universe tumbled all about her. She wanted to run after him, pleading for him to save her from herself, but she could not move. 
While others pressed to follow the preacher and his guide, she stood intoxicated with an absolute despair, a distress so deep that she could only tremble with it, unable to command her own muscles. What will I do? What will I do? she asked herself. Now she did not even have Duncan to lean upon, nor her mother. The inner lives remained silent. There was Ganima, held securely under guard within the keep, but Alia could not bring herself to take this distress to the surviving twin. Everyone has turned against me. What can I do? The one-eyed view of our universe says you must not look far afield for problems. Such problems may never arrive. Instead, tend to the wolf within your fences. The packs ranging outside may not even exist. The Ajar Book, Shamra 1-4 Jessica awaited Idaho at the window of her sitting room. It was a comfortable room with soft divans and old-fashioned chairs. There wasn't a suspenser in any of her rooms, and the glow globes were crystal from another age. Her window overlooked a courtyard garden one story down. She heard the servant open the door, then the sound of Idaho's footsteps on the wood floor, then on the carpet. She listened without turning, kept her gaze upon the dappled light of the courtyard's green floor. The silent, fearful warfare of her emotions must be suppressed now. She took the deep breaths of her prana-bindu training, felt the outflow of enforced calmness. The high sun threw its searchlight along a dust beam into the courtyard, highlighting the silver wheel of a spiderweb stretched in the branches of a linden tree which reached almost to her window. It was cool within her quarters, but outside the sealed window there was air which trembled with petrified heat. Castle Corino sat in a stagnant place which belied the greens in her courtyard. She heard Idaho stop directly behind her. Without turning, she said, The gift of words is the gift of deception and illusion, Duncan. Why do you wish words with me? It may be that only one of us will survive, he said. And you wish me to make a good report of your efforts? She turned, saw how calmly he stood there watching her with those grey metal eyes which held no centre of focus. How blank they were. Duncan, is it possible that you're jealous of your place in history? She spoke accusingly, and remembered as she spoke that other time when she'd confronted this man. He'd been drunk then, set to spy upon her, and was torn by conflicting obligations. But that had been a pre-Gola, Duncan. This was not the same man at all. This man was not divided in his actions, not torn. He proved her summation by smiling. History holds its own court and delivers its own judgments, he said. I doubt that I'll be concerned when my judgment's handed down. Why are you here? she asked. For the same reason you're here, my lady. No outward sign betrayed the shocking power of those simple words, but she reflected at a furious pace. Does he really know why I'm here? How could he? Only Ganima knew. Then had he enough data for a mentat computation? That was possible. And what if he said something to give her away? Would he do that if he shared her reason for being here? 
He must know their every movement, every word, was being spied upon by Faradun or his servants. House Atreides has come to a bitter crossroads, she said. Family turned against itself. You were among my duke's most loyal men, Duncan. When the Baron Harkonnen... Let us not speak of Harkonnens, he said. That was another age, and your duke is dead. And he wondered, can't she guess that Paul revealed the Harkonnen blood in the Atreides? What a risk that had been for Paul, but it had bound Duncan Idaho even more firmly to him. The trust in the revelation had been a coin almost too great to imagine. Paul had known what the Baron's people had done to Idaho. House Atreides is not dead, Jessica said. What is House Atreides? he asked. Are you House Atreides? Is it Alia, Ganima? Is it the people who serve this house? I look at those people and they bear the stamp of a travail beyond words. How can they be Atreides? Your son said it rightly. Travail and persecution are the lot of all who follow me. I would break myself away from that, my lady. Have you really gone over to Faradun? Isn't that what you've done, my lady? Didn't you come here to convince Faradun that a marriage to Ganima would solve all of our problems? Does he really think that? she wondered. Or is he talking for the watchful spies? House Atreides has always been essentially an idea, she said. You know that, Duncan. We bought loyalty with loyalty. Service to the people, Idaho sneered. Ah, many's the time I've heard your duke say it. He must lie uneasy in his grave, my lady. Do you really think us fallen that low? My lady, did you not know that there are Fremen rebels, they call themselves Marquis of the Inner Desert, who curse House Atreides and even Muad'Dib? I heard Faridun's report, she said, wondering where he was leading this conversation and to what point. More than that, my lady, more than Faridun's report, I've heard their curse myself. Here's the way of it. Burning be on you, Atreides, you shall have no souls, nor spirits, nor bodies, nor shades, nor magic, nor bones, nor hair, nor utterances, nor words. You shall have no grave, nor house, nor hole, nor tomb. You shall have no garden, nor tree, nor bush. You shall have no water, nor bread, nor light, nor fire. You shall have no children, nor family, nor heirs, nor tribe. You shall have no head, nor arms, nor legs, nor gait, nor seed. You shall have no seats on any planet. Your souls shall not be permitted to come up from the depths, and they shall never be among those permitted to live upon the earth. On no day shall you behold Shai Hulud, but you shall be bound and fettered in the nethermost abomination, and your souls shall never enter into the glorious light forever and ever. That's the way of the curse, my lady. Can you imagine such hatred from Fremen? They consign all Atreides to the left hand of the damned, to the woman's son which is full of burning. Jessica allowed herself a shudder. Idaho undoubtedly had delivered those words with the same voice in which he'd heard the original curse. Why did he expose this to House Corino? She could picture an outraged Fremen, terrible in his anger, standing before his tribe to vent that ancient curse. Why did Idaho want Faradun to hear it? You make a strong argument for the marriage of Ganima and Faradun, she said. 
You always did have a single-minded approach to problems, he said. Ganima's Fremen. She can marry only one who pays no fai, no tax for protection. House Carino gave up its entire chome holdings to your son and his heirs. Faridun exists on Atreides' sufferance. And remember when your duke planted the hawk flag on Arrakis, remember what he said? Here I am, here I remain. His bones are still there. And Faridun would have to live on Arrakis, his Sardaka with him. Idaho shook his head at the very thought of such an alliance. There's an old saying that one peels a problem like an onion, she said, her voice cold. How dare he patronize me, unless he's performing for Faridun's watchful eyes. Somehow, I can't see Fremen and Sardica sharing a planet, Idaho said. That's a layer which doesn't come off the onion. She didn't like the thoughts which Idaho's words might arouse in Faridun and his advisers, spoke sharply. House Atreides is still the law in this empire. And she thought, does Idaho want Faridun to believe he can regain the throne without the Atreides? Oh, yes, Idaho said. I almost forgot. Atreides' law. As translated, of course, by the priests of the Golden Elixir. I have but to close my eyes and I hear your duke telling me that real estate is always gained and held by violence or the threat of it. Fortune passes everywhere, as Gurney used to sing it. The end justifies the means? Or do I have my proverbs mixed up? Well, it doesn't matter whether the mailed fist is brandished openly by Fremen legions or Sardica, or whether it's hidden in the Atreides' law, the fist is still there, and the onion layer won't come off, my lady. You know, I wonder which fist Faridun will demand. What is he doing? Jessica wondered. House Carino would soak up this argument and gloat over it. So you think the priests wouldn't let Ganima marry Faridun? Jessica ventured probing to see where Idaho's words might be leading. Let her? Gods below. The priests will let Aaliyah do whatever she decrees. She could marry Faridun herself. Is that where he's fishing? Jessica wondered. No, my lady, Idaho said. That's not the issue. This empire's people cannot distinguish between Atreides' government and the government of Beast Raban. Men die every day in Arakeen's dungeons. I left because I could not give my sword arm another hour to the Atreides. Don't you understand what I'm saying? Why I came here to you as the nearest Atreides representative? The Atreides Empire has betrayed your duke and your son. I loved your daughter, but she went one way and I went another. If it comes down to it, I'll advise Faridun to accept Ganima's hand, or Alia's, only on his own terms. Ah! He sets the stage for a formal withdrawal with honour from Atreides' service, she thought. But these other matters of which he spoke, could he possibly know how well they did her work for her? She scowled at him. You know spies are listening to every word, don't you? Spies? He chuckled. They listen as I would listen in their place. Don't you know how my loyalties move in a different way? Many's the night I've spent alone in the desert, and the Fremen are right about that place. In the desert, especially at night, you encounter the dangers of hard thinking. Is that where you heard Fremen curses? Yes, among the Al-Ruba. At the preacher's bidding, I joined them, my lady. We call ourselves the Zar Sadus, 
those who refuse to submit to the priests. I'm here to make formal announcement to an Atreides that I've removed myself to enemy territory. Jessica studied him, looking for betrayals of minutiae, but Idaho gave no indication that he spoke falsely or with hidden plans. Was it really possible that he'd gone over to Farden? She was reminded of her sisterhood's maxim. In human affairs, nothing remains enduring. All human affairs revolve in a helix moving around and out. If Idaho had really left the Atreides' fold, that would explain his present behavior. He was moving around and out. She had to consider this as a possibility. But why had he emphasized that he did the preacher's bidding? Jessica's mind raced, and having considered alternatives, she realized she might have to kill Idaho. The plan on which she had staked her hopes remained so delicate that nothing could be allowed to interfere with it. Nothing. And Idaho's words hinted that he knew her plan. She gauged their relative positions in the room, moving and turning to place herself in position for a lethal blow. I've always considered the normalizing effect of the Falfreluches to be a pillar of our strength, she said. Let him wonder why she shifted their conversation to the system of class distinction. The Lanthrat Council of the Great Houses, the regional Sisselrads, all deserve our... You do not distract me, he said. And Idaho wondered at how transparent her actions had become. Was it that she had grown lax in concealment, or had he finally breached the walls of her Bene Gesserit training? The latter, he decided, but some of it was in herself, a changing as she aged. It saddened him to see the small ways the new Fremen differed from the old. The passing of the desert was the passing of something precious to humans, and he could not describe this thing no more than he could describe what had happened to the Lady Jessica. Jessica stared at Idaho in open astonishment, not trying to conceal her reaction. Could he read her that easily? You will not slay me, he said. He used the Fremen words of warning. Don't throw your blood upon my knife. And he thought, I've become very much the Fremen. It gave him a wry sense of continuity to realize how deeply he had accepted the ways of the planet which had harbored his second life. I think you'd better leave, she said. Not until you accept my withdrawal from Atreides' service. Accepted, she bit it off. And only after she'd uttered the word did she realize how much pure reflex had gone into this exchange. She needed time to think and reconsider. How had Idaho known what she would do? She did not believe him capable of leaping time in the spiceway. Idaho backed away from her until he felt the door behind him. He bowed. Once more I call you my lady, and then never again. My advice to Faridun will be to send you back to Wallach, quietly and quickly, at the earliest practical moment. You are too dangerous a toy to keep around, although I don't believe he thinks of you as a toy. You are working for the Sisterhood, not for the Atreides. I wonder now if you ever worked for the Atreides. You witches move too deeply and darkly for mere mortals ever to trust. A goller considers himself a mere mortal, she jibed. Compared to you, he said. Leave, she ordered. Such is my intention. 
He slipped out the door, passing the curious stare of the servant who'd obviously been listening. It's done, he thought, and they can read it in only one way. Only in the realm of mathematics can you understand Muad'Dib's precise view of the future. Thus, first, we postulate any number of point dimensions in space. This is the classic n-fold extended aggregate of n dimensions. With this framework, time as commonly understood becomes an aggregate of one-dimensional properties. Applying this to the Muad'Dib phenomenon, we find that we either are confronted by new properties of time or, by reduction through the infinity calculus, we are dealing with separate systems which contain n-body properties. For Muad'Dib, we assume the latter. As demonstrated by the reduction, the point dimensions of the n-fold can only have separate existence within different frameworks of time. Separate dimensions of time are thus demonstrated to coexist. This being the inescapable case, Muad'Dib's predictions required that he perceive the n-fold not as extended aggregate, but as an operation within a single framework. In effect, he froze his universe into that one framework which was his view of time. Palimbasha, Lectures at Siech Tabor Leto lay at the crest of a dune, peering across open sand at a sinuous rock outcropping. The rock lay like an immense worm atop the sand, flat and threatening in the morning sunlight. Nothing stirred there. No bird circled overhead, no animal scampered among the rocks. He would see the slots of a wind trap almost at the centre of the worm's back. There'd be water here. The rock worm held the familiar appearance of a sietch shelter except for the absence of living things. He lay quietly, blending with sand, watching. One of Gurney Halleck's tunes kept flowing through his mind, monotonously persistent. Beneath the hill where the fox runs lightly, a dappled sun shines brightly, where my one loves still. Beneath the hill in the fennel brake, I spy my love who cannot wake. He hides in a grave beneath the hill. Where was the entrance to that place? Melato wondered. He felt the certainty that this must be Jakarutu Fondak. But there was something wrong here beyond the lack of animal movement. Something flickered at the edges of conscious perception, warning him. What hid beneath the hill? Lack of animals was bothersome. It aroused his Fremen sense of caution. The absence says more than the presence when it comes to desert survival. But there was a wind trap. There would be water and humans to use it. This was the taboo place which hid behind Fondak's name, its other identity lost even to the memories of most Fremen, and no birds or animals could be seen there. No humans. Yet here the golden path began. His father had once said, There's unknown all around at every moment. That's where you seek knowledge. Oleto glanced out to his right along the dune crests. There'd been a mother storm recently. Lake Azrak, the gypsum plain, had been exposed from beneath its sandy cover. Fremen superstition said that whoever saw the Bian, the White Lands, was granted a two-edged wish, a wish which might destroy you. Later saw only a gypsum plain, which told him that open water had existed once here on Arrakis. 
as it would exist once more. He peered upward, swinging his gaze all around in the search for movement. The sky was porous after the storm. Light passing through it generated a sensation of milky presence, of a silver sun lost somewhere above the dust veil which persisted in the high altitudes. Once more, Leto brought his attention back to the sinuous rock. He slipped the binoculars from his framkit, focused their motile lenses and peered at the naked greyness, this outcropping where once the men of Jakarutu had lived. Amplification revealed a thorn bush, the one called Queen of Night. The bush nestled in shadows at a cleft which might be an entrance into the old siege. He scanned the length of the outcropping. The silver sun turned reds into grey, casting a diffuse flatness over the long expanse of rock. He rolled over, turning his back on Jakarutu, scanned the circle of his surroundings through the binoculars. Nothing in that wilderness preserved the marks of human passage. The wind already had obliterated his tracks, leaving only a vague roundness where he had dropped from his worm in the night. Again he looked at Jakarutu. Except for the wind trap, there was no sign that men had ever passed this way. And without that sinuous length of rock, there was nothing here to subtract from the bleached sand, a wilderness from horizon to horizon.' 